Good evening, Vacaville. This is the regularly scheduled city council meeting, February 28th. And to begin this meeting, I would like to start off with the roll call. Council Agency Authority Member Stockton? Here. Ritchie? Here. Silva? Here. Chapman? Here. Roberts? Here. Vice Mayor, Vice Chair Wiley? Here. Mayor, Chair Carley? Here. Will we uh, please rise, take a moment of silence, and follow by the pledge? Thank you. With that item three, we have the approval of the agenda. Mr. City Manager, do we have any changes? No, we do not, Mr. Mayor. Right, thank you. And item number four, approval of the minutes. Any changes or any comments for the approval of our minutes? We just did. Oh, we have to approve the agenda too. So sorry about that. Thank you. So with that, do I have the approval? Do I have a motion to approve? Second? Second. We have a second. All in favor say aye. Aye. All right. Next, approval of the minutes. Any changes to the prior agenda's minutes? We have a motion to approve and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you very much. Next, we will go on to presentations. Seeing none, item six, we will go to the consent calendar. Any member of the council or the public wishing to pull an item from tonight's consent calendar? All right, I see Councilmember Silva. I'd like to pull 6A. Okay, and we have 6A to be pulled. Any other item? We only have two items on our consent calendar. So with that, um, we have a motion to approve the consent calendar excluding 6A. So it would be item 6B. So moved. All right, do we have a second? Second. All right, we have Roberts as a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. It passes. We will move on to business from the floor. This is, excuse me, sorry about that. I'm getting too far ahead of myself. It was consent item. At 6A, we will open that up for discussion. Councilmember Silva. I had you there. I touched you. Uh, thank you, everyone. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, just a quick question for city manager. Uh, this, uh, can we just, I just want to make sure we publicly put out there uh, what this process is. Um, this isn't. Uh, we're just moving to the process to go through the motion of uh, announcing the land as surplus. And uh, can you please just explain that? Certainly, Councilmember Silva. So the request before you tonight is a request to initiate the surplus property rules in accordance with the state guidelines for city-owned property there on Brown Street. Um, Council is aware that um, we were directed um, to initiate the um, process for um, the next steps in a uh, potential boys and boys and girls club site on on that city-owned property. Um, there's also a, a park project that the city is working on there as well. But to begin either of those projects, we need to initiate the property 
um, rules with the state so that we can get that process underway. And that way we can then move to the next steps associated with the Boys and Girls Club project, which is the um, exclusive negotiation rights agreement, and then so on into the, the further steps. So this is just really to kick things off. Um, those other processes for those other projects will certainly be um, public, open to the public, and we will make sure that uh, council and commissions and the public receive all those notifications when it's those elements to occur. With that, any other council comments? I will open it up to the public for comment on this item. Seeing none, I will close the item. And do I have a motion? Oh, motion to approve 6A. I have a second? Yeah. Vice Mayor Wiley, we have a second. And all in favor say aye. 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 Thank you very much. We will move on to item seven, business from the floor. This is the time when anyone from the public wishing to comment on an item that's not on the agenda that is in the purview and, and within this council, you may come forward now. I'd like to thank Sarah first for directing me in here. I was a complete loss. <laughs> uh, I'm Gina Kelp. I'm from Rio Vista, but tonight I'm here representing Solano's civil grand jury. Uh, we were just recently given a proclamation by your board of supervisors declaring February grand jury awareness month. So we kind of use that as our kickoff point for recruiting for the next upcoming term. Now, I stress this is a civil grand jury. Forget everything you've seen on law and order. <laughs> uh, our goal is to look at things that the counties and cities are doing governmental-wise. Uh, it could be public safety, health and social services. There's something for everybody. Now, uh, qualifications to be a grand juror are really quite simple such things as being a resident of Solano. I think we can all handle that. <laughs> uh, and your term runs from Ju July 1st to June 30th. It's a one-year term. It is a commitment you will need to make. Uh, there are weeks that you will spend a lot of time on it. So if anybody has time and wants to do something worthwhile, this is truly the place to go to. Um, now, I was supposed to have a few other people here with me tonight, and they've got the applications and complaint forms with them. Uh, so I will see that they get here to the city council so you can display them in the lobby. But meanwhile, I'll stick around for a few minutes uh, in your lobby so as not to disturb the meeting if anybody has any questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm a lifelong resident, born and raised in Vacaville on Lower Cowan. My reason for being here this evening is to request to have on a future agenda the city's policy as it relates to the city's warming and cooling centers. It was brought to my attention that the city has a standardized operation guideline that is in draft form, but
but nothing official. I tried to locate an official policy, but was unsuccessful. I did find a press release dated December 12, 2016. Being a retired state employee, I know firsthand that the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation has in place a policy, which is called the Heat Contingency Plan, which states, when outdoors temp temperatures reach 90 degrees, the inmates are to be offered increased access to water, access to fans, access to portable cooling units, and given ice. Based on conversations that I've had with some of you council members and with the public, it is evident that there is not a complete or clear understanding of such a policy for our homeless in Vacaville. Although my focus is on the homeless of our community, there are other city residents that by having a policy in place for women in cooling centers could benefit our elderly and our children. In closing, it is my hope that we as a community can come together and put such a policy in place and not draft something up, but make it our own for the city of Vacaville. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else liking to speak to the council on business from the floor? work for Epiphany Church cooking and serving the homeless community and also at St. Mary's Church passing out food to the homeless and I drive around every Tuesday with Gail delivering food to the homeless community that can't make it into Epiphany. So as much as I want pickleball to get their own designated courts, many of them in one place and hopefully at Three Oaks, there is a more immediate need, and that is a warming center for the homeless community. Days like today, we're out there in the rain delivering food. Cold. Last Tuesday, if you remember, we had that horrible wind. It was freezing cold. I get out of my car for three minutes. They're freezing. And this is at 1.30 in the afternoon. What is, what's the rest of their day look like? They're going to be sleeping on freezing cold concrete. They're gonna be sleeping on freezing cold dirt under a tree. Even if they get in a wind block, they're still chilled to the bone. These are people that have had a hard life, whether it's from infancy or whether it's from circumstances. But it's not for us to judge. This is our homeless community. I'm a Vacaville resident and we need to take care of them. The least we can do is give them a warming center for days like today. There is a freeze warning in effect for tonight. People will be running out to cover their plants. These are people, these are human beings. They need a warming center. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else wanting to address the council this evening? Seeing none, I'm going to close business. Well, go ahead and come forward. I almost didn't stand up after that <laughs> because I do want to talk about pickleball. <laughs> My name is Linda Panario. I'm a Vacaville resident for the past 23 years. Um, I coach soccer and volunteered in the schools, and now I'm a retired healthcare professional. I have skills and time to support our community, and equally as important, I have some disposable income. I also play pickleball. 
But as strange as that seems to sound to some of you, and frankly, my family, I am one of 8.9 million players in the United States. Pickleball is a sport that has had an increase in players of 85.7% in the last year, and it has, a, a, in the past three years, 158.5% in players. And that's reported by the 2023 Sports and Fitness Industry Association. Over the next year or so, I will be deciding where I want to put down roots in my retirement. Vacaville is a contender, but places to play pickleball is also high on my list of requirements. Did you know that many people have joined us on the courts and told us that they really like Vacaville as a place to retire and to live in retirement, but the fact that it doesn't support pickleball with facilities has weighed in their decision to move elsewhere. Interesting, right? All my life, I have been an athlete of one kind or another. Soccer for the first 48 years was very involved in the soccer program here. Um, and, and finally settled on pickleball for the last half or more of my life, I hope. I hope you can see that I am not special, but that I am part of something new, that I hope Vacaville does not miss out on supporting and creating space for people who want to be healthy and play whether they are eight or 80, and pickleball does that. Thank you. Anyone else? All right, well seeing none, I'm gonna close public, this uh, public portion of the meeting this evening. And we're gonna move on to our public hearings, Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council. This first item before you is a resolution with a variety of different actions um, requested tonight related to our downtown Vacaville Business Improvement District. Tim Padden, our Economic Development Manager, is here to introduce the topic. And then I think he'll be joined by uh, our new Executive Director from the downtown bid, uh, Mr. Taylor McDonald. So with that, I'll turn it over to Tim. Again, thank you, Mr. City Manager. Good evening, Mayor, Vice Mayor, Council Members. Tonight, the City Council is being asked to consider a resolution confirming the annual levy and collection of assessments within the Downtown Vacaville Business Improvement District for 2023. Approve the annual district plan, authorize the City Manager to execute the management agreement and a fee for service between the City and Downtown Vacaville in the amount of $75,000 and approve a one-time budget augmentation in the amount of $20,000. This is a new day for the bid. In April 2022, the city allocated resources towards a recruitment of a new executive director. After a nationwide recruitment in seven months, we ended up with Taylor McDonald, and we're excited to have him on board. Uh, additionally, the city has provided uh, financial resources to several downtown projects in the past year, unlike any other year in the 23-year existence of the bid. Due to limited financial resources through a lack of events caused by COVID-19 over the last three years, and additional responsibilities uh, that the city has placed on the bid, an increase for fee for services needed to provide adequate bid services from $55,000 to $75,000. Over the next few months, city departments will meet with downtown Vacaville staff to fine tune a more comprehensive plan between the city and downtown Vacaville, which will be brought back to city council in July. At the July meeting, it is anticipated that an additional $75,000 will be requested to carry out their list of activities and action items with a staff level and city contribution that is consistent with most contributions to a bid in California. This will also allow the new executive director, Taylor, 
to assess organizational needs as he's only seven weeks into the role. At this point, I'd like to turn it over to Mr. McDonald, who is going to be joined with uh, Downtown Vacaville Board of, Pres Board of Directors President Matt Tainton, who will present the 2000 District 3 or 2023 District Plan at this time. Hello, members of the City Council, Mayor Carley. My name is Matt Tayton, and uh, I am the new president of the downtown Vacaville Business Improvement District. And uh, I am also uh, the owner of the Tweed Hut Music Store, which is located at 359 Merchant Street here in Vacaville. I moved my business to downtown Vacaville in 2013. It's been about 10 years, and I've been a Vacaville business for 19 years. And um, over the last two years, uh, since the uh, COVID pandemic, I've uh, sold over 2,200 guitars. I've done over $3 million in business. Um, business can be done in downtown Vacaville. It's a place that uh, you can be successful in, but I think it needs help. And that's why I'm here. That's why I've gotten involved with this uh, association. Uh, I tell you this because I am a stakeholder in downtown. And we have a new uh, revitalized board of directors that are all stakeholders as well. And it's very important to them, along with our 450 um, plus businesses that we represent, that we create an environment that allows business to prosper even more than it is right now. Um, we are not the same business as usual organization. We have spent the last 60 days restructuring and reorganizing the organization. Um, I know I'm short on time and I need to give Taylor some time to speak about what we need, what we've come here for tonight, but I would like to say just a couple of things. Um, we've already, um, in just the, the short time that we've had this year, we have, um, we have sent three of our members to uh, California Main Street uh, training so that we could better align ourselves with the downtown specific plan and understand how Main Street America works. So we want to be in alignment with the city. And we want to help with the downtown specific plan. Um, we have created a properties owner uh, engagement committee, which we have almost fully staffed. Um, our chair is uh, Greg Scholes, who owns Fire Gallery of Fireplaces, which is right on the corner of Merchant Street and uh, Mason. You probably recognize there's like a house right there. That one. Now it's where he sells fireplaces. Uh, we also have uh, Glenn Beto is on the committee, and he's a retired uh, mortgage uh, financial institution professional. And we have Solano Mortgage Management. I'm probably confusing that name. Solano Property, property Management, yeah, sorry, uh, has also joined the committee. So we have some real professionals on there uh, to help us engage with property owners in downtown area. Um, the last thing I'd like to tell you about, uh, we have uh, we've, we've held our first event for the year, which was the Vacaville Love Stroll. And uh, in comparison, uh, we worked really hard on this. We uh, last year's uh, event uh, revenues were twenty six hundred dollars, and this year we reached seventy six hundred dollars and tripled participation. And it wasn't luck; it was hard work. It was uh, cooperation. It was teamwork, and we have a great crew of people that are participating and working really hard to. Uh, 
turn downtown into the type of downtown that I think the city of Vacaville would really like to see. Um, so uh, if I can just say one more thing here, on behalf of the downtown business district and the board of directors, and more importantly, the 450 businesses that we represent, their families, their employees, um, I wanna thank you for your investment and your encouragement um, in the search and the recruitment for Taylor McDonald, our new executive director. And I'd like to turn the podium over to Taylor now. Thank you, thank you for your time. Hello everyone, nice seeing you all. I've met uh, most of you. Um, I haven't met some of you yet, but I would like to. Uh, personally, thank you for the investment that you've made to bring me here. Obviously I wouldn't be here without your support. So th thank you all for that. And uh, I know that we're, we're known for community events and beer sales, so I would like to change that and make it more, uh, obviously working more with the community uh, services and, and programs that uh, help uplift uh, downtown Vacaville more than just community events and, and beer sales. So that's why I'm here as well. So let's get started. A little introduction about me, obviously. So I have uh, about seven years experience in a small, small business, a small farm business in San Diego. Uh, worked at a lot of farmers markets in San Diego. I'm not gonna do that here, but uh, we are still gonna continue our small business, more online and classes, teaching it. But I do have a lot of experience with small business, obviously. I have experience uh, with a business association and working with business associations. So I worked with uh, North Park Main Street in San Diego uh, and does Main Street, but it wasn't really a Main Street program, um, but does Main Street. So I just wanted to point that out. But uh, uh, it was interesting working with them. It was right when COVID hit. So I helped a lot with setting up uh, parklets, which was an interesting thing to try to get people, businesses to invest in something when you're obviously not investing in anything. So. And a lot of uh, research, master's level research about business associations across California. If it's bids, P-bids, CBDs, uh, community benefit districts, et cetera, just business associations in general that don't even have uh, city funding. So a lot of interesting work that I've researched to see uh, how you can be successful uh, as, as an organization, what really makes it makes it work. And the goal of it was just basically finding key tools and elements to, to be a successful organization. Um, and I found that uh, it's more than just businesses, obviously a, a bid, it's a business-based. So working with businesses and property owners, and the city. Uh, I think all three is, is essential to make a uh, organization work that you really want to uplift a community, downtown, Main Street kind of a situation. I also have experience with neighborhood associations and this one, it's a nonprofit, uh, City Heights Town Council. I was the chair for five, six years, uh, working with one of the most diverse communities in the, the country, over uh, 28 languages spoken, uh, very, very unique community and it was, uh, Challenging, fun, rewarding, and uh, really interesting trying to get more community involved when uh, oftentimes they're disengaged and uh, don't trust uh, government in particular uh, to get involved. So interesting experience working there for five, six years. Other experiences just round out uh, who I am as a person, works in social services, real estate, customer service sales. Oftentimes people say, oh, you're, you're new to Vacaville come from far away, San Diego. Yeah, I, I've been in San Diego the last 20 years, but uh, it's kind of a homecoming for me. I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up in San Francisco, Marin, Oakland. Uh, so I went to high school in Oakland. 
Uh, so Bay Area is, is uh, it's kind of a homecoming for me to be, be around here. I have family in Danville, niece, nephews. So I feel like it's a homecoming, not, not coming from far away and, and not being from around here. Uh, granted, I'm not Vacaville, but uh, we made it home. My wife and I, we moved here. So we're committed to Vacaville now. This is our office, Parker Street, downtown, cleaning up, uh, trying to make it more presentable, welcoming the people to come in. This is uh, obviously the bid map. I'm sure you've, you've seen this over the years many times. That's the, the zone A, zone B, if you're curious what that differences are. And this is the downtown specific plan uh, map for, for obviously downtown. They're similar, close, but, but not quite the same. So often confused of uh, which maps what, and that kind of shows that they're, they're very, very close, but don't, they're not, not the same. So here's an old slide that kind of interesting of uh, what we did, obviously working with economic development, economic development department, community events, obviously the beer sales I was talking about, marketing and promotion. Uh, oftentimes it was marketing and promotion of the events and tourism and promotion, obviously the big four with uh, Visit Vacaville. And what we didn't do. We want to change this. Obviously, this is an old slide. So this is a, a new crew, new board, new leadership. So what we were known for, sure, but what we can do, which is important, is obviously doing more maintenance, security uh, even, uh, if it's appropriate, and working with uh, programs for homeless issues, capital improvements, working with different departments with the city, community development in particular, and parking and transportation. Obviously, parking is a contentious issue. So I have a lot of uh, ideas of creatively working with uh, making just more parking available of uh, what, what we have. This is a lot here, but uh, I'll try to dive through it. So our committees, obviously Matt talked about a little bit that uh, we're committed with our committees. Uh, they're, they're filling up quickly. Uh, and so I'm calling this team can do. This is a new one, property owner engagement and participation. This was a request for us to add as one of our committees and I completely support it. Uh, again, one of the, the three keys is property owners and working with the city. So started it and we already have leadership involved with it, which is good. Then clean and safe is another one. It's not, it's new, but it replaced one. So it was the design committee. We just changed it to clean and safe to be more specific about What's design? It's kind of unclear. Clean and safe. It, it seems more make make more sense, and uh, we'll go over it more and more as we move along in the process over this year. So those are the committees. As we've alluded to, the Main Street American Four Four, four Point Process uh, Four Point Approach. Uh, this just shows that we're we're already working on it. We're doing it. We already have organization. That's one of the the four. Economic vitality, another one of the four. Clean and safe, it was design, which is part of the four, now it's clean and safe. Motion, so we're already working on it. Uh, we obviously just need to make more of an impact with it. And we did go to the California Main Street Conference in Oceanside, uh, that's step one. Step two is actually signing up for the, the program to become accredited again as a Main Street organization. And that'll help with these guidelines as well to become more of a community transformation for downtown. 
So here's some ideas, basically, of what, uh, what we're thinking of working on with the, the fee-for-service. And that is small. Okay, so uh, we talked with Public Works about the, the power washing of the sidewalks. Uh, my understanding is that the city does it twice a year, so I offered to do it at least once more. Uh, source an artist and uh, find a wall to do at least one, one mural this year to add some art and hopefully a graffiti abatement at the same time. Plant new, new flowers in uh, flower pots that are already there or add some if, if needs be, uh, depending on what business is, where they want them. Then a, a fun one, you see the, the red stamped brick sidewalks that uh, they look faded and uh, old. It's an old town, so it kind of fits with that, but I would like to, to see if we can paint it, give it a fresh coat of paint, make it look nice and clean again. Simple, easy way to update our, our downtown district. And then message boards. One of the key things uh, just for directory for, for anything is having a directory and uh, taking more control over that at Eladis Bridge, Town Square, and uh, digitally at, as well at our office to provide information about, yes, events, sure, but more than that, obviously community events, business promotions, business events, uh, other events that we're not even tied to as long as it's downtown beneficial. And kind of going over what uh, Tim has already said and Matt as well, it's an incremental approach. Uh, again, I'm new here, but uh, I do have a lot of ideas and I have uh, got my boots on the ground. I have been working hard the last two months, uh, maybe a little too hard, but uh, I'm trying to make it work and I really want to uh, have a successful first year and, and grow from there. So that's the, the idea. So yeah, again, just ready to work. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. At this time, any any comments or questions from the council directed to the presentation? Being none, I'm going to open it up to a public comment. Thank you. I own uh, Rainey's Furniture over here on East Monta Vista. We are on the outskirts of what we call the DVBID. Um, we would like to benefit more from the whole downtown vibe that we got going on here in Vacaville. Oh, I apologize. I'm a busy girl, sorry. Um, anyway, but what, what Taylor's doing and what Matt's doing and what our board is doing is we're trying to revive our downtown. I feel like in the last few years, maybe more than that, um, we've lost the focus that the downtown is our heart of our city. Um, we've spread out, you know, we've got the nut tree, we've got other things going on, but your main business owners who live here, who work here, who have kids here, who pay taxes here, who vote here, they all own businesses here in the downtown. So this, this group here, we've got a few of us here tonight. We're all wearing these blue caps. We want you to know that we're here. We're here to stay. We want to invest in this town, but we just need a little help. So that's what I'm here to tell you. <laughs> but thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you. What else? 
seeing none, I'm going to close public comment, bring it back to the council. I see council member Roberts. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, appreciate the presentation. Welcome, Taylor, and all the new board members that are going on with the bid right now. I did have a question for Taylor. I know you have, probably have a lot of grand plans coming in for the bid, and I know the fee-for-service that you have on here is, or that's in the staff report, 75000 but I did see another request in there, another amount for 150000 do you feel that the seventy-five thousand is enough at this point to get you going on what you need to start doing? Yes and no. Um, obviously, being new here, got to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, it is an increase from from last year and from years past. Uh, but it's new board, new team, new vision. We're really obviously trying to change what we're what we're known for, what we have been doing. I hate saying that. Someone, uh, saying the uh, beer sales again, but uh, that's obviously one of the visual things that we are known for. Uh, so in, in order to do that and provide a lot of the programs and services that the city has asked us to do, that's that's part of it, uh, is asking for, for more fee-for-service to, to do that. And those programs are business engagement, which is bid fees, so we can use that. Property uh, engagement, which is not bid fees, which would be fee-for-service. Uh, and then the clean and save program, which is a lot of beautification, which I went over some of that. So it'd be a lot of that, but more of it. And then some other programs uh, and getting that started really. And then working with city staff to make it more of a robust plan of what we can do towards the end of this year and next year and inc incrementally grow from there. Uh, so it's a, a building block uh, in order to really build a good foundation. Yeah, we, we need some help. Um, we can we can do, do well uh, with what what's being uh, presented, uh, but obviously uh, more would be more beneficial and easier for us to build a stronger building block. One example for that is uh, the farmer's market. The farmer's market has struggled over the last few years uh, for various reasons. And having some experience with farmer's markets, I really wanna make it a, a good farmer's market, uh, change it to all year and have an incubator uh, entrepreneurship program with it to try to bring in businesses that are just starting or help businesses that are already there grow out of there into a brick and mortar place, ideally downtown, but somewhere else in Vacaville, sure, as well. So different programs like that, you need to really build it with some, some funding to get it started. So in January, we were talking about a larger, larger amount, sure, and uh, it was discussed. And uh, yeah, we were surprised with a, a lower ask this time. I completely get it with a fiscal year and the challenges that we have for six months or less than six months until the fiscal year uh, starts again. Um, so the 75 and the, and the 150, it was kind of more of a 75 now. And then if, if it's fiscal year asking for 150 for the fiscal year, so that we're not again here in January saying, all right, where, where's the rest of the money for the year for us? Cause we're not on a fiscal year. Uh, so that's the, the ask as well, just obviously being smart about it. So that's kind of where we're at of, uh, what, what we want, we want to ask appropriately, but we also want to ask to make a difference uh, and really show that it is a new new time for downtown Vacuville and that we want to really make a difference and, and show not just you guys, but the, the businesses, the property owners and the community that we're, it's a change. Something's happening here that's different than it was before. Yeah, thank you, I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> well, I can't speak for the other council members. I know in the past, a lot of us have fully supported the businesses downtown and Personally, I think it should be a little bit higher. I know there is a fiscal year because budget's already set, so we can't go all the way up to that 150 mid-cycle. 
Um, but the thing I'm concerned about is like, because of the fiscal year, even if you do come back, uh, will that be enough time to support the stuff going on for like 4th of July and Creek Walk? Because I know a lot of the stuff has to be planned well in advance and probably paid for before then. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I do feel like it should be a little bit more. Uh, and then also with that, uh, going back to the businesses, it is your guys' business um, and properties as well. And I do think there needs to be some adjustment there as well. I know business owners don't like increasing fees or anything like that, but I mean, the fees haven't been increased in what, 24 years now? And could you sell products or your services that you have now with 1999 prices? You probably wouldn't be able to survive provide the same level of service um so yeah we as we do increase these i do hope that the business owners would be on board of helping themselves out as well with increasing that crazy amount but enough just to make sure you guys get the services that you need because i mean it doesn't drive business it's like an investment to your business i know previous bids haven't done uh, a lot of the service aspect of it or it's been primarily events but hopefully with the new guidance and the new team that you'll be able to beautify downtown and drive more business there as well. So my thoughts on that. Thank you. Uh, Council member Stockton. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Thank you for your enthusiasm for everyone that showed up today wearing the blue hats and and thank you for what you're doing for our town it's it doesn't go unnoticed that you are fighting for the soul of our community especially the business community downtown and we all want to have a beautiful downtown but it just seems frustrating um i have hope now that you know that, that you've got everybody together and you have a vision that looks absolutely fantastic so um, i'm very excited to, to hear this but one of the things that is troubling for me is you know, we hear from you, you know, a couple times a year, we go downtown and we might see some of you, but I think it's really important if we want to see a change downtown that we improve our communication. Uh, we have three by threes with the school district. We have them with other uh, on homelessness uh, where we meet um, every couple weeks or monthly, depending upon what it is. I would really be interested in maybe working with staff and setting up an opportunity for two or three council members to meet with you and, a, and a, you know, a couple of the folks in your board, or it can rotate for you, something so that we can maintain that communication so that our policies can help you with your vision, because it's, we're, we're, it's missing. Um, and we want, all want it to be there, but how we get there, I think, is really going to take a collaborative effort. Um, I, I don't disagree with Council Member Roberts that um, you know we should look at um, the funding that you are going to need to really make the impact that I think we all want to see downtown. Um, but are your meet like are your meetings open for us to attend? When are they? Um, can you can you give me some of that information? And would you be interested in potentially a um, like a two by two or a three by three with council members or planning commissioners or somebody to help us actually get some? Yes, absolutely. I absolutely want to meet with with you, with 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 all of you, and, and open communication for sure. Uh, yes, my my big thing is transparency. Uh, our meetings are open. Uh, yes, and we have uh, an executive board meeting and uh, advisory board with the city staff present, and uh, our our general board meetings. And I'll definitely send invites out to make sure that uh, you're informed of it uh, through city staff. 
Uh, that way you are always informed of what, what meetings we have. That way you can attend and um, give give feedback from, from your side as well. I don't want to see you once a year <laughs> uh, presenting about what we did or didn't do. I, I want to obviously work with you and have your, your input as well. I, I, ever since I started, uh, granted almost two months now, it's not too long, but I said it's it's not about me. It's uh, it's about about we. It's a uh, us plan of making this work, and you're obviously a key key cog in the system making it work. So so yes. And I'll, and I'll just comment on that. Um, I tried to attempt um, to come to your last meeting, but somehow it changed on the calendar. And it is. It's an open meeting. It's it's not a formalized one. So I think we just have to be cautious that we don't um, we don't jeopardize us as a body to attend, but certainly it's something that I know that you working with staff in the community, a lot of people who feel strongly about downtown. So uh, with that, I want to, uh, Council Member Silva. Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks for the presentation. Welcome to Vacaville again. Um, and uh, thanks for everybody, you know, for showing up. Um, I think, uh, you know, so it took about, I can't remember, maybe about a year uh, to fill this role. Um, kind of what's echoed by my fellow council members uh, along the same lines. Um, interesting suggestion about a, a three by three. I, I think uh, I did have a conversation with the city manager on uh, finding ways that we can better communicate, uh, put out information of what we've, what we've actually already invested in um, as far as uh, what city councils approve, what the city's invested in, um, things that are in the works, things that, uh, you know, that are pending things that we're working towards. Um, I think there's there's always been a lot of challenges with a lot of different dynamics downtown. And I think the sooner that we can get on the same page uh, and have a, a better understanding of where we're at, um, not losing things and, you know, uh, making sure everybody's on the, uh, understanding where uh, folks are coming from is, uh, you know, with respect to Brown Act and whatnot. Um, I think that, uh, I think that would be key. Uh, I think just in general, a lot of folks in Vacaville are uh, eager to see progress, um, eager to see tangible outcomes, not just uh, perhaps with our downtown, but in uh, multiple different areas throughout our city. And uh, I think that's something that I, I need everybody honestly to be clear about. That's what's expected of us as council members. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, I like the suggestion. Um, you know, I've already committed to uh, making sure I can attend the ones that I can attend. Uh, and the, the first year round, I was able to do that schedule. Sometimes it doesn't work out for me, uh, in my work schedule. But um, so, like for for me, I, I think we we support the request to keep you all going. Um, and then we uh, it didn't sound, I didn't hear like any tangible requests still. Um, so uh, you know that you know as those come up, you know I, personally, I I, I want to hear them. Um, I think it should be something that council ultimately decides. Uh, you know, obviously, I was explaining uh, with them uh, uh, from a separate meeting that, uh, you know, we have a lot of things moving on, moving around in the city. So it's it's not just we can't always we don't have the, the luxury of just focusing on one area of the town and how we invest, but um, ultimately how we uh, how we move forward. Uh, I'm hoping it, we get some stuff done sooner than later. Um, and I know we I just want to clarify we have invested in downtown like we have lighting. Um, you know, we have the, the controversial parking meters. Um, uh, there's a lot of <clears throat> different, you know, opinions, but there's, you know, not going to go into that today. But, um, you know, so there's different ways that we're trying to increase. And I absolutely want to make sure that you're set up to succeed uh, and bring in the perspective that you have. Uh, I want to comment. Um, you were, you know, you're saying oh, I'm not from back. You know, kind of like kind of repeated that you're not from back. It's OK. 
uh, welcome. <laughs> all right. Um, and I think it's valuable for all of us to be able to get outside our, our city and see what works in other places, what doesn't work. And that's an invaluable experience and perspective that we can bring back. Sometimes, you know, maybe those things uh, will work here, maybe they wouldn't. But, um, you know, I'm all about creativity and leading to the innovation. So that's my comments. Thank you. Mr. City Manager, do you have a comment? Yeah, I just want to remind the, the council, and I appreciate the comments, um, that part of the, the package before you tonight that hasn't uh, really had an opportunity to get vetted much tonight is the, the fact that as part of the resolution, not only are you moving forward with the assessments, the levying of assessments, but you're also approving a management agreement which details the, the key deal points, if you will, the relationship between the city and the downtown bid. But it also includes the district plan, which is you know kind of summarized before you tonight in terms of some of the highlights. But that's where, um, unfortunately, last year because of you know the transition that it experienced, we didn't and and the pandemic, your last few you know district plans have not been as robust as you know we all would have hoped on both sides. This one is just getting started, and so when you talk about you know we'd like to see this, we'd like to see that. You know, how do we work with you and, and what is the service deliveries? What's the scope of services? That's what the plan's for. And and so that's what we're suggesting in our recommendation tonight is, is that, you know, Taylor, I've met with him a couple of times. He's out there running and full speed ahead. But we also see that there's an opportunity here to sit down with, you know, the board because I've yet to have a chance to meet with uh, Matt and, and the rest of the team um, and, and get on the same page as to what those service deliveries are. And so that's where you can actually put those items in there in the district plan. And so what you know, Tim has pointed out to you is, is our suggestion tonight is, is that you know, increase the budget right now so that we can move forward with getting them going. Uh, we understand the importance. We're thrilled that he's here with his experience and everything. We're thrilled uh, with the new board and all and the direction, the commitment to the cause. But in those next few months, we can work on some of those more specific details so that we can bring that back to council so that what we understand is your vision and what their purpose for is all in the same document and we can all move forward with that going forward and put an additional investment behind that because now it's in there and detailed for everyone to see. So I just want to you know, remind everybody that the district plan and the management agreement are those other key pieces to what you have in, in front of you as part of going forward. The other piece, just as a quick reminder, is, is that at the end of the year, so, you know, the, you, it was mentioned about the, 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 the calendar year and the fiscal year budget. Well, so we're here today because um, the ordinance that created the bid originally in 1999 says that those levies must be in effect by March 1. And so that kind of dictates the timing of why we're here today. So that predicates we have the management agreement, the district plan, et cetera. We also have typically received an annual or a year-end report from the bid and so that typically will come in in October, November to say, okay, here's what we set out to accomplish in February. Here's our scorecard. How do we do? And so then that plays right into the following year coming in in February and saying, all right, this is how we did. This is what we need more to go to that next level. Council, we need your help. This is the things that we're doing. And so the process, you know, rinse, repeat, cycle, et cetera. So there's lots more to be done here, um, and staff is very excited working with, with the group out there, um, but we just recognize that there's still some more dialogue that we believe needs to happen so that we can give council that you know, uh, firm game plan of what's going forward moving ahead.
Thank you. Thank you, Vice Mayor Weil. Uh, thank you very much for the information tonight. And I haven't had a chance to sit down and meet with you, so hopefully we'll be able to do that in the next couple of weeks. I do know that a lot of people in town are very interested in supporting small business. They're very happy to go to a store that's not a chain store because I hear a lot of, we just have all these chain stores, so we want something else. And I see that quite a few people here are um, in businesses that have been in, in in business for a long time, like the music store and some other stores. So my question is, um, what sort of support do you have for those stores that just are trying to get started and new businesses? Do you have like a mentorship program so that the people that are successful can help the new businesses? And that's my first question. Well, it's it's just me. So oh. uh, I can mentor as best as I can with my small business experience. But besides that, uh, it would be partnering with other organizations like Small Business Development Center, uh, county, and any other workforce development uh, type organizations that we, we can partner with uh, to make it work. So and that's not really part of the bid issues. Bid does a lot of uh, uh, promoting and uh, working with the small business uh, promotion, not necessarily building businesses. Okay. Right? Obviously, I want to change that uh, with, with some help. And, and Vice Mayor Wiley, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, we actually work with the SBDC, as Taylor just mentioned, on kind of mentorship. And there's a organization or actually a subset of the SBDC that focuses on restaurant uh -huh. uh, uh, mentorships. And so that is really uh, very much a small business development center uh, kind of uh, program. But obviously, the bid could be a part of that as well. So like in my district, there's like some home bakeries and things that have businesses out of their house. If they were interested in maybe coming downtown to a space, then they should work with the Small Business Association? That would be the place to start, yes. Okay, okay. And the second question I have is, um, what percent of the businesses downtown participate or belong, or do they all, by default, have to belong? If if they're part of the uh, the business district, uh, the bid, then, they're uh, in th it? then they are in it, yes. Okay. And the different levels, uh, the zones, is what level you're, you're at, and that's... So no one can opt out? Correct, no one can opt out. Okay, all right, thanks. Thank you, Councilmember Chet. Thank you. Um, it was nice meeting you outside <laughs> prior to the meeting. No, um, I haven't uh, had an opportunity to meet you one-on-one. -on -one. However, I wanna thank you very much for the presentation. Uh, in the two months you've been here, it seems as if you've been quite busy. Um, you have a lot of the um, business owners in attendance this evening, and I haven't met probably any of you, but I'm coming, I'm coming. Right now, I'm spending a lot of time meeting uh, internally, meeting the directors of the various departments, and so they can vouch for, they can't, but the manager can't vouch that I have been uh, quite busy. Um, the one thing I wanted to inquire, uh, we're speaking of downtown. How, what is the perimeter of your downtown that? Put the map back up there and maybe describe it better so people understand there's two different zones and um, kind of call out the, the perimeter. We think of downtown mostly when those who come is just Main Street, but it's so much larger than that. Thanks for the question. Asking to see if 
I can get access to GIS so I can actually update the map myself or work with city staff to update it uh, to make it clearer uh, with the street names, et cetera. Uh, it's an old map that's been zoomed out, zoomed back down and out too many times, so it's fuzzy, so it's hard to read. But anyway, on the left, uh, it's right there with the Cernan Street, so it doesn't quite go to okay. doesn't okay. quite go all the way uh, to to Buck um, from Main Street, so it, it stops at Cernan Street. Uh, and then on the on the north there, it's um, Monta Vista for for most of it, but then as uh, Laney's furnishers here showing uh, her support, uh, that's a little blip. Is uh, Laney's furniture and the uh, more than a blip, really nice blip. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's a little hump, whatever you want to call it, on the top there, um, and um, a future office space, and I guess the old CVS uh, that was there. Uh, and then to the right there goes all the way to, to Depot Street, and that's where the CVS is now on the other side. So not quite there. And then on the north side there, there's uh, Lucky. So that's not part of it, but you can kind of get the idea of where it, where it is and isn't. Uh, and then south is the, the freeway. So uh, the movie theater, Brendan Theater, is part of it. Uh, and then it kind of zigs back, back up by Merchant and stuff. So uh, City Hall is not part of it. Um, across the street, they're not part of it. Uh, Pietro's first thing after going over there was like, how can we join? Uh, so there, there is discussion on, on some businesses of, of how they could be a part of it. And there's ways of doing it as well. But that's the map uh, right there. You can obviously see Merchant Street and. So you come down <laughs> um, Merchant. And so this portion where the city hall, let's say from, um, what's the street right before um, city hall? This is Walnut. Who? Walnut. Leverage Lane on this side. Oh, well, okay. Um, the family-owned restaurant across the street. Come on, yes, Pietro's. Yes. Pietro's, yeah, we're yes. just there. Are they in the... In They're the... not. That's what Pietro's okay, I was talking about. So... So Pietro's number two is not. Pietro's number one is um, differentiation. Okay. Intersection. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I think... Um, it's, it's helpful to know uh, what business are included in the improvement district. Um, have have you had many calls from others wanting to get involved, be included in the district? I and could, then how do you say no to them? Uh, great question, Councilwoman Chapman. Um, the city has actually talked to the bid for several years about uh, expanding. The, the bid boundary and making it larger than what you currently see on the map. Um, obviously, when I first got here, uh, COVID happened and everything else went on the back burner. And obviously in the past year, we've had a lot of transition, but that is something that we would like to probably re revisit with the bid is expanding bid boundaries, looking at the uh, assessment fees, which have been the same for the entire 23 year existence of the bid. Uh, and in terms of just generating additional revenue and getting more businesses involved as part of a, a business improvement district and explore the opportunity of perhaps looking at a property business improvement district, a PBID, which is really focused on property and business owners as opposed to just business owners. And I noticed uh, it's, it's primarily about downtown wanting to keep that, uh, you know, beautify it and keep it live, you know, vivid. Uh, Yet, and I have to put this yet out there, we have other small business owners 
that could benefit from support from the city. So how would we, and that's something we can talk about later. Uh, how uh, is it about uh, creating additional um, improvement districts? Or are we only focusing on downtown improvement districts? Mr. City Manager, maybe you can answer some of these questions. Yes. So I'll, I'll take a shot at it. So with regards to small business assistance, um, outside the boundaries of the bid. So right now we're focusing on the boundaries downtown because the, the main element of t this particular action tonight is levy, you know, approving the levy assessments within the boundaries of the bid that was established back in 1999. So in terms of the, the, the businesses within that district, that's established by that district that was created back then, okay? If there's a, a desire to do that elsewhere, we could explore that, but generally, in terms of assistance, you know, we, we um, the council uh, put uh, ARPA funds to use for all small businesses, not just downtown, but citywide, okay? Um, and then additionally, the resources that, you know, you heard Tim mention that are available to those small businesses downtown, they're also available to citywide businesses. The chamber is actively working, in, you know, with those businesses as well. So it's not that they're, they're you know, separate and lost, it's just in a different location. But I will say that the, you know, the, one of our speakers earlier today said that don't forget that downtown is the heart of, of your city. Well, we recognize that. And that's why the council uh, approved and authorized us moving forward with the downtown specific plan and investing not only um, in, in that manner financially in, in building a long range plan for downtown, but you know, we have invested in uh, new infrastructure. Uh, we're partnering with a private developer for our property down there, what used to be the East Project, now 700 Main. Um, so you'll see new investment down there because we do recognize the importance of maintaining and preserving, expanding and growing downtown because it really is the jewel of, of our community. And that's where why you see, still see all the events down there as well. Um, could there be other opportunities for some of those events? Possibly but it's that old traditional charm um, that keeps them down there. And that's why we're continuing to put proposals in front of the council to continue to support investing in our downtown. Thank you. I wasn't gonna talk, I own School Rock, but I did get sent to Oceanside and I learned something. At the Main Street America, uh, or Main Street California Conference, you asked, both asked about small businesses, and I'm a small business that started, you know, three years ago this month. There is huge opportunity when you grow your downtown to support small businesses. People who are doing businesses out of their home, for instance, they're called incubators is what I've learned. You, you can bring them in to be at a farmer's market or maybe in an empty space downtown that nobody's using. And they grow their business and then the next thing you know, they own their own, you know, they're, they're renting their own space and they're having a business. So I, that's one point that I, I've learned on this trip and I don't want to discount the fact that growing our downtown can really support small businesses, businesses out of your home, people that are doing things on a, in a small way can actually grow when, when we do more downtown. Yeah. Well, it's okay. It's okay. But I mean, we understand sure. this, and we're getting off track here. And so, we're all going to move in. You know, right. want to encourage businesses to move into that right. field. It's better for all in one space. That's so, that's right. And sorry, so, this I is for a larger that. discussion. But yeah. appreciate the enthusiasm. <laughs> Trust me. I, I just have one comment about about this. 
Yes. I'm not here to ask to widen the, the bid. Uh, I got to work on some in incremental stuff first, right. uh, improve, start the building blocks, get it going first, show the business community, show the property owner community, show the city, show the community as a whole that we're doing stuff. And then we can ask if they want to be a part of it. But yes, yeah, so your, your question, I have Pietro's, that was one, uh, the, the museum on Buck, that was another one. Both of them want to join the bid. So there are some, uh, we just kind of do some stuff first. Gotcha. And then PBID, no, uh, I'm a proponent for PBIDs, but you got it, same thing. You got to get there and you have to have property owners wanting to do that. And so you have to get some small wins first and then some bigger wins and then have a discussion, ask them what they want to do. And if they then maybe they want to talk about it, then we can converse about it and see if it's appropriate for property owner based bid. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Richie. Thanks so much. Um, I haven't met you yet. Hopefully my voice can make it through everything. Um, just seeing the excitement in the crowd and uh, fellow small business owners and really the council, everyone from the council, the mayor, we, we've all spent a lot of time passionate in the city. Our mayor spent a lot of time serving the city and has a very good view of the city. Um, we're all, we're, we're all, we all care. And I think just the fact that the emotions, the energy we see in the crowd, if you guys didn't believe in Mr. McDonald, you guys wouldn't have came down. And I think it all works together. And I think I love the questions from from Councilman Chapman about where where does it start, where does it end? Because that's a big part of it. We got to really focus. We have one by the apple here. Um, when we look at the downtown, the, the bid, making sure the bid is absolutely successful. Yeah, it's outdated. I mean, it, it needs to get updated. We need to put our money where our mouth is and invest in the community that's going to serve us, serve the community and help us all grow together. But if we don't have a absolutely dynamite downtown, we're not gonna have a successful downtown specific plan. If the downtown plan doesn't work, we're not gonna attract the multi-billion dollar companies to come to biotech. If that, if we don't start here, the much, the, it, it grows. If we ruin it and we screw it up, they're not gonna come. They're not gonna bring a billion dollar company to a place where they don't wanna live. They don't find fun or enjoyment. So we need to make sure we get it right here, that the downtown grows. Like we're gonna book in the city of downtown. The 700 project, it's awesome. It, when it comes to fruition, you're gonna see the beautiful school that was rebuilt next to all the amazing homes that Lewis Company's gonna bring. It's gonna bookend down the old Longstrug, Langley. It's gonna come alive. And we need to make sure we, we have the fortitude to see the vision and invest now, because it's gonna happen. And if the big, big businesses have see that we have confidence in ourselves, they'll have confidence to come here. It, it all works together. But if we don't have the confidence to step up and paint sidewalks, why would they bring a billion dollar business to Vacaville? So I think it all works together. So we gotta start now. So I'm excited for the next step. Thank you. Councilmember Roberts. Yeah, um, there's no other comments oh, I was gonna. I haven't made my comments yet. Do you have anything else that you want? I was going to make a motion if there's no further comments. Well, I'll, I'll come to you for the motion. How about that? That'll, that'll work. Uh, uh, thank you for your presentation tonight and all the questions and the obviously the enthusiasm within the audience. Um, look, we love Vacaville. You came here and you will quickly see as you're getting to know everyone. You have a charm here. There's something really special. Um, the program that some of you spoke that you're learning 
the excitement to be behind something and to understand how to have an incubator location and what a place to do it. And as, um, as you came on board, I had the chance to meet you. Uh, I don't remember if it was before or after Merriment on Main. Um, it was after. But for those who have come here and they, they see what Vacaville brings, and then they attend some of what our downtown can bring, they, they love coming here. It has all the elements to be what you would want in that centerpiece of a community we call Vacaville. At the same time, one of the things that I encourage you to do is, is to really get to know the community, get to know the downtown, the businesses, and really understand the issue. On top of that, you've already begun to recruit to make sure that the team is aligned. And that's where we really need to be as a, as a city. And uh, the hope is, and hope is not the strategy, but the hope is, is that, that this is a moment where with your stepping into a leadership role and the businesses and the energy of the business owners and also the future of potential property owners, the first step is let's have these wins. We know that we have a budget process cycle. Uh, the, the goal really tonight is, is we have to step into this with the, the, the levy process so those uh, revenues can be generated to support it. At the same time, looking at this, it does allow for the increase right now. It allows us also to evaluate what this looks like in the months ahead. We, I think we, um, and I'm not speaking for everyone, but I would assume that if, if everyone were to comment on this, is we all want to see downtown successful which means we all want to see you successful and you want that and we want it. So we all want the same thing. I often have said, and many of us are aware of this, we don't want to have to leave Vacaville to have the experience that we go elsewhere. And I won't name the towns. So those of us who do patronize downtown and the businesses are in this together and we want this to be successful and we're excited that you're part of it. And so I just want to say thank you. And with that, we are going to have to entertain a motion, but it's a complicated motion. So, Jason, are you prepared to provide that, or can we get some assistance from staff? You're on the spot. And I see our city attorney. I just wanted to point out that all the actions that are recommended by uh, staff are included in the resolution. So if you just wanted to adopt the resolution, it would adopt all those recommendations that are listed uh, two through six in your staff report. Yeah, I mean, it's, you can just you you can adopt them by number. You don't have to name them all off. Yeah, it's fairly <laughs> just straightforward. We've done this before. Uh, I make a motion to adopt the resolution as presented by the staff. I do see that there is um, Councilmember Stockton. Hold on one second. I didn't see your light. You want to comment? Uh, I just wanted to <clears throat> see if I could offer a friendly amendment before we get a second to this to add a three by three with the council with the bid to make sure that we have the community that we have the communication that to know whether or not they're going to need more assistance or if we need to help so i would like to add that to the existing awesome so uh, from our city attorney would you like to comment on that? I, I would just caution that we may want to bring that back to um, consider the Brown Act implications of forming that committee in this matter, in this manner. 
So is this something that we can bring back in a discussion from staff and then bring that as an idea? I understand where you're coming from. Wanting back, to make bring, sure. Bring back when? At the end of fiscal, in a month, in a week? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, we can bring it to your uh, priority priorities. setting session. So how about we do that? Bring it up as a topic of discussion during our priorities. When is that expected to happen? What is on your calendar for March 17th. Perfect. Just wanted to make sure. That's it. So does and, that work? and by the way, Laney's is the tip of the spear for the downtown. Okay? <laughs> Just saying. All right. So we have a motion. Do we have a second? All right. Councilmember Silva is the second. All in favor say aye. 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 The ayes have it. Any opposed? None. It passes. Thank you very much. Thanks for the presentation. And with that, um, I see that the public hearing 9B has been continued to a date uh, to be determined. So we will move on to business from the floor. Item number 9A, Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council. This next uh, business item for you tonight is an update on the pension and other post-employment benefits. Uh, our Director of Finance, Ken Matsumia, and our HR Director, Jessica Bose, and uh, uh, guest consultant are here to make a presentation for the update for you tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. City Manager. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Vice Mayor, members of the Council. As the City Manager mentioned tonight, um, along with our OPEB actuary, Eric Goodhart, and our HR Director, Jessica Bose, we're here to provide an update on our unfunded liabilities for pension and OPEB. So to start, just to go over some terms that uh, you would see in the valuation reports that were attached to the staff report and some of the terms that we're going to be referring to this evening. Very first one is the, the valuation date, and what that refers to is the as of date the actual valuation is completed. The next three terms um, we use when we're talking about how to measure our funding progress, so the actual liability, it's the present value of promised benefits earned as, as of the valuation date. The assets are the value of assets set aside to fund the obligations, and then the unfunded actual liability is the difference between the actual liability and the assets as of the valuation date. The next two terms um, are used when we discuss how much we need to fund each year. So that's the normal cost, and then more importantly, the ADC, which is the, the sum of the normal cost, the amount necessary to amortize the UAL. The previous slide had a lot of words to it. Um, this is kind of how those terminologies relate visually. And so for the unfunded liability, that is the actual liability minus the funding or the assets that we have set aside to, to pay those obligations. And then the bottom section, and when you take the normal cost and the unfunded, the UAL amortization payment, those two elements equal our ADC, which is, you can think of as our annual mortgage that we need to pay. So we'll be going over these liabilities in more detail as we go through the presentation, but the following charts illustrate the city's total unfunded liability as of the last valuation report. That's the pie chart on the left. And the total unfunded liability based on the most recent reports, which is shown on the right. So as of the last valuation, the city's total unfunded liability was 311 million with about 16% of that or 49 million from OPEB and the remaining amount about 263 million coming from pension. Um, tonight, uh, the most recent valuation reports, which are on that in the pie chart on the right, uh, <clears throat> the total unfunded liability is about $24 million less 
$287 million, and that's primarily due to the drop in our CalPERS pension liability due to investment returns. <clears throat> so to start, uh, we'll be talking about the pension side of the unfunded liabilities. And when we refer to pension, there's two main plans that we're referring to. The first is our CalPERS plan, which is the city's main pension plan. And then there's also our PARS um, supplemental pension plan, which has been closed or was closed for new hires in 2013. So the following slide is a high-level summary of the pension valuation results, comparing the results from the prior valuation, which is the, the chart on the left in blue, to the current valuation on the right. Uh, the primary purpose of these third-party actuarial valuation reports is to determine the ADC. Row on the bottom, and then also our, our, to, mention, to measure our funding progress, which is reflected by the funding ratio row right here. And one of the main things I wanted to highlight on these tables is the valuation date. And so you'll notice that uh, for both PERS and PARS, the dates are different. And so if we're looking at the, the current results that we're presenting this evening, the PERS results are as of June 30th, 2021, whereas PARS is as of this last fiscal year, so June 30th, 2022. And that's important because as we go through this presentation, there's definitely a difference in how investments were formed in 2021 when they were really good, and 2022 when they were not so good. So for um, and so for uh, PERS, those actual valuations are performed um, annually in, by in-house actuaries at CalPERS. Like I mentioned, they are a full year behind, and so our most current valuation is as of 2021. The way that works is that we would get that valuation um, in July of 2022, basically a year later, and then uh, those rates or kind of how much we need to pay, the impact of that would be um, this fiscal year. So there's almost like a two-year lag between when the actual year closes and then when we actually have to, we'll see it reflected in how much we have to pay to CalPERS. And with uh, PARS and also with OPEB, which our actual will be covering later, those valuations are performed by the actual firm Milliman. Um, so these reports, they were being completed biannually, but then we moved <laughs> to, to an annual valuation. That's primarily so that we could get the information a lot more frequently. Um, and so we moved to that annual valuation system. Uh, the data is also a lot fresher with PARS and OPEB. It's as of our last fiscal year, so 2022, whereas with PERS, you are looking at data that is, you know, more than a year plus old. So going through the results uh, for PERS, the unfunded liability, so the UAL, dropped from 223.7 million to 176 million uh, during the year, and uh, the funded status improved from 65% to 74%. I'll cover that uh, as to why that took place in the next slide, but that's kind of the, the key pieces from on the PERS side. And then for PARS, the UAL um, did the opposite. So it increased from 38.8 million in uh, 2021 to 42.5 million in, in 2022. The funded ratio also declined, going from 42% to 37% for PARS. And then in the last row, um, it shows sort of how much we're gonna have to pay in uh, the upcoming fiscal year, so 2024. So for, for PERS, uh, it was at 27.8 in our last valuation. Current valuation has that at 28.7 million. For PARS, it went up about 400,000 for 4.1 million to 4.5. So in each of the actual valuation reports, there is a section that discusses the actual gain or loss between the valuations. So since these valuations are a projection of the future, assumptions are made on how long people will live, when they will retire, salary growth, investment earnings, et cetera. 
And then this section measures the difference between those assumptions and what actually occurred. So an actual loss would result in an increase of the unfunded liability. And then if you have a gain, that would result in a decrease um, to, from what was expected to the unfunded liability. And so as I mentioned, um, kind of two different situations here in, uh, for CalPERS and PARS. So kind of going with CalPERS first on the left, you'll notice that um, kind of working from the top down, we had our investment gains, uh, we had investment gain of 66.7 million. And that primarily has to do with the fact that in 2021, um, CalPERS annually assumes that we're, they're gonna earn 7% on their assets. In 2021, CalPERS earned over 20%. And so the fact that they earned so much more than what the valuation assumes, that results in a gain. And so the gain was 66.7 million in 2021. Um, also, as part of the assumptions, I'd mentioned that outside of investments, they also look at how long people are going to live, sort of their salary increases when they are going to retire, um, so on and so forth. That's kind of referred to as the non-investment component. And so for non-investments, there was also a gain from the demographic experience, the sort of mortality, um, retirements, things of that nature, and salary growth being more favorable. So they were better than what was assumed in the valuation report, and that's why you also see a gain there. And so in total, in 2021 for CalPERS, we saw an actuarial gain of, uh, on the unfunded liability of 68.5 million. And that is why on the previous table, when you look at the unfunded liability in 2020 compared to 21, it went down significantly. That's primarily the reason why is because of the investments. For PARS, as I mentioned earlier, 2022 was a different story on the investment side. And so for PARS, um, the investment loss was greater than what was assumed. And so on the PARS valuations, we assume that the assets are gonna uh, make six and a half percent each year. In the case of PARS um, in 2022, investment returns were a negative 13%. And so because those returns were worse than what was assumed, we had a loss of 5.5 million. Um, as far as the kind of non-investment assumptions, we also had a loss there of about 600,000, primarily due to retirements occurring kind of sooner than assumed. And so in, in total, uh, during 2022 PARS, we had a loss on the unfunded liability of about 6.1 million. And I think for both of these situations, it really highlights the importance of the investments and how that does. Because as you can notice in, in 2021, we had a great year and that's because investments did extremely well. In 2022 um, with PARS, um, you know, we had an a, a actual loss and that's pretty much driven by investments. And that's kind of why investments are so important that PERS and PARS and that they hit their mark with those investment returns. So I did mention that with CalPERS, it is a year behind, um, kind of two year fiscal years behind the data as of 2021. Um, we do have some updated numbers for 2022. They're not quite official yet, but CalPERS back in July had mentioned that their preliminary estimate for what 2022 returns looked like was a negative 6.1%. And then um, towards the fall, although I don't think this has been publicly announced, I know at a conference they had mentioned that they um, kind of revised that number. It looked like they lost probably closer to 7.5%, so 7.4%. Um, because of the timing, like we're not going to have the official valuation that reflects that until July of 2023. And I'd mentioned um, that's not going to impact what we pay until fiscal year 24-25. But um, just to be prudent with our budgeting and our forecasting, what we've done, because CalPERS does have a forecasting tool, is to kind of plug that in and see, well, um, we're hearing that they lost 7.4%. What does that look like to our funded status? And then how much are we going to end up having to pay over the our forecast? And so um, later on this evening, we have a budget item. When we do the five-year forecast, um, we've kind of not only included the three valuation results that we're talking about right now, but also 
an assumption of what 2022 looked like as well. So um, kind of using CalPERS's forecasting tool, this is you know, our projection of um, what the funded status would look like. And so back in 2020, we were at a 65% funded status. In 2021, when we had those really great returns, uh, we jumped up to 74%. And then because the 2022 returns, uh, you know, CalPERS assumes that 7%, they returned a negative 7.4% in all likelihood, we pretty much kind of dropped back down to a 66%. And so that is our projection of sort of how that's gonna play out. Um, and then we'll find out again in, in July. And so um, I'll pass it off to our HR director to talk about the next section. Good evening, Mayor and Council. For o the OPEB section, OPEB stands for other post-employment benefits with other meaning other than pension, which Ken just covered. The city's only OPEB is retiree medical. We have three tiers of retiree medical. Tier one and two are both closed plans, and tier three is our newest plan that was effective in 2018 for non-safety and 2020 for safety employees. The city contracts through CalPERS for all health benefits for active and retirees, and the plan, plan design, and premiums are all determined by internal negotiations between CalPERS and the plans directly. The city has no part in those negotiations. That's all governed by state law called PEMCA, Public Employees Health Care Health Public Employees Medical and Health Care Act. And we like to bring the health rates for each calendar year to council once they are decided by CalPERS. Uh, again, CalPERS makes that determination. The city's cost is based on the Kaiser plan rate for active employees, which we share a split in cost of 85-15. And the 2023 rates uh, have come out, obviously, and are in place right now. They did increase 6.61% over the 2022 rates, and that's about a 3.2% average over the last 10 years. Uh, the rates do cover calendar year, so it does impact half of the budget year. The 2023 rates have been in place um, and will be for the second half of fiscal year 23, and then obviously for the first half of fiscal year 24. The 24 uh, calendar year rates will be out in the spring of 23. So to introduce our actuary from Milliman, Eric Goodhart is our actuary here tonight. He has more than 25 years of actuarial experience. The city has been working with Milliman since 2008 on our valuations, and Eric has been performing those since 2015 for us. He's a speaker at Virginia State, Regional, uh, State and Regional Finance Conferences. And he's here tonight to uh, give you a presentation and answer any questions. Jessica, thank you for your introduction. Mr. City Manager, Mr. Mayor, Ms. Vice Mayor, City Council, thank you for having me. This is my fourth time presenting these results in the city's OPEB plan. The last time I did so was in December of 2021 via Zoom. I believe I went on around 1 a.m. local time in Virginia, so I feel like I'm already six hours ahead of the game. So. I feel pretty good right now compared to December of 21. So back in December 21 when I presented, things were, things looked really good. Like the unfunded liability for the plan was the lowest it had been in quite some time. Assets had done very well for the fiscal year ending June 30, 21. But then 2022 happened. And um, as we can see here on slide 12, we had some changes and all these items tend to tell the same story. Um, Surbit assets, Surbit assets, that's the trust that fund that the city uses to fund OPEB. That balance decreased by about $7 million due to poor investment performance, but 
that's universal. Everywhere, every fund across the country likely, sir, likely experienced losses during fiscal 22. As a result of that performance, the plan's funded ratio decreased from 56 to 44 percent. As a result of that decrease in funded status, you can see that the UAL increased from 48.5 million for fiscal year ending June 30, 21 to 68 million for fiscal year ending 22. And the city's actuarially determined contribution, which Ken discussed a few slides back, increased by $2 million from 7 million to 9 million, primarily because of the amortization component. Funding, you have to pay off that, that increased unfunded liability over a period of years. And because the unfunded liability increased, that amortization component increased and your actually determined contribution increased. So the most recent valuation we completed for the city was of June 30, 22. This was one year after June 30, 21. We've moved to an annual valuation cycle, as Ken mentioned earlier. That allows us to see how things are operating more frequently as opposed to every two years. So what has changed since the last valuation? Well, when we looked at the June 30, 22 census data, it allows us to see how our assumptions, our actual assumptions that go into the valuation are working. We get to see what part of the population turned over, who died, who retired, who left voluntarily, and compare it to the assumptions. And that resulted in a actuarial loss or unfunded liability increase of about $2 million. And to put that in perspective, the city's liability is about $120 million. So I'm not going to lose too much sleep over a loss of $2 million on $120. That's about 1%, a little over between 1% and 2%. Not too bad, all things considered. The health-related assumptions, meaning the claims that we assume that retirees are going to incur, and the rate that those costs increase over time, those assumptions also changed. Those assumptions result in a liability increase of $9 million. Now, with respect to the trend assumption, I'm not talking about what happened between June 30, 21 and June 30, 22. Our healthcare trend assumption addresses what we think healthcare costs are going to do over a long period of time, not just in fiscal 22, but many years, fiscal years into the future. In fact, we have an assumption for every year that the plan will provide a payment. So it's just not what happened in fiscal 22, but it's a long-term assumption. And inflation has hit all sectors of the economy, and healthcare is no exception. So the, health, the new healthcare trend assumption used in the June 30, 22 valuation increased liabilities compared to what we use as a June 30, 21 valuation. We also made a change in the assumption for what proportion of retirees are electing to cover a spouse. For very, maybe some retirees aren't married to begin with, maybe the spouse has coverage through another plan. We have been using 75%, but based on the inspection of retiree data for the past five years, it appeared that that assumption was a little aggressive, that it was, more, it was closer to 65%. So we lowered that assumption by 10%. So we were assuming less retirees that retire in the future will be covering a spouse. So that results in a liability decrease or a liability gain of 2.2 million. Taken all together, these three components result in an actuarial loss of about $9 million, meaning that the actuarial liability, the liability came in about $9 million higher than what we expected. That's only half of the equation. The other half of the equation is how the assets performed. And as Ken discussed with relation to the PARS plan, Fiscal 22 was 
we experience a loss on the assets compared to our six and a half percent rate of return assumption. Now that six and a half percent rate of return assumption is based on the CERBITs, the California Employees Retirement Benefit Trust. They have three asset strategies. The city uses strategy one, which is the most aggressive strategy of the three. We look at the asset allocation according to that strategy and, and use our capital market assumptions developed by Milliman's investment professionals to come up with what we think is a reasonable long-term rate of return, not just a rate of return for fiscal 22, but what we expect that allocation to earn in the long-term. And that is six and a half percent. So we expected plan assets to earn about 4 million during fiscal 22. Assets actually earned a negative eight point, actually lost 8.4 million resulting in an actuarial loss or, li or unfunded liability increase of $12.5 million. So the assets were more of a cult, were more of a deciding factor on the actual loss on liability or UAL than on the liability side. It was mainly due to assets, not because of things related to healthcare costs, uh, demographic experience of the participants. And that happens. I mean, the, this is my fourth. This is my fourth presentation, and I believe on the on the first three presentations I've come here, and I've had mainly good news. Assets have always done better than what we've assumed. The demographic experience, the healthcare experience, has been pretty much what we thought. Not too much going on there, but you know, this year we had a double whammy. The liabilities came in a little bit higher than what we thought, coupled that with assets that came in lower than what we thought. Combination was you can see that the 8.7 plus 12.5. It's about $21 million of higher than expected as far as the UAL is concerned. But let's keep in mind the big picture. Where have we been and where are we going? So I like to compare, you know, the first time I presented on this plan was June 30, 2017. I came here and at that time the plan was 22% funded. Assets compared to total assets of 23 million compared to a liability of about 106. A lot has changed in five years. No one's going to argue that. Even with all the volatility recently and the, and the poor asset performance in fiscal 22, the plan is still twice as well funded as it was from the day I sat here and we presented the first time on this. And if you compare it to 12, 11 years ago, or from the validate to July 111, you're four times as well funded. So. You know, we can't guarantee that the assets are going to perform at 30% every year or ever, over two years, and that the liabilities are going to decrease with every passing valuation. But on a long term, when you look at things in the long term, you, you see a trend that has been improving. I mean, at 44%, that is the second highest funded percentage on the chart, um, even with everything that's happened in fiscal 22. And now every year we're going to be doing this exercise every year as opposed to every two years. So as Ken has said, we'll be able to monitor this, these happenings more frequently and you know, address any changes that need to be made or any strategies that need to be considered you know, if, we consider, if we continue to see volatility in the markets, what have you. So that is my presentation on the valid results for the OPEP plan for June 30, 22. And that concludes the presentation. We'd be happy to take questions. Thank you for the presentation. Um, any members of the council have questions on the presentation before I open it up to the public? Vice Mayor Wyman. 
questions and I'll start from the back since that's where we just were. So tell me what again, what was the CERBT you would, that do we just saw okay. what does it stand for? Yeah, that is the California Employees Retirement Benefits Trust. Um, and they have three portfolios that participating municipalities can invest their OPEB assets in. Strategy one, two, and three. Strategy one being the most aggressive. And you said we are the most You aggressive. are strategy one. Mm -hmm. So if, if you were in strategy three, my investment return, our investment return assumption would not be six and a half. We would be somewhere closer to maybe between five and a half, five and three quarters. I'm, I, I don't know exactly. That's only because of the asset allocation under strategy three. They're more conservative investments, probably more fixed, higher proportion to fixed income as opposed to equities. But it helped us last year. It, so it oh, yeah, last yeah. I mean, yeah, presumably. Yeah. Right, and, right, right. I mean, right. Any, all the service strategies probably did very well during fiscal 21. Right. And so these numbers that you just showed us in this chart, um, you had June 2022. So this doesn't have a lag. This is where you think we are now. That's where you were at June 30, 22. We will do an actual exercise of June 30, 23, based on the census of employees and retirees as of June 30, 23. So, you know, assets, you know, between June 30, 22 and now, likely, you know, the last half of 22 wasn't very good either. So okay. are we going to hit six and a half percent for June 30, 23? I don't know. There's still some time, but if we, if, if you do, it probably won't be markedly better. Okay. We, we certainly don't know how the, the, the liability as far as demographic experience is going to work. We won't know that until we get census data. So, but it's just six months behind. It's not a year. And oh, certainly. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. As opposed to the PERS plan where, you know, CalPERS, has operating, they have a lot of things, a lot of people in the CalPERS plan. So I can appreciate while they're, they're a little behind where we are. And then the last question with this part, um, where you were showing what was going up and what was going down, and one of them was the health care claims. Yeah. And you said, you know, that, 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 that the change in the assumption was different. And is that just the claims cost or does that include the premiums? The premiums are an input into the claims cost model. What we, what our health actuaries do, and I, I'm glad you brought up that point because I'm going to make this. Our health care assumptions are set by health care actuaries who reside in the San Francisco office. I sit in Virginia, so I'm not going to have a Virginia actuary try to tell me develop claims health care assumptions for California municipalities. We rely on health actuaries from our San Francisco office who have familiarity with the PEMCA plans and what goes on with them. And they set these healthcare claims assumptions and trend assumptions because our trend assumptions how we assume that they're going to increase over time. We their annual rates of increase that uh, they have a model that does this. I am not a health actuary, but they are qualified to do it. So that increase is both those together. Right. So you said you've been working with Backable since 2017. Have you been in Virginia the whole time? I have been in Virginia the whole time. Okay. I've actually worked with Vacaville since 2015. All right. So I'm, you know, I'm always happy to come here every two years. Now it might be every year. So, um, but yeah, I find the staff, you know, very pleasant to work with, very informed. I appreciate the concern from the community about this plan. Um, it's always good to know that your work is looked at and it means something. So okay, I have one more question. But yes. Before I have a plug, stop by downtown before you leave and go back to the <laughs> All right. So my last question had to do with the previous part of the con uh, where you were talking about the lags and one was 2020 and one was 2021. Um, 
And so then we were looking at what it's really going to be in 24 and 25. And so I'm just curious because we have been adding quite a bit of staff and we're looking at adding more staff, is that going to make the increase in 2024 actually like twice as big because we're headed, having hit by this and we're having more staff? So for, for CalPERS, for their pension assumptions, they do have a payroll growth assumption. So as far as adding more staff, they're going to expect uh, agencies like ourselves to, to add more staff. It would um, cause an increase if the, the number of staff that we added or like the cost really ended up exceeding their assumptions. And um, I'm not so well versed in their details to where I could say, well, they're assuming it, you know, we're gonna add 500,000 or whatever the amount is, but that's how that would play out is that they're assuming that our payroll is gonna grow because of staff or, um, you know, wage increases, things of that nature. And we would see a loss if it was higher than our assumption. Well, it seems like it may be higher than it would be because we're trying to backfill the vacancies that we had. So that's what I just wanted to know. Yep. So it's some, some growth is built in is what you're telling me. Correct. Okay, yeah. thank you. Those are my questions. Yeah. Ms. Mayor, this is a point of clarification. Our valuations, and I'm sure CalPERS, at least from the OPEP side, we do not assume new entrants. We value, we look at the population as it exists as of the valuation date. So when you have someone hired, they their liability, their past service liability, which is the actuarial liability, is not going to be that significant early on because they don't have many years of service. They just were hired recently. What could happen is that the normal cost, which on the prior, Kevin, or sorry, Ken discussed what goes in your actual determined contribution. It's the normal cost, which is the cost of the benefits accruing during the year for active employees. Retirees have no normal cost because they're done. They're not accruing any service. Generally, if you, the, purport, the percentage increase in your active population, if you see your normal cost could increase in a similar percentage. If you had a 10% increase in population, that component of the, of the contribution might increase, maybe not exactly 10, but you can expect an increase in your normal cost. But their past service liability, which goes into your unfunded liability calculation, would not be terribly significant because they've just been hired. They have no service. As they accrue more service and they become more seasoned, their liability grows until the point that they retire, and then the liability doesn't grow, it just gets paid down as they receive benefits. So I just want to add some clarification there from like from what OPEB, which I'm familiar with, so I'm not going to speak about the, the pension plans, but just to help clarify. Thank you for the presentation. Um, now, it's always very complicated, but just like personal investments, we always want a good year. One of the questions I had was, we're using strategy one, who determines that? And as we see a changing in our forecast, since OPEB is really what we're, we're, we're kind of looking at right now, obviously PARS is a closed program in a supplemental pension. Um, strat I mean, you, you kind of indicated certain percentages. Would we be better off? And when do we make decisions to say, maybe we need to rethink our, our investment strategy and not be so aggressive in a volatile market? So as far as who makes that decision, and that's something that we make a decision on here as a city. Um, I'm not sure if, I, I want to say that we set up the CERB trust. It might have been in 2009, I believe, and so I think it's probably been in, in CERB once since the beginning. And what factored into that decision? Uh, primarily when you're looking at the OPEP trust, we haven't taken any distributions out of there, 
we've pretty much tried to, well, what we're trying to do is that we want to be conservative enough to where we're not taking unnecessary risks, but we also want to try maximize our returns because the unfunded liability is a huge amount of money. And in order to, you know, kind of um, to fund that, we need to maximize and kind of get the best returns we can. And so it is like a balance of, you know, risk and not being, um, and, you know, kind of being conservative, but also trying to maximize returns. But um, I think it's been like that since 2009. I want to say the two differences between the, the two allocations as far as uh, SERP 1 and SERP 2 is I think SERP 2 is just, it's going to invest more in like fixed income, which is a lot more conservative. But like Eric was saying, if we were to lower our, um, go with a different allocation, then that would also mean that the discount rate, so sort of what um, Eric is actually assumes that we're going to make, that comes down as well. And then when you have the discount rate go down, our unfunded liability number is going to go up because the assumption is that we're not going to make as much on our, our funds because we're in a much more conservative plan. So it is one of those things you have to balance where you could go extremely conservative, but then if we're only going to make, let's say, 3 or 4%, our unfunded liability is going to be a lot higher than what's currently in our valuation because the assumption is that we're not going to be making as much in investment earnings. Thanks for the explanation. It's helpful in this discussion. It's, it can be very complicated for for those who may not necessarily necessarily understand all the financial implications <laughs> and the long-term implications. And you said something is we've not made disbursements out of this fund, correct? This is this is that investment that is a long-term strategy for the healthcare on uh, retiring re yeah. retiring medical, correct? Yes, yeah, that's, that's correct. And just in, in Virginia, where I work with over 100 plans, those who fund, and not all OPEB plans are funded. Many of the municipalities I work with in Virginia do not fund OPEP. They just pay, they just make it, we're going to fund it or are going to pay benefits outside the trust. They don't have a trust, period. But those that do have a trust do not use the trust yet to pay benefits either, which is sort of important. When a pension trust, pensions always use a trust to pay benefits. It's unheard of for a pension fund not to use the trust to pay benefits. They don't pay, you don't see them paid out of general revenues. But OPEP, it's just something that, you know, I can't speak to the genesis of why that is, but they just would rather wait and pay benefits from the trust at a later time. I don't know when that time is going to be. They're more than welcome to do it, both here and in Virginia. I, I, have, I did work with some California municipalities that did. I no longer do. Um, so it, some do use their trust for that purpose. But City of Ackville is not alone in not using the trust yet to pay OPEB. They tend to, they make the benefit payments outside the trust. And that counts as a contribution. We talk about the, the annual, the actual determined contribution. Because you're not using the trust, those benefits those you're paying from general revenues, that counts towards those actual determined contribution figures. Because it is a contribution. You're just not making it to a trust. You're making it directly to retirees. So it does count towards that number. Whereas if you were paying it from the trust, you couldn't count those benefits paid as towards your actual determined contribution. Thank you. Council member Silva. Uh, that was a great question from Vice Mayor. Uh, good, great question, Mayor. I think, you know, so I don't think you were suggesting that we do uh, cho lower to a lower tier, but. No, just an yeah, explanation. Yeah, and it was, helps uh, to understand that. Oh, absolutely. This is, that was a great, great question, good explanation. I think, you know, kind of going back to the figure, um, you know, everything's going up. So I guess, it's a good question that since that, you know, anytime we have investments, you know, we're always advised to like, don't get 
you know, stay the course, be calm, right? Um, at what point would we suggest? What, at what point would staff or outside consultants suggest that hey, we look at a different approach? I can start with this, and then Eric can chime in if uh, I happen to miss something. But um, my understanding is, I, I think we, so. Currently, our funded status is forty-four percent. What we're noticing with the the ADC and how much we're having to pay in retiree premiums, that number continues to go up. It's not coming down. And so, um, you know, when I've had this explained to me in the past, you want to make sure that your funded status is kind of closer to that eighty to ninety percent range as opposed to the forty-four percent that we have right now. And then you also want to see that your, your retiree premiums. So the amount that we're paying for kind of our retirees every year, that that amount starting to come down. We're starting to stabilize because um, with the trust distributions, we can only take, um, I think the amount that we could take from the trust, it's, uh, the, it's a combination of how much we put in for that year and then how much we're actually paying in retired premiums. So we don't want to be caught in a situation where let's say, for example, that we're only paying like $500,000 to retirees in a year. Um, because that's going to be the only amount we can take out. And so if we have $80 million sitting in our trust, we're going to be limited to only taking $500,000 out a year. And so that's one of those things that um, as far as the best time, I think it would depend on sort of when we're seeing those retired payments stabilized. Um, and then I think that and our funded status increase, that would be the approach that I, when I've kind of talked to the CERP folks as well, that's sort of been what they suggested is that, you know, you don't want to have your retired payments um, decrease significantly, but you do want to see it start to stabilize. You want to see your funded status increase a much higher than where we're at right now before you start considering going that route and going more conservative. What you could do, and I'll, I'll just make one more point on this. I talked to Ken about this, this um, for funding, not for accounting, because for accounting, you must, on your financial statements, the city must disclose assets on a market value. There's no wiggle room there under GASB. For funding, you could look at using what we call an asset smoothing method with H valuation, meaning that you, we could recognize a portion of asset overperformance or underperformance each year. We could do it over three years, five years. Whereas, you know, I was here in June, sort of in 21, I came in here and assets had grown from 38.4 to 61.5 from June 30, 19 to June 30, 21. I believe it was like 30% returns compared to the six and a half percent assumption. Under asset smoothing, what you say is, okay, you, we, we, you overperform, but we're only gonna recognize a portion of it. You don't get to take the whole, you don't get to recognize the whole thing. You're gonna hold some of it back and you're gonna recognize it over three, I, I'm just using three and five as an example. It's, it can be four. By the same token, if your assets underperform, you don't have to recognize the entire underperformance. You can recognize only a portion of it, but understanding, that you're going to bring in that underperformance under for the following two, three, four years. It just doesn't go away after one year. You're going to be bringing it in over a period of time. But what it does is it gives you a more stable funding measure for assets. We call them like sort of funding assets, not actual assets, funding assets for purposes of determining the actual determined contribution. Some of my municipalities in Virginia do it. Some, many don't. But it, its main purpose is to dampen volatility. So in down markets, we'll call it the, we call it the actuarial value of assets for funding value. The actuarial value of assets is going to be higher than market in down markets because you're not recognizing all of your underperformance. But on the flip side, when things are going good, you don't get to take all of those investment gains. You recognize a portion. It's just something to consider. Uh, we can help with that. Um, so 
I just want to throw that to because right, we really haven't had this kind of volatility <laughs> between in quite some time. I think we looked at, if you look at June 30, 19 to June 30, 22, assets, I think about six and a quarter is what they earned, which is close to our six and a half percent. But the annual returns are not anywhere near six. <laughs> they're 30. They're, minor, they're negative. They don't, but they average out to be about six and a quarter. So it's just something to, there are mechanisms in place. I'm, I'm just throwing it out there. So just know you have some tools that there are tools in the toolbox that can be used to help dampen asset volatility. That's nothing to do, it's nothing to do with the liability side. It's just on the asset side. And it doesn't help with respect to GASB, financial accounting under GASB, because under GASB, you must use market value. So. Thank you. This is uh, very helpful in uh, the explanation. Councilmember Ritchie. Thanks so much. Um, I really appreciate the work you guys all, all do. Um, I had the chance to have my kids went to bed a few nights ago to actually just dive in. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I find it fun. I clicked, um, I actually had a chance to really just, OPEC was something I had to really study. I mean, elected because it's a hot topic. And so I really felt like it was kind of a blast in the past. Um, it's, it's really amazing, like, what people do at Calipers and what our team here in the city and, and you as what you do for the city. Like, you guys are like the, the kicker in the end of the game. You got to get it right. And like, a lot of people don't really understand how hard a job it is to put a massive portfolio like Calipers together to make sure. People that, that work hard for the communities all throughout California have the ability to, at the end of their time, get exactly what they deserve and work hard for. There's a lot of work. I was looking through it. It was, I think, 200 pages of assets that they invested. I was like, my God. I was looking at all of them. It was, it was interesting. It was really interesting. And some of the, some of the questions from it smoothing. Um, 2009 to now, it's been interesting. It's been very different. So we're, we were in bucket one. And I, I'm not saying we should switch, but... There's opportunities. It's very interesting. How, how do we combat volatility and realize we're here and not get caught like deer in the headlights? One question is how soon, how many times are we allowed once a year to make a shift into a different bucket? And if that, what is the ramifications to kind of offset the, we are, we're living in a lot of inflation. Like if you pay attention, don't fight the Fed. He's going to run, they'll run you over. Like he's giving the guidance. He's not let off the pedal. So inflation's here. We've reached about nine months ago, something called a reverse inverted yield curve. So now the two years and 10 years are flipped. So I just had a conversation with my friends. I was like, wow, that's pretty smart. They're just telling me just this morning, they're taking a ton of cash and they're all buying six year treasuries because they're now paying 5%. These guys are making hand or fist because they're saying, you know what, Greg, the market's tough. Equities are scary. We're making more money with an inverted yield curve buying six-year treasury notes. So plan B is more um, of your fixed income. In 2021, 2019, the average two-year yield is 1.4. So who, that's stupid. Like who would do that? But now that it's 5%, you can be, a clock, even a broken clock's right twice a day. I mean, it's a lot easier to get close to your 6% goal when you have a guaranteed 5% coupon from the federal government. So maybe it is time to shift some of the portfolio into like six-year treasury, six-month treasuries until we figure our way out of the woods with inflation. Because we can, we can lock in 6% and 
5% on two year, on six months treasuries, it might be worth it for everybody. But I don't know how fast you make the shift. I definitely want to explore that. Because like I had a great conversation with my friends and it was really eye-opening how you can benefit from kind of just really uh, taking care of fixed incomes at the right time. Sure, so to answer that question, I mean, this came up really at the onset of the pandemic, I think back like in March or April when we were going through like the shutdowns because, you know, as we all know, the stock market really a tumble in that beginning part. And so I called served about this and there is no limit on sort of the number of times you could uh, change your allocation. But um, one of the things that they had mentioned is that, you know, don't treat it like you're a day trader where, you know, we're calling them one day and saying we want to be in, you know, allocation number three and then calling them the following day and say we want to be in one again. And so, um, but to, to answer your question, there is no, there's no limit as far as how often we do that. But that is something that definitely came up during kind of the beginning of the pandemic where it was, you know, were only going to get worse. They weren't going to get better. And, you know, now we know that things went incredibly well, but of course that was a different time. The federal government obviously paid it, put a lot of money to the stock market. And it's not, that's not the case this go around, but to answer your question, there is no limit on how often we switch. Thank you. Um, and I'm not, my own position is I'm not saying that we need to all of a sudden shift the funding mechanism. It's simply an exercise of how we think about the investments, it's a shorter presentation when it's a really good year. There's no doubt. And it's okay to be critical when all of a sudden we're trying to understand what is the longevity uh, to this program. It's not being dispersed, looking at it for a long term. So it seems like it's in the highest um, potential gain, comes with risk. And so the desire I know from my perspective is as long as we're paying attention to what this looks like and uh, and knowing that, that this is a program that other cities don't have. And it was it was put together in conjunction with staff, along with um, the various uh, unions that were affected and trying to get us through a difficult time. And so it was very strategic. And uh, those who worked diligently before should be commended on putting this together. And so this is this is an investment, and it's for the purposes of uh, caring for our uh, for our retirees. So um, with that, I would like to uh, open it up to the public if anyone wants to provide comment. Hi. Good evening. My name is Alicia Minion. And I just have a few questions. So the PARS Trust is at the funding, the, the funding ratio that really stuck out. And um, it's always been really underfunded. And so uh, number one, I was wondering, did PARS hire Milliman? I was wondering who, who engaged the actuary for, for PARS? Because I noticed the correspondence was written two pars, right, you know, that, that, that was on Milliman letterhead. And then uh, number two, the, um, the, when you look at the uh, performance track record of CalPERS uh, in the CalPERS actual valuation report, I think it goes out at like 20 year track record. It, how's, how's the performance of PARS compared to CalPERS? And the reason why I ask is, and I don't know if this is a possibility, but on PARS, 
do you does the city have the flexibility to hire a different manager? Can you have a different, you know, trustee? I don't I don't know. It, it just seemed like once you sign up with PARS, you're kind of stuck with PARS. Is that the situation? Or can you move the assets of that to CalPERS? Because you don't just look at performance, you also look at fees, like the administrative fees. And I'm just wondering if you can save in any way by moving away from PARS, if that's a possibility. Also, I noticed the assumptions for the PARS actual report. There was wage inflation of 2.8%. There was another inflation figure, but I didn't know what it was about, 2.3. So I'm just curious, the the wage inflation, um, you know, where where's that data point coming from and when does it, when would it get adjusted? What's sort of the index on that? And then I also heard on the PARS, one of the reasons why the funding ratio um, declined was because there was more retirees than anticipated. And I was just wondering how did that generally impact um, the, the OPEB and, and the, um, and, and CalPERS as well. And I didn't, I didn't know if that was like really significant. And then um, the discussion about the CERBT, the strategy one and two, um, just, just as an FYI, you can look at the performance breakdown of those two strategies on the CalPERS website and they break it down by asset class. So, um, Councilman Richie, you mentioned treasury. So they, there was like some tips. And so you can look at the makeup and then you can look at the performance over time for strategy one and two. And in some cases, there wasn't a big difference. But anyway, just so you know, it's online and you can learn more about it. Thank you for the questions. And I'm not sure. certain if there's anything specific that you would want to address with those questions right now, or we can accept them and we can look at that. So is there anything you wanted to comment on any of those questions? And thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I think, yeah, for some of them, uh, as far as the, the PARS and Milliman relationship, I mean, that predates me. I mean, I'm not sure if Eric, if you know from your time there, but I, I think Milliman. <laughs> It also predates me too, so I'm not going to sit here and I don't want to get too far into the weeds on something I'm not an expert on. I just know that PARS and Milliman have worked together for many years. Um, I do know that PARS likes to be sort of like the middleman. They like to, like, they're the, I believe they, we contract with PARS and they run, they run the show, so to speak. But I'm not, again, I'm not, I don't want to get too far afield from something I'm really not intimately familiar with. And the, the other question uh, related to the wage inflation on, on PERS. So uh, CalPERS goes through this uh, cycle. I think it's a four-year cycle where they're looking at sort of what's their investment strategy is going to be part of that. They also um, go through an experience study. So that's where they're looking at sort of uh, over the past number of years um, what their assumptions. Do they need to update it on retirement? How quickly, um, how long people live, things of that nature. And so the most recent was recent one was as of November of 2021. And I think that's when they updated the, the wage inflation um, was one of the elements. And so I think based off of the cycle, I think the next time they would look at it would probably be in another three or four years is my understanding of how that cycle works. Thank you. Mayor Carley, Madam Vice Mayor, Council, Mr. City Manager. Sean Bird, retiree, resident, 
Obviously, the city is impacted by CalPERS investments, both directly and indirectly. I got my newsletter from uh, CalPERS explaining that they've changed their position from being fiduciary to investing ESG. This is going to affect our cost to PERS, and that concerns me greatly because that difference, our philosophical view instead of being a fiduciary, is going to impact how much the city has to lay out. So I would encourage the city manager, you, Mr. Mayor, to direct somebody to to uh, look into this ESG. I have looked into it myself, and a number of states and municipalities have dumped investment firms that they, they don't have CalPERS and we're locked in. That's a good thing, actually. But they've gotten away from those who are interested in ESG rather than rate of return. And as a resident and retiree, this concerns me a lot. Side note, I like how you think there, Mr. Ritchie. I think you're on the money. Thank you for looking into that. I hope you will. Thank you. Anyone else? Seeing none, I'll close public comment and bring it back to the council for any discussion. I'm seeing none. So do does anyone want to entertain a motion? An update? It's for just information, so there's no action to be taken on this. All right, so Mr. City Manager, 9B, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Mayor and members of the council. Next item before you tonight is an update presentation on the status of the Enhanced Infrastructure Financing Districts. Our Community Development Director, Aaron Morse, is here to make a presentation. Uh, good evening, Mayor Carley and members of council. I feel honored to be here to present perhaps happier, happier information about the topic that's before us. So by way of just very brief background, and by the way, our presentation is about 10 minutes in length, maybe 15, but um, on May 24th of last year, the council authorized a $40,000 contract with Cosmont Companies to help the city look at new ways to fund infrastructure, parks, and other features done a lot of work since May of 22, and we're here tonight to walk you through our initial findings and to seek your support in taking some next steps. So with that, I'd like to introduce Joe Diegas from Cosmont Companies, and he'll be doing the presentation. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Mayor, members of the City Council. Good to be with you all. I'm Joe Diegas with Cosmont Companies. So the circumstance that we're stepping into, it's a positive circumstance. There's development opportunity in various portions of the city, downtown, northeast, northeast growth area, a few other areas. The, uh, the potential challenge here is that investments in infrastructure are needed to support that potential growth. Water, sewer, roads, other type of essential infrastructure to catalyze that growth. Uh, our task for you was to evaluate whether part of the plan to address that could utilize this new uh, sort of innovative form of funding and financing for infrastructure, uh, tax increment financing. The popular example of this tool uh, is the Enhanced Infrastructure Financing District, the EIFD, 
So we were tasked to see, could this make sense in Vacaville? How could it make sense? How many dollars would we be talking about? How would it potentially look? So our analysis is showing that, yes, it could be feasible. We'd like to walk through how, in our opinion, it could be completely subject to your own thoughts and feedback, and then talk about um, ways to use it to potentially attract other dollars. These strategies typically work best when it's not only your investment, but you're attracting contributions from other entities. And then we'd like to sort of conclude with potential next steps, of course, subject to your thoughts on how this could proceed if you want it to proceed at all. I, uh, I'm going to repeat a few slides that we discussed way back in May. It's, it's been a long time. You receive a lot of presentations, and perhaps uh, not all were present at that time. When we say tax increment financing, the first thing I'll say, and I'll probably repeat it a number of times, that it's, it's not a new tax. If you'll uh, sort of forgive the call back to the previous presentation about retirement accounts, it's actually a pretty good analogy. There's a boundary that's drawn geographically within the city, some set of uh, parcels. As value grows over time from investment into those properties, either brand new development or rehab of underutilized properties, this mechanism allows the city and potentially other taxing entities who we may be able to recruit with us to allocate some piece of future property tax dollars just within that boundary and set it aside, sort of like that retirement account analogy set it aside in a special fund that will be restricted for infrastructure. And the idea sort of with that same retirement account analogy is to see if we can attract other partners, let's say the County of Solano, to be almost like an employer matching our contribution, uh, investing with us if they agree that what we're talking about funding in terms of infrastructure and the new development that we're talking about catalyzing could be of more than just benefit to this community, but perhaps the county or the larger region. So that's the idea. A few points I wanted to reiterate. Um, it's not just about what, what's the infrastructure gonna pay for. It's not just a capital improvement program. That's an important document that you already produce. A new document would govern the activities of the so-called district. It would be called the infrastructure financing plan. And we liken it more to a business plan. It's not just about what you're funding, but it's about focusing on those investments into what can actually catalyze and facilitate the type of growth that you want and how could it also improve your ability to attract other dollars to fund those things. The process for putting this together, it's, it's because it's not a new tax, there's nothing like a landowner approval or two thirds vote like you may be familiar with for some other um, entities like CFDs or, or bids or PBIDs. There's a public hearing process and you're required to not only draft this plan, but present it very transparently to the public over a series of public hearings. That, that's the, pro, uh, the, the process. What's eligible for funding? I talked about water, sewers, and roads. That's uh, probably the most popular types of, of improvements that are paid for with these entities. We'll show a graphic in a few slides. It's broader than that. It's infrastructure very inclusively defined. Water, sewer, roads, uh, transit infrastructure. It could be affordable housing, parks, childcare facilities, libraries. It's quite broad, uh, somewhat under the umbrella of infrastructure. Why is it being done and why may it make sense for Vacaville? Uh, the target is infrastructure that needs to get paid for somehow. Uh, this is could be a, a tool in the toolbox at your disposal. Oftentimes it's about, just about generating some level of growth that wouldn't happen otherwise or happen as fast or as intensely. And about the general fund fiscal revenues that come from that, potential job creation, 
Um, it could be about housing production. Those are generally the reasons why we see other communities doing this. Uh, very importantly, number two is the ability about using these tools to attract other dollars. So there are in place, as an example, several grant programs at the state housing and community development level, HCD. You may have heard of the infill infrastructure grant or the affordable housing and sustainable community grant or transformative climate communities. These are very competitive grants that come in big buckets, 12 million, 15, 20, 25 million dollars for infrastructure oftentimes. And that department is prioritizing applications from jurisdictions that do these districts explicitly because that department state HCD is calling these districts sort of indication of, of pro-housing policy. And so for that, you get two or three points on a grant application, which is highly competitive, may not sound like a lot, but it could mean the difference between attracting those dollars or not. So that's sort of the, the grant lens in attracting other money. And then very importantly with the private sector, um, oftentimes the default for paying for infrastructure and growth areas are impact fee programs or, or CFDs, both very common, very established. We look at these types of districts, the tax increment districts, as being more of a more of a way to insert the city side, the public agency side, as um, sort of a, at the table with private sector landowners and developers. You would be putting some skin in the game, so to speak, with some piece of the future property tax within these areas, and it's sort of a currency that you can then use in landowner and developer negotiations to actually incentivize growth in these areas. That's why, in our experience, many of these are going on. There are you know, over 20 of these formed throughout the state. They're all so different. I prefer not to spend so much time talking about others, but we'll just say closest nearby. Fairfield is talking about this with the County of Solano. City of Sacramento has formed two. City of West Sacramento has formed one. County of Sacramento has formed one just outside of the airport. So it wouldn't be new to this region. So where we focused so far in Vacaville, it's evolved. We've sort of had a larger study area when we began in the summer of last year and it's been become more and more focused, and that's the idea. Let's make no mistake about it. This is an encumbrance of future property tax dollars. The dollars just don't come from, they come from somewhere. And so part of our work has been focusing it on areas where we can sort of afford to allocate some piece of future property tax within a boundary while also continuing to feed, and not only feed, but grow the general fund with this investment of future dollars. So we're currently um, concentrated in the downtown, the Northeast growth area, kind of these parcels in the orange cumulatively, and a few other select parcels on the Eastern side of the city that um, we and staff have evaluated to be positioned for future potential growth. Just um, one note I'll make on this page, what, what does that mean in terms of the scale as a portion of the whole city? In terms of acreage, it's about 14% of your city that, we're, that we've been studying. But in terms of assessed value, assessed property value, it's actually under 3%, the bottom number on the far right. Um, so when we see ratios like that, 14% of your acreage, less than 3% of your value, for us that signals there may be value to be captured. These are truly value captured districts. And it's sort of a positive indication that we're looking in the right areas geographically. Um, you can probably advance. I, I just mentioned earlier the types of infrastructure that can be paid for water sewer roads and many other things. It's this huge list that I won't go into, but it starts with the words including but not limited to. So to the extent council may have ideas or thoughts or, or questions, there's a lot of flexibility and I'll be very happy to entertain those sorts of questions. Uh, just to quantify and make it transparent how we work, uh, we, we forecast value growth 
in terms of units of residential units of residential uh, product and square footage of non-residential projects and we uh, uh, forecast that out over time in this case over 20 years and it's by assigning assessed value factors that we come at or how much value future value are we potentially talking about here and it is significant in these areas over four billion dollars in today's dollars of the future potential development in the areas we're focusing on we emphasize much of the time um, other people's money, honestly, because you don't control the whole property tax dollar. For every dollar of property tax that's paid, the majority of school districts, community college, college districts, you know, this district wouldn't have access to those dollars. The city has only a piece of it. The county has a larger piece. And so the point we really wanted to make here is a lot of this is about, yes, perhaps investing some portion of your own, but then very importantly, trying to use that allocation to attract dollars from other entities that can participate with us. How many dollars are we talking about over time? Just to point out a couple um, values on this page uh, at a somewhat high level. Within five years, if you reform this district and slowly we can catalyze some growth, generally speaking between five and a half and $24 million, depending on how much of our own dollars, whether or not we recruit the county as a partner, so within five years, between five and a half and $24 million for that infrastructure. As time goes on, as value potentially grows, a new development goes vertically, that value would increase um, within 10 years, potentially within uh, 15 to $64 million of, of funding available for infrastructure. So that's sort of the scale of what we're talking about here. And it increases in time as development goes vertical. Lots of ways to use the money. These districts can issue debt, much in the way the old redevelopment agencies could before 2012, but it's just one option. Just um, wanted to offer what we've been seeing in some other jurisdictions. In some cases where there are larger developers or developers that control a lot of land, in some cases we have examples where they may be willing to advance funding for a road extension or a water main expansion, and they just want a sort of guaranteed reimbursement mechanism. This is a source that works quite well in that context. It's very performance-based. If that developer builds their project, they create assessed property value. That creates funding capacity through this mechanism. There's a very direct line that the private sector can follow for reimbursement. That's much preferred to what is oftentimes the traditional approach, which is you set up a fee program. Other developers in the future may pay into that program at some uncertain time and location, and you're basically promising a piece of those future impact fees to that developer. Private sector does not like that as much. It's hard to predict. It's very indirect compared to a mechanism like this. So lots of ways to use the dollars. Um, just bonding is just one example. We talked about using it as a way to attract other funding. These are just some specific examples of the grants that we could attract. I'm happy to spend more time on that uh, for the sake of efficiency. I'll keep moving. Um, Fortunately, we're seeing more and more examples of these city-county partnerships. That, that's really the greatest benefit to our, to our cities pursuing this. It's when it's not just your dollars, but again, pursuing county partners. And, and fortunately, we're seeing more and more of that. So why do it? We Part of our analysis was to put some numbers, for it, numbers to it. So certainly housing creation, certainly job creation, both on a sort of temporary construction basis as well as an ongoing permanent basis. But the last set of bullets on the page is where we honestly spent most of our time, which is what does it mean for the general fund? First, can you even afford to do something like this, allocate some piece of your future property tax? But beyond that, can it be accretive? Is there a positive return on investment? 
by setting aside some future dollars, catalyzing some growth that wouldn't happen otherwise or as fast or as intensely? What is that sort of net net impact on the general fund over time? And so that was the direct input. This was somewhat iterative. We looked at it. We had to craft the boundary a little bit better. We had to craft how much could we afford to allocate to make sure this number continued to be positive. How could we make it most positive? And we're seeing um, in the geography that we showed and the funding scenarios, potential funding scenarios that I showed on that numbers chart, that this can be very positive to the city on the order of um, over $50 million of present value general fund positive impact over time. Um, I'll use the graphic on the next page to kind of show what we mean by that. We try to be very defensible, very legitimate. So we don't just assume, look, if you do this thing, some massive amount of growth happens. If you don't do this thing, nothing happens. It's not a fair statement. It's not, it's not true, um, not defensible. So we kind of take a very, uh, we try to take a realistic approach that says, yes, if you consider setting aside some piece of your future property tax, it's a very important signal to the private sector, to grant sources. Yes, a more intense, perhaps a quicker level of development will happen, but you're setting aside some piece of future, future property tax. And you're also, whenever you're growing, you're incurring more expenditures, public safety, community services, there are costs associated for a city in growing. So sort of net of all that, what's the bottom line fiscal impact to the city? That's our green line here. And then in our blue line, we take a very defensible approach. Look, if you don't do this tool, something's probably still going to happen. You'll likely still attract some level of private sector investment, but it likely wouldn't be as intense or as quick if it happens at all. Um, but then you're also not setting aside some piece of future property tax. So what does that look like? And so we're always tracking this sort of green versus blue to make sure if you're going to do this at all, it better be a positive return on investment. And so that's what we're seeing, fortunately, under the set of circumstances that we've arrived at. This can be um, absolutely accretive for the general fund over time. Uh, I've, I've repeated these just points that we want to hammer home. It's great if you do it on your own. It's even better when you get other people to partner. Um, we're very careful about what percentage we're talking about potentially allocating so that it's a positive return, not just can you afford it, but how can you generate positive return? And then letter D, what are we gonna choose to fund? That's still further work needed. Always love to hear um, the feedback from council tonight and in subsequent conversation, that's a step that if you wanna continue with this at all, we'd like to continue to go down that path. When we talk to someone like the county, if you uh, authorize that work to talk to them about potential partnership, we'd like to get their own thoughts. If they're gonna partner with us on this, what may their priorities be? on projects that would be paid for? Is it water, sewer roads? Is it something else? What can city and county together agree uh, as the projects that make sense to fund? Yeah, please. There's the whole roadmap. Uh, for the sake of time, I won't go through it all. So we've obviously, we've formed many of these districts across the state. There's a prescribed way. I covered the basics earlier. You prepare a plan. It has to be very prescriptive. What are you going to do with the money? How much money over what time period? What are the impacts on the general fund and for anyone else that partners with you? And you have to present that plan over a series of public hearings. City council would approve. If the county were a partner, county board would approve. Sort of lots of transparency, nowhere to hide. It's meant to be very different from the old age of redevelopment agencies where you didn't have to be so transparent and accountable with the public on what you were going to do with the money. It's a very different game this time around. So lastly, next steps, potential next steps. Very importantly, hear your questions. The very, very technical subject matter. We want to clarify anything that I may not have clarified well. Um, the 
sort of suggestion or the ask in the staff report is if you're okay with this idea at all, perhaps after we answer any questions, would you authorize staff to talk to the county at some level about interest in this, if you wanna go down this path at all. And then based on that, next steps after that could include, all right, let's refine this. If county is in, what's their allocation? Does that change anything about what we wanna allocate as a city? Let's get more specific about the projects we would fund. And again, only at that time, if, if uh, council were pleased with this sort of approach, then implementation mode getting the district formed, and then sort of immediately potentially going on the road to use that district to attract other dollars, both public and private. So thank you for, for sitting through that uh, presentation. We'd be very happy to address questions. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Silva. Hi, guys. Can you go uh, back to 19, slide 19? So uh, just a quick question. Um, so it looks like the green line. So number one, is this is this what the account will look like at the end of 50 years or is this yeah this is meant uh sorry for not clarifying so this is meant to be over time each year through a potential 50-year district lifetime they could be as long as 50 years they don't have to be they could be shorter but this shows sort of every year is what the line shows up until year 50 at year 50 this district in this scenario would theoretically terminate you're no longer allocating whatever percentage of property tax that you approved at the beginning you say, okay, district turned off, all the dollars will now flow unencumbered to our general fund, and that's the huge uptick at year 50. This is so every year up until year 50. And then, so these fund, these other counties, they're just they're just pulling the money over time, or are they dispersing it and reinvesting it as they go along? Yeah. So uh, the other city county partnerships, sorry. Um, so all of them have been set up the way the tool is set up. It sort of trickles in over time okay. um, as value, sort of development comes out of the ground, improvements go vertical. Usually your first two years, it's nothing to write home about. It's minimal growth because you've just formed the district. Your base year is, um, you sort of your base value is zero because you've just formed the district. So the first few years, the dollars hitting the account, so to speak, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. It usually takes four or five years for most of these to pick up steam until you're actually like in the millions of dollars of potential dollars to fund infrastructure. But the way it works is, yeah, annual disbursements as property is assessed, people pay the property tax bills. Um, this is just some piece of that pie. And then this district would have the ability to use that revenue stream if it wanted to use that revenue stream and issue bonds based on whatever that revenue stream is at, at that time. That's yeah, just, when I see this, I, I see the growth greater in the beginning than I do as it goes over time. So it's like a limiting, you know, just a limiting, uh, I forget what you guys call it, economics. Diminishing returns. I don't call them biochemistry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot of diminishing returns. So it looks like, you know, that growth, so that, uh, that relationship's much greater in the beginning, was that 20 years, tapers off, um, and it's greater than the, uh, without EIFD. So, um, so here I would, I would argue that, I mean, sorry, the way I kind of see it is like, we see greater growth after two year two or three. Um, yeah. So I guess the other side of it is I, I just, I just want to be realistic of how much, uh, how much funds we hear coming. Cause like, uh, when, when I saw schools, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe this is a mechanism to help out address schools, but it's, it's not, uh, the, the good news is that the value grows. They get a piece of it because they get a piece of the property tax dollar. So it's good for them. They're getting more dollars. The limitation is they just can't put any of those dollars into this tool. So they're kind of a beneficiary, but they're not a participant in terms of giving this tool their dollars. So they're sort of a passive beneficiary. 
It's okay. It, it does grow their property tax dollar. Thank you for clarifying. Thank you for the presentation. Um, seeing no other questions from the council, I'm going to open up to public. Oh, you, okay, sorry. There we go. Councilmember Chapman. Thank you. How long has this funding uh, mechanism for um, funding source been available, been in its existence? It's first I've heard of it. Since, since 2014, we consider that pretty recent, since 2014. 2014. And do we have any public entities um, nearby that are presently using this funding source? The closest ones that are fully formed are, there are two of these in the city of Sacramento, one in the county of Sacramento, the Metro Air Park development just outside the airport, and then the city of West Sacramento. Those are sort of fully formed to our east. To our west, there are several in the Bay Area and the city of Napa. Closer, but not yet fully formed, is the city of Fairfield, who've done sort of a similar preliminary evaluation, have approached the county of Solano. Feedback has been positive so far. No one has signed on the dotted line yet, so there's no victory yet. But it has been a positive conversation for Fairfield and the county of Solano about partnership so far, but not yet fully formed. Thank you. Real quick, you mentioned um, that uh, when you look at this kind of uh, funding source, there's a lot more transparency than there was in redevelopment. We could probably talk all day on redevelopment. Most uh, great to hear from you and or maybe even some way to summarize that uh, in the absence of redevelopment after 20, 2012, the Great Recession trying to fund everything, it became uh, evident that cities did not have a way to fund redevelopment. So other terms now would be called revitalization. How, how do cities build infrastructure when there is no more redevelopment? Am I correct on this? I would agree, absolutely. This is not the new redevelopment because it's very different from the redevelopment that was abolished in 2012, particularly because the city can only capture our share of the property tax pie. We can't engulf everybody else's, right or wrong. The old redevelopment <laughs> brought a lot more money to the table. But this appears to be, from staff's perspective, one of the few tools that can function a little bit like redevelopment and basically create a funding source for the city of Vacaville to leverage in our infrastructure projects going forward. And then a follow-up question with that. 2014, relatively new, and there's very few of these statewide. And even listening to Councilmember Silva look at these, I see inflections early on 10 years and 20 years, the diminished returns. Is that based on projections that there is build out? And so you don't continue to increase. But if I read this correctly, at the end of 50 years, it uh, while the, the EIFD ends and it terminates whenever it's 50, it could be 20, 25, 30. That spike there, can you explain what that represents so Absolutely. everyone understands? Thank you. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the, I'll start at the beginning of the question about the timing. So yeah, introduced in 2014, I don't think any of them were formed until 2017. That's where the first ones were formed. And now we have 22 of them, most of them in 2019, 20, 21, 22. It's sort of grown quite quickly to where we are today. The whole point about inflection, it's absolutely based on forecast of development. So the way we do that is we look at what's approved in terms of your planning documentation and then staff tracks sort of a development pipeline of actual potential new projects. And we forecast that out um, over time. 
So the steepest areas of growth in those early years is because that's where our development projections are concentrated pretty much everywhere throughout years zero through 20. If development takes longer, uh, that will be a flatter line. If it happens better than forecasted, it would be an even steeper slope kind of early on. The answer to the last part of your question is the same in any scenario, though. Why, why, why the spike at the end? Uh, so my comment earlier was, make no mistake about it, this is an encumbrance of future property tax dollars. The general fund would be setting aside some portion, even if it's just a quarter or half of the property tax, just within this boundary, but it is setting aside some piece of property tax outside of the general fund and putting it into a special fund that is restricted for specific purposes. In this case, infrastructure. That's an encumbrance of general fund dollars. What would happen after this district terminates is you're releasing that encumbrance. Everything that you've been sort of putting into that retirement account, you're saying, I'm going to stop contributing to that. I'm just going to put it all in my checking account the checking account being the general fund in this analogy. So at that year 50, you're saying, I'm done contributing to the special fund. I'm going to put let 100% of my property tax dollars within this area just go right into my general fund. So you're sort of turning off the spigot for this tool and directing all those dollars back into the general fund. That's the uptick. You've created some growth in that green line. That's a great thing, but it's sort of cost you some allocation each year throughout the lifetime of this district. It costs you some allocation, some percentage of your property tax. At the end of it, you're done allocating. You, you sort of um, return to full. Um, all the dollars flow back to your general fund. You could really realize that that year 50, the fruits of your labor. Thank you. Councilmember or Vice Mayor Weiler. And on this graph that we're looking at, is this um, only supposing the city's involvement and not the county's involvement? And if we did get the county involved, then the green line would be even higher? So, so we would say yes. That kind of goes into the world of the subjective. To be very clear, this is the city general fund um, perspective. If we or staff or whoever went to talk to the county about partnership, we would want to do this from the county general fund perspective. But to your, your question specifically, it's the, the key question at hand is if the county is in, can we either more money. could we get more money overall or could we afford to give less of our dollars because they're matching us? I see. Um, in either of those scenarios, you could argue, yeah, you'd probably look even better. So I, I want to say yes, but there's a little bit of subjectivity that I wanted to explain before just saying yes. Okay. Yeah. With that, uh, seeing no more questions up here, I'm going to open it up to the public for comment. Alicia Minion again. Okay, so I have a lot of questions. I'm going to try to get through the three minutes. So number one question, what are the risks? What is the downside? Um, who is accountable for the funds in the TIF? Let's say it generates money and there's money, so who's <coughs> accountable? What mechanism is in place so that there's some enforcement mechanism in case it's misspent? Who controls the money? Who controls the district? Who are the administrators? And so let's talk about the TIF. It's gonna, it's gonna issue bonds to finance the infrastructure. I'm hearing that the district can be 50 years. 
Um, so what is the maturity of the bonds? Is there any limit? Can it be 25 years? Can it be 50 years, 40 years? Because a lot of times when you see these special districts, sorry, even like Melarus, where they issue debt, like, like, like the one we're going to have for Lagoon Valley, sometimes these special districts, their, their purpose is to really facilitate something that the city maybe doesn't want to do directly, so they find a way to do something indirectly. And generally, it's not necessarily in the best interest, in the best interest of the public. So I think it's really important that you understand the long-term risk. Now, um, Mayor Carly, you mentioned redevelopment, exactly what happened. So redevelopment agencies, they were dissolved because Governor Brown, he saw that there was so much mal malfeasance in redevelopment agencies. I mean, there was waste, fraud, and abuse, and it was systemic. And so when the city's redevelopment agency was dissolved, along with all the other cities, there was tremendous financial harm to the cities where the redevelopment agencies were dissolved. Depending what the activity was, some were harmed more than others. So I think I wouldn't do anything unless you have a 100% understanding of what are the risks. And I don't understand why the grants or all the available money that's available to a TIF I don't understand why we can't just get that. Why can't the city just get that? And and then also there's a term about additional funds. I don't I don't I, I don't know what that means, but all I know is it's the city, whatever new is constructed is not gonna be on your tax roll. That money, is that correct? So so I'm concerned about the property within these TIFs. And I'm also concerned about the areas that the city's highlighted. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is some of the shaded area in yellow, is that outside our urban limit line? I'm just wondering like, what, what, what's the benefit of that? Now, I have like 10 other questions, so I will email. Thank you. Just let me know who I need to email and I will email them, but number one. Well, and what you'll be able to do is, is be sure and put those questions together and you can yeah. always uh, email them to, to Ms. Morris. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you raise you raise questions. This is like an entry stage to this and and tonight may not be the, the time for all of them. It's time to gather information to decide to receive. Ultimately tonight is to receive a presentation and potentially direct staff to begin communication with the county to see where this may go. And so it's no more complicated than that. Um, always interesting trying to find mechanisms for funding especially in infrastructure um, to your to your one point though I will say there's some that are in the, the the boundary some are within the city limits some of its part of planned growth so I think that that is something for discussion but for for the purposes of a presentation it's more in the conceptual here's where we could go with funding and here's what we could do but um, in the interest of time, I don't. I don't think we have. We can answer all those questions, but I don't know if there was any comment that you wanted to make at all uh, before I, I we, we move forward. 
I'd like to just make two brief comments. One, a public financing authority would be established that would have elected officials from the city and if the county joined the county and also members at large. So there is a lot of public oversight. I want to answer that because I feel like that could be um, really nerve-wracking when you're hearing that question. The second one about what are these projects, is this stuff the city wants to make happen? I just want to also reiterate that point that I think Joe made earlier, that everything that happens is within the control of the, of the city and county, this public financing agency, and it relates to the city's general plan and established priorities. So those are the two answers, but we, as you said, we're in the early days of vetting these ideas and having these conversations, and I encourage people to email me if they'd like to have more substantive answers. Thank you. There's no doubt that it's always good to understand the risk and the benefits. I wrote that note my, myself down before you said that, so thank you. Anyone else from the public want to comment on this? All right, seeing none, I'm going to bring it back to the council. Councilmember Silva and then Councilmember Stockton. Um, actually, I'm interested in the, the risk. Are there any risks with this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to repeat uh, an earlier comment. There, make no mistake about it. This is an encumbrance of a piece of your future property tax. Yes, it's restricted to a specific geographic area, wherever the boundary is that you decided. And yes, that's no portion of, of today's dollars. You're not changing about anything about today's property tax, but you're talking about future, potential future property tax if this development happens, you're setting aside a piece of that growth. But even then, that's a piece of growth that will no longer be available for your unrestricted general fund. That's the major sort of downside here. You're, you're tying up funds that would otherwise be unrestricted. You're making sure they're dedicated for infrastructure. I mean, it's a good thing if you care about infrastructure, but it's also making those dollars no longer available to fund other things that that, that may come up. So it's for, for that's the main downside. You yeah, only I, do it. I, yeah. I would think that for me to be the most concerned your risk as you know uh, i'm i'm will, willing to support this moving forward but uh, that's something I'd, i'm curious to see how that yeah. shapes out thank you councilmember stockton yes thank you for the presentation i am <clears throat> cautiously optimistic um i do want to know more about the risks um but i think the thing that concerns me the most is the extended amount of time we're learning every council meeting how fast things can change in Sacramento and how fast we can lose control over the investments that we make and the fact that we're making a 50-year investment into infrastructure to build things that we want to build now but may not have control over in six months to a year is terrifying. And so I guess one of the things that I, moving forward, I would like to know is I, I really think we need to dial in the zoning in the areas. I'd like to have a priority of what staff feels which areas are the most um, viable for, for this. Um, also, I think that, and I know we're gonna talk about it really soon, uh, some of the objective standards that we wanna set for the city related to development, future development, and whether these um, developments are what we want for Vacaville. So I'm really nervous about 50 years. That's just, that's just an eternity when it comes to development. I, I recognize that we want, um, to invest in Vacaville and we want to bring, you know, businesses and jobs and affordable housing and different things like that. I just, I just don't want to be a sucker. Councilmember Richie. Well, um, thanks for presentation. I really appreciate um, kind of the explanation. I like seeing other cities. Um, you know, it's very interesting that about 90% of this is going to be in the unincorporated area, that's the county, 
the area this that will possibly urban reserve um almost nine percent of this is in district two so it's, it's very interesting for me to really see the fact that this growth and idea would be right in my backyard and have to kind of really pay attention to what's going on um i i have been paying attention and it's it's interesting to see the other cities throughout california how they're cooperating with the county and i think as we talk about our plan in vacaville um we're having more conversations actually starting the process already maybe i'm starting the process already of really realizing that if we're going to think big we better we better get everybody involved and so i i've been i've been talking to county representatives for quite a while about what is what is the master plan like what can we do to start working together and start creating a dialogue and it's very interesting to see that this opportunity will be in district two predominantly and we can really take a, a stab at it. if it doesn't work it doesn't work but to really get the county and the city all rowing in the same direction um, as we build out the master plan build out the biotech build out the tech corridor it's we're going to close the gap it's going to happen i was i was in the city almost thirty thousand, and now it's not it's going to come let's try to be like artists let's mold the city in the best shape we want and this could be an awesome opportunity i mean we're going to close a gap between leisure town and almira it's going to happen it may be two years or 50. but at some point we got to make sure we, we we monetize make sure we can set we can do the right thing that maybe the growth might not happen in every district but that growth in certain districts can benefit the whole city we, we got to take a good look at this so I, i'm i'm for it but i share you know concerns and nothing's without risks but if we really take a slow approach at it i think the team here will make sure it's right Councilmember Silva. Motion. Right, prior to the motion, I just wanted to just add a comment, and that is, is when we think of these, what I would ask is, is that when we look at the risk, you know, the time is a risk factor. As we hear, what's what's the value between a shorter period versus a longer period? It doesn't require an answer now, but I would, I would, um, I'm supportive to walk down a path to understand this better. Obviously, post redevelopment, Sacramento trying to do revitalization. They continue to change things, and what are they going to change in the next few years? Do we jump on one bandwagon only to miss the next one? Because this is the challenge that cities are facing: is, is how do we provide infrastructure at costs that cities can't afford? And so, I, my uh, recommendation also in this, the way I feel is, is, as staff goes through this, is to also research those areas where. It is, it's been fully um, implemented. And what do we learn from them? What, what are the lessons learned from those? And what is the length of time? And those that may have either done it alone and those that have done it in partnership with counties so that we really have a good understanding of you know, what is the risk? What are the benefit? Is there a, an opportunity where we don't have to look at 50 years, but there's, a, there's also a limited side to the return that you'll be able to get for the investment. I think it'll help us make a wiser decision depending upon what we learn um, after tonight as we go forward. So with that, um, Councilmember Silva, do I have a motion? Uh, motion to approve 9B. Second. We have a motion and a second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? No opposed? 
All right, so we've received the presentation. Thank you very much. And that's to direct staff to begin this discussion with the county and to see where we can go from here with the comments. So appreciate it. Thank you. Mr. City Manager, item 9C. Thank you, Mr. Mayor and members of the City Council. This next item is another presentation, this time from Marin Clean Energy, related to alternatives for renewable electric supply. And uh, as Mr. Sebastian Kahn from MC uh, joins us here at the podium, I'll just introduce it uh, real quickly a little bit of background. Um, the city's the city strategic plan uh, includes objectives for uh, promoting climate and energy sustainability, along with support for green energy and renewable alternatives. And so with that, and then based on council's uh, interest that you've expressed in the past about becoming a net zero uh, community, as well as um, you know, our interest in compliance with our general plan on these particular policies. I felt it was appropriate to invite uh, Mr. Khan here to give us an update on uh, what MCE is doing in Solano County and what they could possibly do for our community. So with that, I'll turn it over to Mr. Khan who will walk you through his presentation. Sure, you can go to the podium and, and turn on your microphone. All right, well, thank you, Mr. City Manager, uh, Mayor Carley, Madam Clerk, members of the City Council. My name is Sebastian Kahn. I'm a Senior Community Development Manager with MCE. Uh, MCE is a Community Choice Aggregation Program. We are a not-for-profit public agency that enables cities and counties to have more control over the source of the electricity for their city uh, residents and businesses. I'm also joined tonight by my colleague, Jenna Tenney, who's our manager of brand communications and community engagement, and really thrilled to be here tonight in Vacaville. Um, a little bit more background about MCE. There are 37 communities that are members of our Joint Powers Authority, all of which have voting representation on our board of directors, which allows for local decision-making and the ability to provide clean, renewable electricity on behalf of residents, businesses, and municipal facilities. Tonight's presentation is brief. Um, it's an introduction to MCE, just to give you a sense of who we are as an agency and our governance structure. And with that, I think we can dive in. So as mentioned, we enable 37 different jurisdictions across four counties, Marin, Napa, Contra Costa, and Solano, uh, with the ability to purchase clean, renewable energy on behalf of their communities. And this slide help illustrates how that works in practice. So as you may know, all electric customers' bills includes two main portions, the generation component of the bill and the delivery component of the bill. MCE is responsible for the generation component of the billing for our communities. We buy and build cleaner energy. And you can see that demonstrated on the left-hand portion of the slide. Now, PG&E is still involved in the process. They actually deliver that energy across their transmission and delivery uh, distribution lines. They do things like address service outages, they send monthly bills, but the end result for the customer is that they have a choice of where their energy is coming from. So they can remain with MCE as their generation provider, or they can always opt out and return to PG&E service. Uh, you know, as a community choice aggregation program, choice is in our namesake. It's something that we really value and the customer should have that choice when they are considering their energy options. So next slide, please. And just to give a little bit more background about community choice in California, 
2002, there was Assembly Bill 117 that passed that allowed for community choice aggregation programs to exist. It's the type of agency that MCE is, and really at the core of what we do is to offer an opportunity for cities and counties to come together to offer folks a choice of their electric provider and the source of their electricity. Again, we are a joint powers authority, similar to a waste district um, or a water district. And a JPA is helpful with, within the context of energy because it allows for communities to combine resources to procure new cost-effective clean energy that is locally controlled by a board of elected officials. MCE was the first community choice program in the state of California. We started in Marin in 2008 and launched service to customers in 2010. And now 13 years later here in 2023, we serve 580,000 customer accounts across four different counties, which equates to about 1.5 million residents and businesses, all receiving their electric generation from MCE. And we have three investment grade credit ratings, and we were the first uh, CCA in the state of California to achieve that. Uh, and if we could cycle back to the previous slide just real quickly, um, as you can see, we were the first CCA, but certainly not the last. This is a movement that's grown across the state of California with hundreds of cities and counties now participating from Humboldt County to San Diego. There's 24 active CCAs throughout the state serving 11 million customers in the state of California. So it's a model that's grown quite a bit since we started in 2010. Next slide, please. Uh, here's just a quick map of our service area. As you can see in Solano County, we serve the communities of Fairfield, Benicia, Vallejo, and the unincorporated portions of the county. In total, within Solano County, we serve about 98,000 customers. Um, and we typically see about an 87% participation rate in MCE services, meaning that when all of these communities were enrolled, about 13% of those customers in total opted out of MCE and 87 have remained with MCE service. Next slide, please. Now, one thing that all CCAs have in common is our governance structure. Uh, all CCAs report to and are regulated by the same state agencies that PG&E is regulated by, including the California Public Utilities Commission and the California Energy Commission but the difference with CCAs is that we have a locally controlled board of elected officials. And you can see that here uh, with MCE's board. So the way that this works is each city, town, or county that MCE serves appoints an elected official to represent their community. And our board meets monthly at public meetings to determine policy, uh, rates, customer programs on behalf of their communities. The benefit of this structure is that it allows for transparency and rate setting and customer program implementation to best fit community needs. So in other words, we are required to meet state regulations, but we are also subject to your local control as a community. And Vacaville, if they chose to join MCE, would have the opportunity to appoint somebody to our board of directors. As you can see here in Solano County, uh, Supervisor John Vasquez is one of our board members. He served on the board since 2020 when unincorporated Solano came on board. And uh, in neighboring Fairfield, Councilmember Doris Panduro has served on our board of directors uh, for a year and a half now, uh, as that city has enrolled in MCE service. Next slide, please. So I wanted to be very clear this evening about what MCE rates entail and what they do not entail. Uh, admittedly, you know, 
folks when they're analyzing their village month, it can be a little bit confusing, uh, but I don't think it needs to be. And I, I wanna help break that down a little bit more for you. So as mentioned, we set rates for electricity generation only. The only thing that MCE is providing is the generation services, really where the power is coming from, how that power is being sourced and how it ultimately ends up at the homes of residents and businesses. We do not set rates for electric delivery. That's the transmission and distribution component of the grid. And we do not set rates for natural gas. Those are not things that MCE controls. And we know that those are both components of the bill that make up a large portion of what folks pay for their utility bills each month. So what we are responsible, responsible again for is that electric generation. And with MCE governed as a joint powers authority, communities gain more control over their electricity generation for their communities in a way that they do not otherwise have without a CCA in place. Uh, MCE, MCE's rates are typically set once a year and these meetings take place in a public forum. And additionally, all rates are made publicly available with a 30-day review and comment period before they're actually decided upon by our board. So again, transparency by local elected officials in the rate setting process is something that we really value at MCE and I think is a, a chief benefit of the CCA model. Next slide, please. So really the power of MCE is our ability to reinvest in our local communities. Since 2010, we've eliminated over 700,000 metric tons of carbon emissions from the atmosphere. And just for scale, that's the equivalent of the emissions produced from consuming 1.6 million barrels of crude oil. So a pretty, a pretty incredible number. Uh, we've invested over $214 million in the 37 member communities that we serve. That's through uh, the different rebates and customer programs that we're able to offer. Uh, we have rebates for electric vehicle charging infrastructure, for energy efficiency upgrades that commercial properties can take advantage of, uh, all things that are extended to uh, our member communities. And last but not least, we've created uh, and supported about 2.8 million labor hours uh, through our clean energy, um, you know, building of new infrastructure. Uh, all projects built in MCE service area require 50% local hire and prevailing wage, and all projects over a megawatt in size are also built with union labor. Next slide. So I did want to highlight the steps to, uh, that are required to join MCE. The first step is for the city to submit two forms to PG&E. These are non-binding agreements. They're not a commitment to join MCE. The intent really is to notify PG&E that a new community is considering joining a CCA uh, and for MCE to begin the process of analyzing the technical data associated with serving customers in your community. So that process has actually been completed at this point. Again, these are non-binding forms, not a commitment to join MCE, uh, but those have been signed by the Vacaville city manager with guidance from the city attorney. Um, so that's one step in the process that's already taken place. The next step in the process would be to pass an ordinance to join MCE and for us to be able to submit our formal uh, community inclusion plans to the state of California. Uh, our goal at MCE for any community that wants to join in 2023 is to have a second reading and pass an ordinance by the end of June in this year. So that would be the next uh, milestone for the city council to consider if they wanted to move forward with MCE. Um, again, there are 37 different communities that have gone through this process. So 
at any point, if you have questions, you know, we're happy to uh, work with you on what that would look like and provide staff reports from some of those communities that we've worked with already. Um, and then from there, after the ordinance is passed, uh, the mayor would sign the signature page of MCE's Joint Powers Authority. From there is really kind of where the, the heavy lifting on MCE's end takes place. That's when we do our technical analysis with a third-party consultant uh, who really analyzes how we would best meet the energy needs of the community. You know, what are their new resources we would need to contract with? Um, how much demand you actually have as a community? That information would be presented to our board of directors, again, that locally controlled board, um, typically in October or November of the year, and they would be able to review that technical analysis and say, yes, you know, we want to move forward with this. At that point, we would submit a new community inclusion plan to the California Public Utilities Commission, and typically they get back to us um, in the spring of the following year. So the CPUC would likely notify MCE um, about our plan and whether or not it's been approved or not in March or April of 24, which would allow the city of Vacaville to join MCE and begin enrolling customers in the spring of 2025. So again, there's no cost to join MCE. There's no tax dollars associated with this process. Uh, but these are the steps to join, and uh, I would just say that if there are any questions from the city council, um, we're always available for you know outreach and, and questions as well. Uh, again, we're a local public agency, so all of our information is accessible online, uh, members of the community as well. But with that, I'll just say thank you and see if there's any questions this evening, and really appreciate the opportunity to present here. Thank you for that. And there are questions. So, Councilmember Roberts. Yeah, a few questions. Um, I'm fairly passionate about renewable energy and I mean, drive electric car, have a bunch of solar on my, my roof. Um, uh, one of the issues I also have is, um, yeah, current rates are outrageous, especially with PG&E, because electricity is about four times to twice as much as going over smut in Sacramento. Is where I work. Yeah, charging my car costs like seven bucks out there, but twenty dollars out here. Um, how do how do your energy production rates compare to current PG&E rates? Because I know the transmission and utilities and gas those will stay with PG&E, but for production, what is? Sure. Yeah, total total cost of bill for the average customer is running at about a percent cheaper than PG&E right now with our standard service. We don't always claim to be cheaper than PG&E. That's not something that we we claim to do. We're subject to the same market conditions that PG&E is with procuring that energy. So we have been about cheaper cheaper than PG&E, about 50% of our time on operation, uh, and currently about a percent cheaper, but not something that we always always claim. And then uh, for those folks that do have solar, how do you guys process net energy metering and usage? Yeah, great question. So we we do have our own net energy metering tariff. And for those that are not as familiar with the terminology, it's basically the way that solar customers are compensated for their excess generation. You know, in the event that you have solar panels on your home and they are um, maybe overproducing in the summer months and creating more energy than you can consume on site, NEM is really kind of a balancing mechanism that those customers are compensated on an annual basis. Um, based on what they used and what they um, exported back to the electric grid. So we do have our own tariff. Um, I will say right now that uh, our compensation structure 
is about twice the wholesale rate, so which is two times what PG&E pays on their annual cash outs. Um, and happy to provide any additional information about the tariff to you. Um, you know, it is admittedly a complicated topic the way that you know the metering works, but happy to support with any further questions you might have. Yeah. So do you guys do like an annual true up, or do you guys do monthly? I know PG&E is trying to go monthly, which greatly disservices the customers. We do have a monthly model, so it's it's um, those. Those, those distribution charges are set on a monthly basis and the customer is cashed out at the end of the year, uh, typically in April. And there is a new proceeding um, from the Public Utilities Commission, like more colloquially known as NEM 3.0, um, which is encouraging the investor-owned utilities to move to that monthly model as well. Um, so that's not something that MCE has control of necessarily, but mm -hmm. you know, did want to call that out. So I know that going to the monthly model will, like particularly me, I know most people solar will cost them significantly more a year because like right now, say my system's only producing 50% of energy coverage. Whereas during the summer or from May till like August, September, I'm producing two or 300%. Mm -hmm. And the amount that you're buying back doesn't compensate for the underproduction during those months, but if you go to annual true up, I may overproduce 100%, but so I'll be paying my solar payment for my lease or my monthly payment to sure. pay off the solar and increase. Uh, for example, like the first year I had solar, I went from paying a couple hundred dollars a month, three or $400 a month to having a electric bill of $60 for an entire year, entire year where that wouldn't be true with a month to month. Uh, I know they are allowed some people, I think there's an opt out in M3.0 where you can stay in M2 if you kind of grandfathered in that way. Before, and it's it's like an April 15th date, yeah. yeah. So for the, would that grandfather carry into if we did switch over to MCE as production or because we'd be changing providers, would that change the the NEM status for those that already have solar? You know, I haven't been asked that question before, and I'm happy to provide some more guidance. Um, okay. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I will say that we govern, our board governs our own NEM tariff, so the compensation rates by which folks are paid out yeah. and cashed out annually is something that MCE has control over. But I think yeah. Jenna might have some more info on this. Yeah, I just wanted to add a little bit more information. So MCE's NEM policy has always been on a month-to-month -month basis. Mm -hmm. So since we started, it's always been month-to-month, -month, which is different. Um, the way that we work with customers is that the intent of the month-to-month -month policy is that what you're talking about during the summer when you are accruing all of those credits, they stay on your bill, right? So let's say you're transitioning from summer into fall, you're not generating quite as much, but you're also not using quite as much yet. So your credits from the summer are going to cover those fall months. And the intent is that your balance over the course of the year is similar, even though in like January, February, right now, you would be paying a larger bill, your credits for the summer are going to be a higher amount. So the intent really is that it nets over the entire period of time. Yeah. I kind of get that, but for a lot of people that do have decent systems and are, and own their systems, it's 
it, it doesn't balance out. I've, I've done the math on my own because yeah, when public utilities commission comes out and says, Hey, we're doing this. I was like, yeah, granted you're, you're not going to be stuck with like, yeah, at the end of the true up, I may have like a couple hundred dollars, a thousand dollars. I do have to fork out at one time versus $80, $90 here. But in the end, the month to month costs more at the end of the year than doing an annual true up. So that's something I'm concerned about. I know a lot of people that own solar are, if they're grandfathered in already, and then we do switch over, does that reset it? And where we're stuck with a month to month versus the NEM 2.0 from previously. So your your solar agreement, your interconnection agreement is with PG&E. Mm-hmm. So if you were to switch to become an MCE customer, your interconnection agreement doesn't change for which NEM tariff you're on. Um, but if you did switch to MCE, you would be moved to that monthly um, payment system because that is how MCE operates. So we do have customers that really benefit from that monthly system because they may be paying $1,000, $2,000 at the end of the year and they really can't afford that. So they prefer those smaller monthly charges. But we have other customers who prefer to have that annual true up and we just let them know, hey, if you if you want to do that, you got to stick with PG&E. So it's just a matter of how you prefer to have Who makes those decisions? Is it the board that can change whether it's annual or monthly? <laughs> no. So those decisions... So well, yes. So MCE's NEM policy is a monthly policy. So if we decided to change the way that that policy operated, that would be our board of directors. Okay. But every individual gets to make the choice on how they want their personal account to be managed. If they want to stay with PG&E and, and have yeah. that true up, or if they want to stay with MCE and have that monthly billing. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, for people like myself, I know other people that have solar that are that want the renewable energy source that really want to support it, but in the end may cost us a lot more a year to do that. Uh, makes it a very difficult decision because yeah, well, I fully support like what you guys do. It's awesome. But financially it may impact a lot of people adversely. Yeah. We, we do find that most of our solar customers like the monthly billing, but definitely completely. We, we, most of our calls are solar customers helping explain. So totally understand. Appreciate the answers. Thank you. Councilmember Silva. Um, thank you, uh, Councilmember Roberts, for the questions. Um, only one I want to add to those is uh, the concept of opting out. So if this goes through, um, at what point, like with the suggested timeline, at what point, uh, can you please explain that timeline? Definitely. Yeah, so we, first off, I'll start by saying that we're regulated by the California Public Utilities Commission. We are required to send four different pieces of collateral collateral notifying people of their change to MCE. So typically those take place 60 days before enrollment and 60 days post enrollment. So um, I'll use the city of Fairfield as an example, folks enrolled in April, 2021, 2022. And so those notifications started in February, 60 days. So there's two sent before that and two after. All of those notifications mention uh, the choice that people have about their energy and how they can opt out. Um, it also includes information about public workshops that we're hosting. We had, for our previous enrollment, about seven community workshops where folks could drop in and ask questions about MCE. Uh, but the short answer is that it's um, a 120-day period where folks can opt out for free and return to MC, return to PG&E service. Uh, after that, there is a $5 administrative fee to return to PG&E once that 120-day window passes. 
And then, um, and I'm sorry, uh, the timeline, um, sorry. So the, no, it's a. Uh, I think I it's the, the final slide. Yeah, that one. Oh yeah, you're right. Um, so the, when, when would that time period start? I'm sorry, when, uh, when it would be effective? Yeah, not included on this slide. This is more for the, the steps to join, but that process would begin assuming that you all move forward with this um, in February of 25. And then uh, the, so what would you be offering the back of a residence as far as the workshops? So, uh, yeah. so I heard you say the four uh, correspondence, like getting letters, postcards, and then the seven work. Is that what you guys are would commit to? Yeah. So me in in my role and and Jenna's role on the community engagement team, we craft dedicated community outreach plans for any new community that's considering joining. And so um, we work with staff and community leaders to identify. What are the forums that MCE can engage with, whether that's local business associations, local chambers of commerce, local community-based organizations, who are really the leaders in the community that can help us get the word out, and we implement that plan from there. So it could be anything from tabling at farmer's markets to speaking at community town halls, uh, doing online workshops. We, I will say we're also hiring for a bilingual community development manager for Spanish-speaking needs as well. So that's something that we'd be able to include. Um, it's really up to the city. I think we do the heavy lifting on our end to get ourselves out there, but we um, we appreciate any guidance that, that you all would have about groups that would make sense for us to connect with. And then, um, thank you. Uh, and then the other question I have is, the uh, you, you mentioned that the board, can you clarify about the rates? Um, so I know Councilmember Roberts was asking um, about different rates, but how is it that the the board, uh, the elected representatives, how, what is their scope or scale of influence on the rates? How would, yeah, and what how would that process work, or how does does that process work? They approve the rates on the generation side of things, so it typically comes at recommendation of staff. Um, you know, these are public meetings, so they receive a staff report and presentation from our staff um, explaining what the proposed rate changes would be. Um, there's distinct subcommittees of our board. So there's an executive committee and a technical committee. Typically when we're doing a rate change, um, which really only takes place about once a year, if at all, um, it goes to our technical or executive committee first. That recommendation is passed to the full board. Um, once the executive committee makes a recommendation on rates, there's a 30 day review period where everything is posted publicly. And we're required to notice customers as well about any rate changes that are taking place. That's an annual process? Uh, it, it depends, yeah. I mean, we, we typically only set them once a year. It's never been more than once a year. Um, whereas with, with PG&E, those are set you know, multiple different times throughout the year. And so I think that's one of the benefits of the CCA model. But yes, once, once a year. Thank you. There's a lot of lights up here, so it may be standing there for a while. Sure. Vice Mayor Wiley. And one other question on that. So those are set over all 37 communities or whatever. It's not each one has their own meeting. You have one rate for the whole shebang. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Right. And I will say that I know a lot of people who have been interested in MCAE for quite a while. It did come before the council four years ago when 
I don't think anyone was on here then because we're all pretty new council members. Um, and I did talk with a person from Benicia just last night, and he just said that the opt-out program was the issue that came up before when we did it. But he said since they started in 2015, their participation has been really steady. They have over 80% to start with, and they've always had 80%. So that told me that people are pretty happy with the way things are going um, with MCE. And, and I and I like the opt-out program better than the opt-in, so that wasn't an issue for me. But I do have a question for you. Because you have been building, you know, starting with Benicia and then you're adding more and then, you know, Fairfield, Vallejo. And, and then if we say yes, we would be in the pipeline not until 2025 is what you just said. Will you have enough bandwidth to serve all the communities that are signing in so that we still get green energy? You're not just giving us a different kind of energy than PG&E, you know, just a different name because the whole point is to have greener, cleaner energy, and how do you, how are you going to find the sources for generation of more and more people? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Um, the first part of that, I'll say that you know because we're regulated by the California Energy Commission and the CPUC, we would not be allowed to serve the city of Vacaville if we didn't have the procurement practices in place to be able to meet that demand for your community. On the clean energy side of things, we have what's called our Operational Integrated Resources Plan, which is a publicly available document. It outlines how we intend to get power to serve our communities and which sources of energy we're serving those communities. Um, that's a, a document that's posted annually. Right now, we forecast at a 10-year um, look ahead. And so our intent at MCE right now is to be 85 75, I'll clarify the number. I'm not totally sure off the top of my head. Uh, I believe it's 85% re renewable by 2029. And so these are things that we're already planning for long-term. How do we continue to identify clean energy within the state of California and beyond to serve our communities? And on one of those tables, it, can you pay a higher fee and get 100% cleaner fee? And yeah, we have a product called- that, that each individual customer could decide to do that? Again, it's all about customer choice, right? Okay. So they, they can be with pg e they can receive MCE service, they can opt up to our 100% renewable option. It's called Deep Green. Um, it does cost on average about five or $6 more for the average residential customer. Um, and we see across our service area about a 2.2, 2.3 participation rate in that. Um, so it is an option that folks have if they wanna get that 100% renewable. Service. And the people that I have been talking to in a climate group, um, some of which who sent emails in supporting it as well, also said that they saw this as a choice for people who like the idea of solar but can't afford to have it at their house so that at least they felt like they would be doing something better for the environment rather than you know purchasing their power through PG&E. So I, I do feel like it, it does help some people who want to help, but have a different way to do that. So thank you for coming tonight and your information. Thank you. Councilmember Ritchie. Thank you so much for coming out. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. There's a lot of great comments. Uh, Jason has a very deep knowledge of, of the subject. Um, this is great. Um, it's exciting that we're here, it's an opportunity. I think the real thing is about this is choice. Um, I'm, I'm not a subject expert on this, but I, Last, we I think we met um, last year. I tried 
twice to bring this to the council. Um, and we're glad we had the opportunity to meet um, and we're here. So I'm glad that uh, this opportunity is a choice. Um, and and I, I think people need every opportunity to have clean energy, make the choice to either get traditional old, old power or something that's a combination of full green or you know 85%. But if it's a reduction to the bill, that's what I'm happy about. I mean, if, if it gives people a chance to save money, one thing I, I didn't get clarification on is, is there any adjustment for like low to moderate income or if you're handicapped or if you have if you have disabilities, if you say if you're medically re retired or your disability is a VA, is there any reduction that you might get for your bill? There are a number of programs that are offered with that customer segment in mind. Um, at a state level, there's the California alternate rates for energy care, which gives folks about a 35% discount on their monthly billing. Regardless of CME or PG&E, that transition. Anybody can sign okay. up for that, correct. Um, for MCE-specific programs, during the pandemic, we knew that people were really struggling with, with paying their utility bills. And so um, we implemented, our board of directors implemented um, a program called MCE CARES Credit, which gave folks that were already on that state care program an additional $10 off um, on their monthly bills, which I believe ended up being about a $6 million investment uh, to help with low-income customers and their ability to pay bills. So our board has discretion to you know, design programs like that as well. We, we have, back when we have a large population of people that are 55 and over, and we're doing we do some pretty good things to have a whole new community come at Green Tree to help that continue. And the Solana County is awesome. It has the highest per capita of retired military personnel in all of California. So there's, by default, we're gonna have a lot of people that are retired above 55 and probably have disabilities that are medically tied to their service. So I wanna make sure that our 55 and over that are not military and 55 and over that are military with disabilities will get a chance to have a little more break because the cost of living here is getting expensive. Councilmember Chapman. Great, thank you. Councilmember Stockton. Yes, thanks for the presentation. Um, <clears throat> great questions from my colleagues. Thank you very much. Um, how much of this power is actually going to be generated in Vacaville? And do you have any, like, do you have any solar farms here? Or do you have any? Um, about that a little bit sure so we have what's called a feed-in tariff program it's a program that allows local developers to contract directly with mce to sell us that energy at a fixed rate of return over a 20-year period um to my knowledge i don't think we have any projects in vacaville at the moment but you know if there are developers that would be interested in in partnering with us certainly happy to to have them I think the best example that you all could reference uh, within Solano County is a project we have at Lake Herman in Benicia, uh, a fairly large scale solar development there that is um, enrolled in that feed-in tariff program. So across our service area, the four counties that we serve, we do have about 48, 48 megawatts of power um, directly in our service area that are taking, they're participating in that program. So. The Benicia one is probably your best bet um, if you want a reference point locally here in the county. 
Okay, and that's a solar farm. Do you, what about storage? Do you have battery storage facilities? We well? do. We we have battery storage at both a local scale and a utility scale. Uh, it's a requirement of that food and tariff program that I described to have a battery storage component. Um, that on site. On site, yes. Um, and then we also have, um, I believe it's a 75 megawatt project in Kern County in Bakersfield um, that's providing that you know dispatchable load. And for any members of the council that may not be as familiar with, with this, um, the real benefit of battery technology is that in the state of California, we have all of this energy on the grid from solar, right? And when the sun is not shining, you know, we don't have a way to capture that energy. So I think a lot of the investments that we're seeing um, at a local level from agencies like MCE, as well as at a federal level, you know, with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you know, that, that sweeping climate legislation is enabling more battery storage. So I will say that uh, recently we received $500,000 in federal funding specifically for battery storage in our communities. So it's something that we are, are really interested in uh, continuing to build out. What, what type of batteries do you use, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, typically lithium ion right now. Um, you know, I know that there are uh, some conversations about um, the saltwater technology as well, but not anything that our board has considered at this point. It's, it's typically lithium ion batteries. Councilmember Roberts. Yeah, sorry, I just spurred another question uh, uh, from Councilmember Stockton's questions. Um, yeah, we have some potential like large scale battery uh, storage options coming in town. Um, would they be tapped into the MCE network um, because they are within city limits or? They certainly could be. I mean, there, there's nothing to preclude those developments from partnering with MCE. If, if they're building it, we'll, we'll buy it, you know, as part of our um, our purchasing and procurement strategy. Um, so, yeah, I would say that that's, that's an open thing that could be considered. And I assume, like, your procurement energy strategy is fairly competitive, like, to compare it to PG&E. So it'd be a feasible business model for them to adopt the MC or selling power back to MC. You know, I, I don't work in our procurement department. I'm not a procurement specialist. Um, I'm happy to provide some more information about that. Okay, but I can just send you an email. Sure. Or something. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, energy is a very important subject. I think for everyone cost is, is a, is a factor. There's no doubt, uh, looking more towards renewables is, is responsible. Uh, but more importantly, in the moment also, is just you have to have that along with a, st a stable source. Sun goes down, storage is required. And I know that we're kind of in an evolution of energy of the future, especially with demands at the state level, putting mandates on communities and energy providers that does not yet exist. And so we're in that conundrum of driving towards um, a solution not yet completely uh, resolved, but I certainly commend your presentation so far. Um, it is all—it's always an interesting concept to consider um, options and choices. Choices sometimes lead to innovation and and more of a competitive environment. So I know, at least from my perspective, um, there's no doubt that there is a need for um, what it is that we're being asked to consider tonight. Uh, but with that, I want to open it up to the public for comment. So thank you.
My name is Margie Stern, and I'm really glad you turned the heat up in here because I was wondering if you guys were trying to save energy. Um, well, I was freezing there, and I was like, oh, maybe we really need this uh, project sooner than later because it was cold in here. Um, I also wanted to just make a comment about that most of this evening, most of the vocabulary that has been used tonight has been so foreign to me, and I didn't understand like much of it at all, and so I just wanted to commend you guys for being up there, and also for my late husband, Ernest Kimmy, for, for when he sat up here, for understanding what people are saying when they come up and talk about all these projects, because I was just sitting there, I have absolutely no idea, all this financial stuff, so I just wanted to say thank you so much, because you guys are awesome, and you rock with all of that. So I just wanted to come up here to say I support this project with looking into the comments that you had, um, Councilman Roberts, about solar and cost and true up and, and end of the year. So I'm really interested in finding out about that. But I think that we know that it's um, clear from his, histor uh, existing historic data that we're facing a climate crisis. And from wildfires, intensity storms, and droughts, and we all want to leave a sustainable planet for our children. So I think that looking into this as a choice and to help Vacaville become part of the solution, uh, when we have Benicia, Vallejo, um, Fairfield, and unincorporated areas all having signed up, Vacaville needs to kind of look into this. And it reminds me a little bit of when I before any of you guys were here, when I changed the chicken law in, in Vacaville so that people could have chickens in the backyard. And every other city in Solano County, except Vacaville, had a law for that. And so here we are again, we're the last one. So let's do it. <laughs> Thank you. Three, three chickens. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. It took us two years to do it. And you know what? The back of a reporter has a rooster as the logo. Uh -huh. Right? <laughs> Thank you. I just have a quick question. So, Councilman Roberts, on, on your concern about the true up, you know, so, okay, so I have solar panels. The panel stopped working. There was an issue. And SunPower is like, not very customer friendly right now. I don't know why, but it took eight months for them to fix it. So my true up was like $1,200, but I didn't have to pay it all at once. So I could, here's my question. So with MCE, um, say someone for whatever the reason has this horrible true up bill and say that can they avoid it by switching back to PG&E? That's, that's what I'm wondering. So when I see the bill, I might think too, to rate the MCE rate and then whatever PG&E's charging. I just like, what's, what's, how's that going to look like on my bill? But so I'm, I'm just curious about the switching between providers. Can, can a customer kind of get away from an MCE bill and, and jump to PG&E and vice versa? Anyway, that's it. Thank you. One else before I close public comment. All right, seeing none, I'll close public comment on this item. Um, I think you've heard a lot of, from everyone here, maybe in some multiple times. I know this is to receive the presentation. It also is for staff 
direction. Is there anything else that is needed in this, Mr. City Manager? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Well, as uh, one of the slides indicated that if the city is uh, interested in pursuing this in, in rolling, there you go, um, it does require the council to pass a resolution and ordinance. So we would need direct, if you're interested in doing that, we would need direction from you all to begin that process so that we can come back with the necessary um, materials for you to officially vote on that. Sorry about that. The item doesn't say anything other than direction. There's no motion in this, but. No, so we can simply just get a, a group consensus that you'd like us to come back with this, and that will be, you know, sufficient to for us to go ahead and move forward with bringing it back on um, another request with an official action by the council. And uh, with that, um, Councilmember Silva, when would the outreach be done before the ordinance, or? Can you clarify the question what you mean by outreach? The when before we make an ordinance, is MC going to be educating the public on what it is, or is that something that's on us as city council members? That takes place later in the process. We typically don't do outreach until um, you know, that enrollment date of 2025. So not something that we would be doing. Uh, if I could just ask a clarification question. Uh, so, Mr. Khan, um, we do this ordinance to say, let's go to the next step that you have there on your list. Um, to address the councilman's concern about public outreach, assuming we then go through all the outreach and everything and we hear back that it's not something that, you know, is, is favored by the council. By us adopting that ordinance, does that mean that we're obligated to finish through and complete it? Or, because I think that's what you're getting at, is you want to hear from the public first before you make that final commitment. Is that correct? So I guess, if you could clarify, if we adopt an ordinance that says we we're interested, we want to go forward with the process, but then along that public hearing process or the outreach process, they hear some not favorable you know, feedback and say, we'd like to, to halt this. Are we able to do that? And you mean after that second reading of the ordinance and the yes. ordinance is passed. Um, Jenna, I'm not sure off the top of my head, do you know? Um, yeah, so two things here. Um, no, once the second reading has passed, you have made the decision to commit. Um, if you decide not to move forward with the second reading, then that, that's totally fine. So if you did a first reading and decided, you know, we got public comment, we feel like we need to hold off either if that's like we want to wait and come back to this in a month or we have just decided we're going to table it for this year both of those are fine that's totally up to you um i'll just also add that we will occasionally support outreach efforts so for example if you all wanted to advertise to your community a um, community meeting about mce and invite folks to come for a special meeting to city hall or any other facility in your jurisdiction, um, we would be happy to come and speak, but we won't necessarily facilitate the actual like outreach with the public to get them to come and attend, but we would be happy to come and speak to the public for you. Councilmember Chapman. Um, I was just reading the, uh, the yellow. There's no cost 
2023. So if we don't make it by December 31st, you're going to begin implementing a charge for individuals expressing interest, not public in, uh, agencies. No, and apologies, that's not the most clear verbiage. Um, there's not a cost to join MCE in general. So the, the date in 2023, I think is, is less relevant there. So just to be clear. Okay, so that's insignificant. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, based on this comment, I think the direction really is less, there's additional information that anyone wants to provide is, is for staff to move forward. And, uh, but it would be beneficial to potentially have a public meeting and outreach so that there is more conversation and discussion sooner rather than later. And then clearly based upon that, uh, maybe providing more feedback so that as, as that goes through the process, we go through the ordinance, which does require first and second, so that there is a due diligence. Um, I can imagine that some, some don't like to have to opt out of something. They would rather opt in. And so some of this community outreach, one of the challenges that the council often faces is poor communication. And so I would just suggest that we direct staff a, to have a, a robust outreach to the, to the community on where we're going from here in all our forms of advertisement and then move towards um, a resolution before June 30th. Does that sound good? If you want to say so. And I would just say, Mayor Carley, if, if I may, um, I wanted to apologize for, for that comment. I think it's, I, I wasn't totally clear. It's not something that MCD would do proactively on our own, but to Jenna's point, if the city wants to do that, of course we would partner in that. To, the, to your point is, is that you would make, you would avail yourself for uh, anything that we would do. So the community engagement, people can ask questions just like we have. Obviously this is recorded so more people can actually watch it. Good questions sometimes make a meeting go long. It also allows for due diligence for a, a discerning public that wants to know and have answers. Energy is very important. So this is, this could have real potential for Vacaville, but we just want to make sure that we're doing what's best for the community. So thank you. Good. Thank you. And with that, um, we're going to move on to item 9D. Mr. Mayor, members of the council, this next item is um, it's related to uh, selection of your commissioners for both our planning commission, Parks and Rec Commission. Um, this is uh, a process that we initiated last year. And so it's once again that time of year. And so to lead you through that, um, our city clerk, Michelle Thornbrew, will walk you through the process for that. Thank you, Mr. City Manager, Mayor, Vice Mayor, and Council. As you know, the City Council or the City has two commissions, the Parks and Rec and Planning Commission, which have staggered two-year terms. The terms for commissioners in appointed by Council Representatives in Districts 1, 3, and 5 are expiring on March 31st. In accordance with the city's commission appointment policy, we opened the application period for residents interested in serving on a city commission on December 20th, and the application period was open for 30 days, closing on January 20th. Uh, the applications received have been reviewed, and tonight, council members representing districts 1, 3, and 5 have proposed 
nominations for the mayor and council's consideration and ratification. And with that, I will hand it back over to Mayor Carley to let the council provide information on their nominees. Thank you. So um, just slightly different than the prior um, way, which was during COVID. Um, what I would like to do is, is just go down and, and ask the, the, the district council members to introduce their nomination or their nominations so that we can uh, just, we'll start with district one, we'll go district three and district five. And uh, if you could just um, introduce your nomination for the planning commission, then also the parks and recreation commission. So I'll turn this over to council member Stockton to do that. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. One, uh, I'm excited to retain the services of Planning Commissioner Chair Klein. Uh, he's served um, for me for the last, uh, I believe, year and a half, year, um, and has done uh, a great job leading that commission. And so I'm going to retain his services there. And for our Parks and Rec Commission for District 1, I'm also going to retain Commissioner Sean McMahon. He's done an excellent um, job, works well with the group, and I look forward to him continuing to look out for the interest of the people in District 1. All right. With that, I'm going to move on to Councilmember Silva. All right. So for Parks and Recreation, uh, I'd like to continue. I'd like to nominate and um, uh, allow, uh, request the Council Mayor and Council Support, Danielle Shea. She's a local educator, um, a mother of uh, some beautiful children. and. Uh, I think uh, her voice is an added representation of uh, not just uh, all kids, um, but particularly kids with special uh, special needs, unique unique abilities, and uh, I think she brings a unique perspective to our parks and recreation uh, that's very open to the, the diversity that we have throughout this town. Uh, for our planning commission, I'd like to nominate Noel Vargas. Uh, he as well uh, served uh, our city uh, the past year. I've uh, been very dedicated in. Uh, making sure he stays on top of the information and uh, advocating uh, for things as well. Uh, he does not live in District 3. However, um, having to get to know uh, Mr. Vargas, uh, growing up in winters and growing up um, around some of our low-income areas, I think uh, some of the unique, the unique uh, experiences uh, and issues that uh, pertain to planning, uh, that pertain to families, um, that will live in some of our uh, low-income areas. Uh, I, I feel that uh, his voice and perspective is is needed and valuable uh, as we as he continues to serve the city of Vacaville. And they're not able to be here because I want them to be with their family tonight. So. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Councilmember Roberts. Yeah, um, I'm back uh, for Parks and Recreation. Uh, I'd like to reappoint. Uh, Mary Vasquez been the chair of the Parks and Rec Commission last year, this last year. Um, then for Planning Commission, I'd like to appoint Ashley Banta. Um, she is actually resides outside the district, but she does have some education in civil engineering, uh, works very closely with low income and houseless communities, worked closely with crew uh, from the police department. And just her experience and knowledge of low income housing, how to navigate that and the needs of the community, uh, I think she be an excellent voice on the planning commission. And thank they're you. both here. They... Great, great, thank you. And with that, I'd like to um, open it up for a council discussion if there's any comments from the council. And before I will then open it up to 
both the public but also members of the the commissions that are potentially being reappointed and also being selected potentially for the first time. So anyone on the council want to make any other comments? I see Vice Mayor Wiley. I would just say I'm very happy with the people who are appointed uh, make good choices because they have a good service record. And I also want to say that I was really happy to see so many applications. I mean, two people applied from District 6, even though District 6 doesn't have a spot right now, but they were considered by everyone. So I just think it's great. I don't know exactly how many applications we had, but we had a, a good number of applications. So we have people interested in serving. So I appreciate everyone who wanted to be involved, and I thank everyone who has served and will continue to serve. Thank you. Uh, seeing no other lights up here, I'm going to open it up for anyone in the public who wants to comment, but also for those of you who are here and uh, are on the commission and want, want to speak and address this council, uh, I will open it up for you now. She beat you to Yeah, be used to talking for Ashley. Well, uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Ashley Banta, and I've met everyone, almost everyone here. Um, I do not live in District 5. I do live in District 2, actually. Um, but I did live, and I've lived in District 3 at once as well. I've lived here in Vacaville for four years. And like Jason Roberts said, I believe I have a unique perspective coming from low-income, um, generational family, low-income, generational poverty and navigating how to get out of that system um, is a unique perspective that I bring to this. And I, like you said, I do have an educational background in civil engineering and my lived experience that I've shared with some of you has pushed me into the human services and the helping realm. And I feel like this is a perfect place to start to get into the community and to kind of blend the two, the two fields, the engineering and the planning and the, the homelessness, the low income and the all the things that come with that, the two of them together. So I thank you for your nomination and I'm Thank you. Oh, now you're gonna change your mind. You don't have to use all your time, but just come up and I'm well this is weird being on this side again. Um and it's actually really bright and it is it has been pretty cold. Um hi everyone, thank you um for the nomination or um, recommendation, uh, Councilmember Roberts. Um, looking forward to continuing on Parks and Recreation Commission. I'm currently serving as chair and hopefully doing a good job facilitating, um, you know, meetings that folks feel confident and comfortable sharing um, their opinions and their experiences um, that help better guide um, the Parks and Rec team and staff. Um, I really appreciate working with the Parks and Recreation um, Department um, and really looking forward to continue um, serving on the commission under um, Director Hubbard's um, guidance. So looking forward to that and the team and um, just thank you for the nomination and for the consideration and hopefully the reappointment um, and just appreciate um, working with all of you as well. I know I've reached out to you all um, uh, randomly here and there when parks and rec issues come up in your districts and so i'm um, just looking forward to continuing working with you all thank you thank you else being none i will close public comment and bring it back to the council um, i've had the opportunity to uh, watch this process clearly seeing the process from the the prior 
when the staggering started, this council had some discussions um, at, a, at a more recent council meeting as far as to understanding some of what this process is since we've gone to districts and having representation. And notably, you're a Vacaville resident, whether you're in a district from appointment. The key is, is the, uh, the council being able to participate in the process of identifying what's good for Vacaville. At the same time, our appointees, um, they serve the entire community. At the same time, they also can focus on individual districts so that we have both the macro and the micro view and can be informed as a council. And that's the benefit of having the two commissions that we have. And so it's been a pleasure to walk through this path and discussing some of these with, with members of the council and reviewing a lot of candidates, uh, the way it works if someone does not know. The, the existing list is good for six months in case there needs to be an appointment. That's never the anticipation, but for those who applied, thank you. And, uh, and with that, I will accept the nominations as presented tonight. And to not uh, delay the, the process, I simply, with both the, the Parks and Recs Commission and the Planning Commission, based, unless there's any other decision that wants to do it otherwise, simply to, by simple motion, ratify these appointments. So with that, I am just going to ask all in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed? Seeing none, congratulations to our reappointments and to our new member, Ashley Bonta. Appreciate you joining. You're the newest member, so you have a lot to, uh, to learn. But one thing that is important that some people do not know, you undersold yourself for, with your prior experience. And that information simply was attached to this, uh, to this agenda item. So you have a lot of experience and perspective to gain. And I, for one, have appreciated getting to know you. So thank you. And with that, we'll move on to the next item. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the council. This next item is a presentation from our Parks and Rec Department, um, giving you an update on the Parks and Recreation Commission's um, ranking of the top five priorities uh, from the Parks and Rec Master Plan. And as our Parks and Rec Director, Mr. Hubbard, and his assistant, um, Nemo, join us to get their presentation set up, uh, I will just give a quick background that this is a, a kind of a challenge that I um, gave to Mr. Hubbard earlier on, uh, shortly after we approved the Parks and Rec Master Plan. Um, that was a significant uh, effort that was completed uh, with their guidance and direction and certainly with input from uh, the Parks and Rec Commission and then ultimately approved by this count or the prior council. Um, but to ensure that this document, this very important document, did not just sit on the shelf. We wanted to make sure that we began taking the necessary steps to implement it. And so I think what um, this exercise did is actually gave them an opportunity to evaluate um, all the materials that have been put into it and some of the other documents that our team over there will um, give you some more background on and then how they came up with the recommendation before you tonight so that as we begin the new fiscal year uh, coming up shortly, um, council will have some you know good information on where um, our next move is. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Parks and Rec Director, uh, Mr. Hubbard. Uh, good evening, Mayor, Vice Mayor, and City Council. I probably should have given Aaron my talking points because he covered them all <laughs> in his introduction, so I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, the last time I was here, it's been a while, 
um, I was asking the city council to approve the park and rec master plan. Uh, and you did that in 2021. We've subs subsequently been working with our park and rec commission um, to get to this point. Um, so we're going to, Nemo's gonna take the lead and we're gonna run through the process that we've gone through in addition to the projects that um, are contained in the park and rec master plan. So I will turn it over to Nemo. Good evening, Mayor, Vice Mayor, uh, Council Members. Good to be back. Um, for those of you who I haven't met, uh, my name is Nemo Gonzalez. I'm a park planner. Uh, uh, I don't know if you can tell, but uh, it's a requisite that you have this uh, haircut <laughs> if you work for this department. Um, the presentation is kind of long, so I'm going to get started. Uh, uh, the purpose of uh, our presentation tonight is uh, like uh, a city manager and, and Director Hubbard have indicated, it's just a prioritization of uh, some of our park projects that are uh, uh, outlined in the Park and Rec Master Plan. And with that, uh, the first slide here is a project timeline. Uh, so staff's approach for tonight's presentation was to rely on the nearly 10 years of uh, community outreach conducted from 2011 to 2021. This outreach was in preparation for two documents that helped guide the city of Acreville's evolving park and recreation needs. And those documents are the uh, recreation needs assessment published in May of 2013 and the park and rec master plan published in April of 2021. Now, these documents have uh, several overlapping community requests. Apologies. And some of those are uh, trails, bikeways, gymnasiums, multi-use rec center, linear fields, dog parks, and additional pool facilities. Some of these other documents uh, inform uh, the Park and Rec Master Plan. For instance, the rec uh, facility assessment was uh, conducted by the same consultant that prepared the Park and Rec Master Plan. So those were two concurrent efforts, but the uh, outcome of the rec facility assessment was actually taken into account when the Park and Rec Master Plan was published. So, uh, this presentation was previously brought to the Park and Rec Commission twice, once uh, as a list of 10 top projects that the uh, department uh, identified. And then we were subsequently asked to bring back the top five once they had ranked uh, those top five to a subsequent special meeting. And so these are the results of that, uh, that ranking effort. And with that, we're gonna jump right into the projects. Uh, the Davis Street Gymnasium is also often referred to as a skate center. It's located on Davis Street uh, within a commercial center and is adjacent to movie theater, gas station, coffee shops, restaurants, and I-80. It's a privately owned building and a former redevelopment agency initially contracted with the property owner and that agreement was transferred to the successor agency once the redevelopment agency was dissolved. Uh, it's important to note that the successor agency is a separate legal entity from the city. Some of the bullet points uh, of the agreement with the property owner include uh, the city subleases one of the three pods. Uh, the sublease expires in September of 2025. The agreement gives the city the option to buy uh, the leased pod, so the one that's uh, up in red. The agreement also gives the city the option to buy the entire facility.
the two privately operated pods run ice hockey and ice uh, skate programs. And the city operated pod runs gymnastics, basketball, volleyball, and hosts private birthday parties. Now, this is a, a fairly, uh, I would say that the programs that are run out of this facility are fairly popular. Uh, the total number of participants for gymnastics in 2022, uh, technically it's only 11 months of 2022, were 7,478. And that includes uh, 3,529 for a program and 3,949 for open gym. The number of participants for basketball in 2022 were 523 with 99 on a wait list. And the total number of participants in volleyball for 2022 were 555 with 51 on the wait list. So essentially that indicates that we don't have enough facility to service all of those uh, on the wait list. So what's next for Davis Street? Uh, we have just over two years uh, to do one of the following options, and that is either to renegotiate the sublease uh, negotiate one of our purchase options or leave the facility for a new uh, facility to host those uh, existing programs. Our next park uh, or facility uh, is Nelson Park. It's a community park that is uh, originally master planned in, 19, in the 80s. I believe it was constructed in 1990 uh, to have the following uh, 108 parking stalls, place structures, informal trails, benches, and two lighted softball fields. Uh, the Nelson Park Master Plan was revised in 2019 and brought to the Park and Recre uh, Recreation Commission where it was recommended with the following proposed amenities, uh, 51 additional parking stalls, an inclusive playground, water play, mini ball field, fitness station, enhanced entry, picnic shade structure, and three uh, pickleball courts. One of the things that I haven't talked about previously, but uh, it just popped in my head earlier today is the fact that um, I've only been in my role for about a year and uh, a lot of that has been reading uh, previous documents. And the city historically had a, uh, a joint use agreement with the schools here in Vacaville. And so uh, you'll find a lot of the parks that are adjacent to existing schools often shared facilities with those schools. Uh, and uh, schools, uh, you know, because of the times have uh, chosen to uh, fence their facilities off. And so some of the things that have historically been available to residents are no longer. Um, and so oftentimes, for instance, at Meadowlands, you'll find that the loop was never completed because previously you had access to the school. Now uh, we're finalizing that project uh, with some Measure M funds. But this is also one of those um, um, park sites that uh, uh, is adjacent to a school and the original master plan accounted for a third uh, softball field, but that softball field went into the school property, but the school property is no longer interested in pursuing that. Hence our effort to revise a master plan. Uh, at the January 6, 2021 Park and Rec uh, Commission meeting, the revised master plan was recommended to go to council for approval. Uh, and because of extraneous factors, uh, this has not occurred yet, but it will happen early in 2023. Um, our department is currently working with our design consultant uh, on a presentation and a phasing construction plan. Uh, 
Our third project is the uh, sports field complex. Uh, the Park and Rec Commission, uh, I apologize, the Park and Rec Department commissioned a, a sports field performa. It's a type of feasibility study uh, in 2019. And some of the areas explored in that uh, performa were market demand, cost and space analysis, financial and operational feasibility, and visitor impact analysis. So the only viable site that was identified in the pro forma is indicated here in red. And it's adjacent to the Easterly uh, Wastewater Treatment Plant. Now some of the program amenities uh, considered include the following. Um, soccer, rugby, cricket, lacrosse, basketball, volleyball. So the performa, uh, essentially, one of the major tasks that they had were uh, reaching out to key stakeholders and potential user groups, um, which included, you know, VYSL and a lot of other um, uh, athletic leagues. Now, uh, the end result of the performa is essentially um, lots of different scenarios for, for full build out. And one of the key things that they recommended were a minimum amount of uh, fields in order for it to be economically viable. So what's next? Uh, this is true possibly of all the projects that we'll talk about tonight, uh, but uh, uh, Securing a funding source uh, is, is a major uh, obstacle for this to move forward. Uh, environmental assessment, plans, entitlements, construction, and uh, a direction to move forward with the site that was identified in the performa. Trails and trailheads. Uh, the city has over 17 miles of well-used multi-use and uh, nature trails. The city also has significant inventory of trails that are only uh, partially documented. And Vacaville also has 2,000 acres of open space, but very little in the way of uh, formal trailheads, maps, uh, trails, and adopted rules. Now, most of the existing uh, mileage that is accounted for as a formal trail is located at Lagoon Valley Park. There are currently no uh, city-run programs operating in our, tra our trails, uh, but they are heavily used by non-city uh, organizations like schools and scouts. And when it comes to development, the city has recently adopted DIF that includes a provision for additional trails and trailheads, but that hasn't kicked in quite yet. So uh, mid-2023, we'll essentially start collecting um, funds to build some of the trails. Because the collection of the funds uh, is reliant solely on development, uh, there's no horizon on when we could have enough to fund uh, any of these uh, potential projects. What's next for trails? Uh, we recognize that uh, there will be a day when funding uh, trail and trail, trailhead projects will be possible now that DIF is being collected for that particular reason. And so we offer an alternative of recommending a trail uh, master plan project. Uh, this uh, master plan document would be a tool to help us, uh, uh, our, de our department in particular, establish some development design guidelines in a holistic manner. And I believe this might be our last project. 
and it's a new multi-purpose recreation center. So in 2019, uh, I alluded to the fact that the city had commissioned a recreational uh, facility assessment. Now the purpose of the assessment was to gather preliminary information on our existing facilities to enable staff, commission and council the ability to make informed decisions regarding the facilities. And the results varied on uh, the three sites that were uh, studied. Uh, of the three uh, facilities that were assessed, uh, the two that provided active or sports programming are the Duke and Davis Street Centers. So because of the outcome of the preliminary assessment, a recommendation was made in the subsequent Park and Rec Master Plan uh, for a new multi-purpose recreation center that could fulfill some of the needs of our growing community. So in the uh, Park and Rec Master Plan, the facility is estimated to be 50 to 70,000 square feet. Uh, but the final programming would be uh, determining the final size of the facility. And what, I'm, what I mean by programming is essentially, are we going to have, are we going to run gymnastics out of here? Or are we going to run basketball that has a minimum uh, size requirement? And that will dictate what the building looks like. Uh, while a tentative site is listed as Centennial Park, other sites uh, still can be considered. And generally, staff recommends an existing city-owned site for fiscal reasons. Uh, if we eliminate having to procure or uh, acquire additional land that we currently don't own, then that's another cost. And in preliminary discussion, staff has recommended the potential program elements listed on the screen now. So what's next for the new multi-purpose recreation center? Uh, as previously mentioned, the Park and Rec Master Plan identifies Centennial Park as a possible location. Um, uh, because of its uh, central location within the city, uh, a current effort to wrap up the Centennial Park Master Plan includes such a facility and should be wrapped up sometime this year. And regardless of the final location, we are in need of funding mechanism for environmental clearances, entitlements, and construction. I just want to highlight that uh, the site plan and the rendering that's up on the screen is actually um, a brand new multi-use uh, purpose recreation center that is uh, going to be constructed in Elk Grove uh, that is being managed by Elk Grove CSD. And uh, so I've been sort of collaborating with my counterpoint there and she's been sharing information with me about their bidding process. And so I've got all of the, uh, their very recent data and uh, costs for that facility that should start, it should break ground sometime this year. And with that, uh, the commission recommendation is for the presentation of all five projects to council with the prioritization of a new multi-purpose recreation facility and staff concurs for the reasons that are listed above. And with that, we'd like to request that by simple motion, the city council directs staff to explore funding opportunities for a new multi-purpose recreation center. Thank you for the presentation. Any member of the council have any questions? All right. Questions, uh, Councilmember Stockton. Can you just go back to slide three? I always find these ranking things super interesting to see who wanted what first, and they're not weighted. And so, I want to 
look at that while maybe the public is chatting. So I'm going to have a photo because I can't write all that down. And I want to provide a little bit of context. So this, this ranking was from our first presentation. Uh -huh. And obviously, so the way that it worked was the more points that you uh, sort of assigned to a project, uh, that was your top priority. So 10 is actually number one. 10 is good. Correct. Uh, and I should indicate, obviously, that in the subsequent meeting that the commission had, obviously priorities changed because it's not the same number one. And that's because we brought additional information that provided some context for some of the information that we had shared in the first presentation. So I guess my next question would be for you, Mr. Reggie, uh, Mr. Director. Um, where would you rank these? I would rank them along with the commission's recommendation. Okay. There was a lengthy conversation at both meetings, the meeting in November and the meeting in uh, January uh, for hours with this, with our Park and Rec Commission. And, you know, they're the experts, but at the same time, we work together to come to these conclusions. And based on my experience here in the city of Vacaville as a recreation manager for, uh, you know, 15 years and now the director, I've seen um, that the city needs an indoor recreation facility, right? We have the Georgia Duke Sports Center that was erected, I think, in, in the 80s, and that's the only facility we have. We've tried to remedy this um, with working with the school district and having joint use agreements, but to no fault of the school district, they're using their facilities as well. So it's hard to get creative with scheduling to get in, the, in those facilities. And so I would absolutely go with the recommendation from the, from the commission and their work, the work that they did. So I got a follow up. Okay. So the first one that was recommended was the Davis Street procurement. Correct. What option, what, which option do you recommend and why? And to follow up with that, I don't know anything about hockey, how many kids are playing hockey. I know it's privately owned. I know it's really expensive to buy the gear to play hockey and some of that stuff too. But um, could you explain which option you think is best for, for that portion and um, whether or not if the city bought the whole building, um, they would keep those rinks or if they would be used for other activities uh, you know that's a great no great question great question i think there's so many unknowns to that facility we're not sure what the condition is um, of the other pods um, and so we wouldn't know what kind of um, additional maintenance and construction that we'd have to do to that facility it's almost better to i shouldn't say this but tear it down and it's, it's a great spot great location but we there are just too many unknowns um, so for us we would say we would continue to lease um, the facility so that way we have that option, maybe make some minor upgrades to it um, on the basketball side. But if we were going to invest in purchasing that facility, we'd have to do an analysis and have an expert come in and do that. Um, and then you admit, I'm sorry, and then you'd mentioned um, the cost for the newer facility, similar to what Elk Grove has done. What is that cost? The for the Elk Grove facility in yes. particular. So they have, they must have a really good consultant. They had seven bids come between 29 and $30 million. Wow. So it's really tight, which, you know, in a past life, I, when I worked in consulting, I know that if I'm getting seven bids that are coming in that tight, that's a, that's a really good set of plans. Um, they had a performer that they conducted in 2019 that uh, had estimated, um, the the facility costing close to 27 million so 
that tells me that either prices are coming down or so the general rule of thumb is that inflation has gone up more than double digits, um, you know, in the last couple of years, which is an anomaly. Um, but for whatever reason, this is coming in pretty close to what they had estimated. Lastly, just wanted to thank you both and as well as the Parks and Recs Commission, a tremendous amount of work obviously went into this. And so I really appreciate the in-depth analysis, the discussion that you had and um, bringing this to us today with kind of the why behind the, the order and, and the need for the community. So I just wanted to say thank you. Councilmember Silva. Yeah, thank you. And I'm sorry, can you go back to the, the list of ranked projects? Um, So I know in the in the past I've I've talked about a senior center. Um, Duke was recently renovated, um, so I'd like to see that back on there. It's uh, inter interesting, um, but I think there's because there's different different needs um, that we're trying to address. Uh, Alpatch Park has come up publicly. Uh, when you know how do we complete that? Um, Request for pool has come. We've heard about that with trying to tie that into other projects, other development projects, uh, which gets, I think, a lot of our minds, you know, uh, thinking about how we can maximize it. Uh, the family fun zone, uh, would that be part of the Centennial Master Plan or is that like something that's segmented? Yeah, that would be a part of the Centennial Park Master Plan, a, a, a phase of the Centennial Park Master Plan. Yes. Okay. And then, um, okay, so. You know, um, and so what you're looking for today is to continue uh, whether or not you should continue looking into uh, coming back to council with options uh, with some numbers is for those top rank five. Is that what you're looking for today? No, what we're looking for is the council to direct staff to look for um, uh, funding options to go after a multi-use sports facility. And a disclaimer, I will say the other projects that are on the list, we won't stop making attempts to get to those projects. Like for the Alpatch Park Master Plan or the Nelson Park Master Plan, we're continually working with like California Consulting, looking for grants and looking for other ways to make those projects happen as well. We're just saying that this project is the number one priority for, from staff's perspective and from the commission's perspective. But uh, those other projects, will we will try to push those to make them happen. Okay, thank you for clarifying. Can you go back to the slide with the multi-purpose the example? Talking about the Elk Grove one. So just, I know we're using this as a reference. Um, the, and I'm sorry, go back one more previous slide. Uh, so these listed, this is, this is just, it's not, we don't have any data on this. It's just something we're suggesting roughly based on current data and, and demands. Uh, sorry, potential program elements. That's correct. Uh, we have a little bit of, so all of these projects are within the implementation chapter of the Park and Rec Master Plan. So to Director Hubbard's point, none of them are going away. They're documented and our intent is to eventually execute as many as possible. Uh, so some, there's some data points in the Park and Rec Master Plan that identify some scope. For instance, they identified the fact that uh, potential site could be Centennial. That's in the Park and Rec Master Plan. They identify a size of 50 to 70,000 square feet. So that those data points are directly from the Park and Rec Master Plan. And some of the potential program elements are, are derived from internal discussions with staff. So for instance, to Director Hubbard's point, if we 
continued our sublease uh, at Davis Street, you know, uh, that's a recommendation because there's no way that we can execute or, or build a, a new park and rec, or I apologize, multi-purpose rec center in the next two years. And so we have to have a contingency plan and our best bet is to stay where, where we are and run the programs where they currently are ran out of. But eventually, potentially this would be a new home for gymnastics and basketball and indoor pickleball or whatever we decide to locate in the facility. So, mm -hmm. what do you mean, an expansion? Sorry. Um, as as uh, Nemo explained earlier, we do have wait lists for a lot of our programs, so we don't have enough room at the Skate Center and or the Georgie Duke Center. So, having a larger facility would allow us to expand programming as well. I think the you know I know the indoor soccer over so over break um, you know there was a lot of folks signed up for the private uh, indoor soccer league or program um you know every a lot of folks are sticking around i don't i don't see that trend really changing over the holidays or the winter one months the dark months um finding a place that's you know i know we're having a wet season <clears throat> um but i think uh and that building's extra wet inside uh, but i think that you know the, the point is that people are looking like I, I would agree people are looking for indoor um space or they're looking for lighted space which is another issue um because they, you know, people are looking to be active, uh, you know, not to go to a elaborate story, but when I lived in LA, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, uh, you know, the situation, I know it's come up with conversations that I've been in for maybe four or five years now, uh, but there, because there's no parks, literally like, there's no parks. If you ever look on a map, you see, if you see green fields, it's a golf course. Um, and so you have like soccer fields that are divided up uh, four ways one large adult soccer field, four ways to have four different teams practicing. Then you have like 10 feet of space on the perimeter where if you're not on a team, you're, you're practicing. And uh, even the, uh, um, the school sites, they'll, they'll shut off the lights once the teams are done. But then um, all the youth, the teens, like they'll turn on their cell phone lights set around the perimeter. And like, I don't know how, how the heck they see the basket, but like they're, they're banking them. So um I, I don't like I'm very mind when I see these in these experience like one I see the resiliency in people but it's a matter it's more of a matter of just making sure that there's a place for people to go um, you know that's safe and that they're you know doing something positive uh, and obviously it's showing that there are a lot of families that are desiring that um, my my issue my I guess my my feedback for this and I might be solo on this but you know uh, I shared it at a one meeting uh, randomly. Um, on a related topic, but what I've heard from the community, so there's there's a couple of things. So um, number one, I see multi-purpose rooms that have like this eight mile, it's like a multi-story building. There's like this eight mile track on the, on the interior side of it on the second story. It's open up to the first floor. Um, one vision, and I know it would go up, you know, I'm not, it's gonna go above the 30, but um, one vision has that, you know, three, stack it up. So three stories, for example, and then um, these, uh, it's an, a place that, that can handle ballet, ballet, a place that can handle dance, a place that can handle jujitsu, the different martial arts, um, you know, Muay Thai, whatnot. Uh, a lot of local business owners are struggling to find affordable uh, places to rent, um, you know, in their business model. It's, it's not something that's super lucrative. And so I'm, I'm curious to see something that takes a very small footprint that helps address many families of, of all ages 
Uh, and that which where it comes down to the, the next feedback I was getting from from uh, folks. And a lot of it's anecdotal. I don't have a large study on it. And I don't you know, I, would, I imagine we don't either. Um, but I don't uh, there were, what I heard common with a lot of families is I wish I wish I could take all my kids to one spot. I didn't have to, like, run them across different parts of town. Um, and then likewise, they, you know, they can have their adult workout session while the kids explore whatever it is. And so if if this is something that council would uh, wants to proceed with, I would ask council to support um, staff looking into some type of option like that to either eliminate it or or not um, to where we can build space that can be subleased out, replenish some type of cost, also allow it large enough to host events to supplement, you know, some type of cost similar to VPAT. Um, I don't think it's going to be lucrative at all um, for the for the city, but I think it's a, a balance between um, helping uh, a lot of these smaller businesses out, helping out the demands uh, and requests and interest of families across the town, um, centralizing that in, in this uh, venue. Uh, it's not exactly a sports complex per se, but it's something that um, it's something that can host these events that, again, have a smaller footprint than some of the other suggestions. Uh, so that would be my feedback on this particular item. Um, we, we still haven't opened up to the public questions, and then we're going to bring it back. Can you guys do that? That's been a smart, smart um, No, thank, thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I'll, I'll, I have more comments, but I'll, yeah, I will, we'll I'll honor that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, not to cut you off, but we'll, we'll bring comments back. Uh, Councilmember Chatham. Thank you. Um, a couple of questions. The Nelson Park that is adjacent to Baca Pena, um, you had stated that uh, at one time there was supposed to be another field built. However, it would have encroached on the school district and that at the time the district wasn't interested in selling the property. What were you trying to accomplish by um, in, in communicating with the school district? Well, as Nemo alluded to earlier, uh, historically the school, school districts and cities have joint use agreements and they share use. Right. Uh, this was previous to, um, unfortunately, school shootings and people getting on campuses um, uh, and doing things they shouldn't be doing, right? So the schools started to uh, fence their areas in. And right. so where the additional field was going to go for Nelson Park, it would have protruded over into the school district property, but now it's fenced off. And so we can't, there's no um, appetite for them to, to have that use agreement and, and go that route again. So. Okay, so I guess what I'm uh, trying to learn is, um, was any did any discussion take place with the district in regards to selling that piece of property so that you could go forward with the uh, with the additional field? If nothing else is over there near there, the, there there are portables there now. Oh, they have portables yeah. there for over. We're, yes. Okay, then I will, <laughs> I'll let that one go. Thank you. I'm not finished though. Um, the Davis uh, complex. <laughs> There is a waiting list for children um, for the various sports. And by the time we uh, get something in place, they will be probably would have aged out or aged beyond uh, their desire to want to play that sport. Um, so I can't see, personally, I can't see waiting 
much longer to get something else in place for these other children that are interested in um, in, in the various sports where we have the wait list. So I am definitely, I'm going to say, I, I am really interested in a multi-purpose recre recreation facility. So I won't go any, go, and plus with the uh, Davis Street property, there's a lot, in my opinion, there's a, a lot to be desired there for the entire facility. And I couldn't see the city uh, investing uh, there are a few options that we have, you know, to lease or to possibly purchase that one pot that we have or purchasing the entire uh, facility. I'm thinking that the amount of money it would take to bring it up to standards and to expand would not be worth, uh, it wouldn't be worth putting the money into it. And so I could see looking at the multi-purpose. Those are my, red, that's my reasoning for that. A sports fuel complex is ideal. However, right now, I don't think it would be accessible to all. I don't think it would be easy. It wouldn't be easily accessible to the entire city because of the location and uh, some families that wouldn't have the means to patron the park and be able to take advantage of it. Um, so that would be on my back burner. Um, Do you have any questions? I'm going to open it up. Questions. Oh, I'm sorry. You did ourselves. say questions. I, I apologize. Uh, I'm going to come up with a question because I, I'm not ready. Okay. And my yeah, final you have questions. And then we'll yeah, come I on. have a, and I apologize. I don't want to be like my colleagues on the other end. They just oh, ramble energy. on and on. Okay. As I move on. I do need to say this, and I did share with, right. with the city manager that I was going to put it out there, and he's told me there is, there would be a time, another time, that we would get around to the neighbor neighborhood parks. Remember, I did mention that to you that I was going to put it out here, and um, I would like to. And is this the time that I would ask them to possibly speak with you about? getting on the agenda again to let us know what the status of the neighborhood parks are in regards to, you know, we have some districts that have uh, parks that need quite a bit of help. Yeah, so let's so do that's this. A question. It's a great question, but Thank on you. this project and yes. whether we do it after this or we can do it. I can the, quickly answer that. But question. if you have a quick answer, okay. then we have. Yeah, more I questions. think we're going to cover that at your Mar March 17th meeting. I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? So when we do that. That's that was my Perfect. question. See how easy that was? Okay. I ended with my question. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Roberts. I just had comments always. Okay, well, I'm going to open it up to the public. Thank you. Anyone want to comment on this? Thank you all for the reappointment also. Um, I would know. The chair of Parks and Rec Commission gives a bio break at two hours. Um, so four hours is a long time to go that you all are sitting there um, on your tushes and not going potty. Okay, 
Um, so I did just double check with Council Borba, wanted to make sure I speak for myself and not on behalf of the commission. Um, but I would say, you know, the slide with all the rankings, it was really hard coming into that commission meeting and trying to figure out like, how do I rank all of these? These are all a priority to really all of us on the commission, but for myself that, um, you know, they're all important. They all need work. Um, we all live in, and play in this town. And so we know what some of our facilities look like. And so it's really important that, um, just to note that it was really hard to, to rank those. Um, and also, you know, I think that um, for myself, like just really ready to see the Measure, M's, Measure M funds put to use. Um, this is a really exciting opportunity to build our own brick and mortar um, multi-use, um, multi-purpose center. Um, we know that there's a need. Uh, the Parks and Rec team has brought over multiple times, you know, presentations on programs that have wait lists. Um, I think post-COVID, they've seen um, increase in participation. And so it's really time for us um, to build something great and beautiful. I also had similar comments about building it high and having a walking track indoor, indoors. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's an exciting opportunity. Um, I also would note that, um, you know, we need a facility, an indoor facility that we can use year round, not only just in the winter, but also now we're in summer when we're facing high heat. There's, you know, issues now with air quality and fires. And so I think it's also an important opportunity for us to have an indoor facility that we can use um, and have kids come indoors when um, the air quality isn't good. Um, and let me see if I had any other comments or thoughts. Um, Let's see. Um, and I think also to your note, Council Member um, Chapman, you know, I think for myself personally, too, I think we still need to look at neighborhood parks and and definitely start investing in those, too. And so um, getting Measure M funds out to the neighborhood parks. But thank you all for considering this. And um, I hope we can move forward on a new multipurpose center. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Anyone else like to speak on this matter? Seeing none. I'll bring it back to the council, and I do see uh, lights lighting up. I, I will simply say thank you for the presentation to begin with, and clearly this is an important subject both to the commission, to the community, to this council. It is interesting. I, I'm not the only one, it looks like, that looked like how do you rank choice priorities when you want to pick them all and there's not enough money for them all? And so sometimes priorities have to be chosen. And um, my questions got answered as I reviewed this and also listening to the questions, but I would say this, it is important when we look at how do you program raising children here myself, um, using the rink space, you, you have all these things and there's just not enough space. And you know, what is, you know, what is that forward thinking uh, future of Vacaville? And, and yet all of these, if we could, we could have them all, we would, and the neighborhood parks are important as well. And so, um, I, my understanding and my belief, and you shared it tonight, and that is selecting this as a priority is, is investing staff's time and resources to go after something so that we can prioritize because staff has to be able to focus on it and that's what you're looking for. And yet at the same time, any one of these other projects could become fully or partially funded or, or in parallel prioritization, but the emphasis is to say we need direction and this is the recommendation. So the last comment, and then I'll, I'll start uh, calling on my colleagues, is um, 
it is it would be an expensive item and yet when we look at the master plan for centennial and what we're trying to create for vacaville um, it requires an investment and a commitment and so that is that is something that i i wholeheartedly support i also would say that year round two thank you for your leadership working with the commission and that is is now that everyone has rank choice a lot of times it's probably with personal you know feelings opinions personal agendas right i want this i want that it doesn't mean that one would look at this and say here's the number one priority and somebody else says well you're wrong because it's just the opposite it's sometimes personal choice and experience in life and yet you walked the commission through an exercise of understanding the real needs and then collectively driving down to a needs assess, uh, assessment from 10 to 5 to now really getting to it and identifying this as a priority. And that task is not easy, so thank you. And with that, I'm going to call on my colleagues, uh, Councilmember Roberts. Ah, there we go. Um, yeah, actually, happened to sit in the Parks and Rec meeting where you guys did all this live and figured it out. Um, yeah, generally I agree with the, the list, um, but going forward, um, this is, Parks and Rec is in like a fairly unique position where you're not just for the city, it's also part of tourism and economic development. So I'd highly recommend everybody, all you people get in one room, like for example, the Davis Street procurement with the ice rinks there. A lot of people don't know the NHL sponsors local ice rinks and dumps a ton of money into them because that generates interest in hockey, uh, gets people interested in sport, and with, in turn, they go watch hockey games like the Sharks or something. So there's funding outside of the city. You just have to look outside our local area. Uh, San Jose is quite far from here for look at, like, but the NHL does sponsor a lot of different things. Uh, same thing with like a sports complex. Um, Americans don't like to admit it, but soccer is by far the largest sport in the in this country as well as the world. Uh, and so, like, just drive by the Davis soccer fields on a weekend, and it's packed. There's always people there. Um, so it's not just while well, we do have to balance what we need here locally, we also have to look at what will draw people in from outside that will spend money here in our community but not big enough to where it pushes out the local teams and local players. Um, yeah, it's like going along with the, the trail improvements, that's mid-pack, um, but that's my guess is that's probably the cheapest of all the items on there to accomplish. And a lot of people go to Lagoon Valley, like on a week, I know people that drive from like Santa Rosa come down, then they'll go hike because there's not many spots to hike there and go immediately downtown to go eat food. So it draws in the crowd to downtown because it is relatively close to Lagoon Valley. And as we're trying to improve the downtown, getting more foot traffic down there on a weekend would definitely improve that situation. Um, one thing I don't like is that the Walter Graham expansion is down there pretty low. But if we do happen to get a Olympic sized pool over North Village kind of helps mitigate that because uh, yeah, when I was high school and college, played water polo. Um, and water sports is a huge draw, especially for tournaments, whether it's swim meets or, yeah, water polo, <laughs> uh, even dive teams. Um, well, they use, most of the teams use Walter Graham right now because Vacaville's pool is fairly pathetic and Wood does not have one. So going to the joint use agreements, 
with the schools, especially as Walter Graham is like equidistant between both high schools and Olympic sized pool can easily serve both high schools with room to spare. And then there's also the master's club and the dive teams that all utilize that. Then yeah, during the, during the day or during a weekend hosting water polo tournaments, swim meets, I mean, you'll have hundreds of kids and hundreds of parents in town that will need to go eat um, and spend money in our local economy, which will offset the cost of building these things. So it's not just, yeah, building them and it's return investment and cost offset from utilization will definitely help out in getting some of these done. Um, yeah, the multi-purpose rec center, um, I don't know if, Councilmember Silva's had the opportunity to go to Davis's fitness center. It's exactly what, what you're talking about. Basketball courts, a lower floor, tracks upstairs as a martial arts room, ballet room, a yoga room with a full, uh, yeah, it's all in one building. Um, so if you haven't been over there, check it out. It's pretty much exactly what you're talking about. Not sure how much that costs, but you can always ask the college how much it costs them to build. Um, yeah, I mean, I would like a sports field complex, but I think that's going to be insanely expensive at this point. I don't think it's, I, I think after talking to the city manager, we need a ridiculous amount of fields to break even on that. Uh, where if we have to come to money, maybe some of these biotech companies want to pitch in and uh, donate some money and put their name on the fields or something. Um, again, it's like, yeah, thinking outside the box and community benefits packages are awesome, especially with all these companies coming in, donate back to the community. I'd say paying Mr. Patton and Don Burst over there, start bugging the biotech and biomanufacturing companies, as well as reach out to, I mean, we have a lot of professional sports in the area, basketball, Sacramento Republic soccer. Um, yeah, and the Sharks out in San Jose, the NHL might be able to give us a little bit of money, help fix up the Davis Street Center. We didn't want to look at that, so. Yeah, lots of options to look at and yeah, touch base with Melissa Reeves from Visit Vacaville and see what's needed regionally as well, not just for our city. Thank you. Councilmember Silva. Um, I just wanted to add, uh, I guess the only thing I got of value is the this when we talk about sports field complex, that's this one of the first things that was, has been discussed for a while, a few years now. Um, I know, I don't know, we'll see how council goes, but I think for that area, I don't think, I know there's a large demand. Sports is very important um, to a lot of families here. Uh, competitive sports is important to a lot of families here. Um, I think that's always been the concern is, is, is this for more competitive sports versus recreational access? Uh, I'm curious to see, and just to kind of put it out there more so for the public, if there's a, a way for a lot of the comp a lot of um, uh, real estate uh, folks are tied anybody tied into there, uh, I've been seeing certain designs, in different areas that uh, you have uh, buildings that surround the perimeter of these field spaces, and essentially their office view is of the field uh, in itself, and so it's kind of a, a smaller scale concept of how you see a lot of a lot more larger. Uh, professional sports teams where they're trying to build an economy surrounding their professional sport team. Um, similar concept, but a much smaller scale uh, to where you can have your businesses combined with, you know, cafes, with community space, with party, you know, rooms for parties or gatherings for, for the public. 
Um, and then that, that in itself, uh, maybe there's a way to work in where those, you know, they have their business, they got their, their piece right there, advertising, right, right to the, um, to the fields in itself with some stands. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see if, you know, just to kind of put it out there, because uh, I, I would agree, I think at, at this point, the, the feasibility and the ability for us to be competitive uh, in that particular element of sports field is, um, to me, uh, kind of uh, bleak. Um, and I think maybe there's an opportunity for some type of public-private type of partnership concept there. Um, and I'll just, you know, I'll put, I'll put that out. Uh, I think the trailhead, I don't feel like as far as a master plan, I'm kind of planned out um, <laughs> uh, with a lot of things. So, um, you know, uh, the ranking, I, I understand. Um, uh, the Nelson, Nelson Park, though, I, I know that serves uh, softball, a lot of softball players, that's our, our young ladies. Um, you know, and their families, and then other times it's serving, you know, uh, co-ed teams or, or boys uh, teams, particularly like during fall ball. Um, and so I, you know, I, it, it kind of, I, I really like that, that, that build out plan and, you know, but if we have to focus on one, uh, I, I'm just curious to see, uh, I'm happy to support NPR rec center, but um, what, what would staff need to look into these other uh, sports? Uh, maybe that's it. I don't know if you guys can add. Well, actually, the Nelson Park Master Plan will be coming to the council um, next month. Um, yeah, so you guys will be having an opportunity to uh, comment on that plan. Uh, just on the process alone, it's good to have an approved master plan. That way you can go after additional funding. So we want to bring the Nelson Park Master Plan and the Alpatch Park Master Plan to the, to the council uh, next month. I thought Nelson was our, I apologize. I thought it no, was. Nelson was approved by the commission, but not the council. Both both were approved by the commission, but not council yet. But they'll be coming next month. And the master plan I was referring to was for the trailhead. Uh, so I apologize. Oh, the trailhead yeah. uh, master plan. No, that that's that's a suggestion <laughs> in the park and rec master. Plan. Uh, but looking at those other, um, those uh, a space for those other type of sports that weren't listed for the NPR room, is that something that you would that staff would need uh, uh, more than just Mike Silva? Comment on that, or you mind if I take this? Go ahead. Yeah. So, we've got so many discussions to go. If you guys approve the motion tonight, uh, this would just essentially give us direction to uh, focus on trying to move that forward. So, in terms of input from the council on the program or discussions about what this looks like or where where it ends up, I mean, we're just getting started. Okay. Got it. Thank you, Councilmember Stockton. Yes, thank you. Um, <clears throat> Hearing what you had to say about needing needing a multi-purpose rec center, um, I, I agree with um, your assessment earlier about ex maybe extending your lease just for the for the time being right now. Um, I know Vacaville's been talking about sports complexes, right, and what that looks like, um, what it looked like back in 2019, I think, is when they did that study. Um, uh, versus now, um, you know, I, I try to, you know, who knows, right? And then the other thing is, is <clears throat> what are our kids going to use versus what are people going to come from out of town to use? And can we can we kind of have a meeting of the minds to find something that maybe works for both? Um, I, I really like the multi-purpose rec center, but I, I and, and the Elk Grove model is very nice. But I'm also aware of a multi-purpose um, center over at the old Placer County uh, Fairgrounds in Roseville that is remarkable. And it's a similar thing. It's going to be more expensive, I guarantee it. But, you know, it it allows the opportunity to maybe have that sports complex for indoor activities 
and as well as have those opportunities for our kids and hopefully in a location that is accessible for, for a lot of our kids to be able to go to. I think, I think looking at this list that was created for us, um, and that's, um, you can go to at, at like at thegrounds.com and you can see examples of that um, sports complex. It's pretty phenomenal. They have um, basketball courts they, you know, that come down and in a pool and all kinds of stuff that are incorporated. I'm not necessarily saying we need all those features, but maybe something on that scale could accomplish the sports complex um, that we're trying to use to attract people as well as meet our local need. Um, uh, if I was to rank what you have here, um, I, I agree with my colleagues or in, the, uh, in the comments that have been made about the multi-purpose rec center. Um, I think we need to put our kids first and foremost. It's not to say that um, there aren't economic reasons to look after the sports complex, but I, but I definitely think we need to put our kids first. Um, so I would agree with that. That would, that would be my number one. Um, if we can turn it into a sports complex, if there's a way to, um, you know, collaborate with a, a private developer or somebody to, you know, to match some of our Measure M funds to really do something incredible, um, I, I would be interested in that. Um, the uh, the trailheads, um, I, you know, I think that's great, but I but I also do, you know, if we're looking after our our folks locally, I think having a senior center close to Leisure Town, closer and more accessible to Leisure Town would be something that I'd be interested in, as well as whether or not we would, I want to know whether or not we'd be keeping the existing um, senior center or, or using that for some other economic purpose. So um, I just wanted to give you my feedback. It looks like, even though this is like, I mean, there's no perfect process, right, to be able to rank these things, you can kind of see where, where people, where people were on stuff. And there's, kind of a big division for the most part, but I think that when you look at why the Davis Street procurement is important and you combine that with that multi-purpose room need that, that you're saying that we have here, I think it, that clearly stands out as where I would focus my number one priority. And, and I agree with uh, Commissioner Vasquez, it's time that we put this Measure M money to use um, because we know that once we, once we push go, right, we push the button to go, it's probably gonna take more time than we you know, then we want where I'm at. Councilmember Ritchie. I don't put myself on a timer. So, <laughs> ready to go. so little joke is like, it's like, what was I? Well, <laughs> the last two meetings, I, I had somebody watching, see how long each person actually talked. And so it's, it's, it's pretty, it's a fun joke. Um, so I'm at 15 seconds. Listen, I, I appreciate your, uh, I appreciate your report and I really all the work, hard work into it, and the commission had the opportunity to, to listen to the closed session last night um, and really kind of get their two-hour motion of how they got to that point. You guys are the experts, but um, it, it's a keep it simple. It's the multi-purpose is exactly what we need to do. I mean, I was born, raised in the city. I literally had the opportunity to play in the same gym my dad did, and that's pretty. That's pitiful. That's I mean, like the city's grown and we haven't. I mean, it's literally the one gym that we had. The same gym my dad played in an adult league after he got out of the Air Force, and we haven't grown since then. It's time, right? It's um, I had the opportunity to take my kids to a amazing multi-purpose place, and I was I was like a little kid, I was like a candy store. I was running around all over. They had everything you can imagine. This it was called Copa in Walnut Creek. Um, this place had exactly what Silva was asking for. They had rooms, for, they had a workout rooms. They had places where you can actually rent out for daycare. 
they had everything you can imagine. They had it pre-planned. They had indoor facilities. For the, the floors were made for basketball. All the sports teams played on the floors. They had multiple levels. They didn't have a pool. But we had a tournament. They had volleyball going on, futsal, and indoor soccer. They had high school kids coming and playing. They had a full <laughs> workout room. It was insane what they had all under one floor. And it was surrounded by business park. So it kind of, we can't plan everything, master plan. But besides this place, it checked a lot of the boxes that my fellow council members are wanting. Something where the, the community can come to and serve the community is not as much as a tournament, but more of the city back a little bit. I'm all for it. And I'm approaching two minutes. So thank you for your time. Vice Mayor Wiley. I have one question. And that is, are facilities the limiting factor or staff also a limiting factor? It's a combination, but the facilities are the, the factor, the main factor um, historically. Even when we've had staffing to take the kids off the wait list or to expand programming, we just haven't had the, the facilities. Um, that's even when we had an effective joint use agreement with the school district. And that should come as no surprise. Anyone who drives down Leisure Town and sees all the building in town is only going to continue. Correct. So I would like to make a motion, if it's the time, to move this forward. I have a oh, motion on the table. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that was a motion. Do I have a second? Yes, sir. All right. All in favor say aye. 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 Work. <laughs> there you go. Mr. City Manager, we have item 9F. Okay, thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council. Your last and final item for the evening is a um, presentation of our fiscal year 22-23 uh, general fund mid-year budget update. And um, at this time, we also have some budget augmentation requests that we're going to present to the Council for your consideration tonight. We have our budget team uh, here led by Ken Metzamia. Um, Leslie Hoover and John Collette that will be making a presentation for you tonight. Thank you, Mr. City Manager. Good evening again. Uh, next slide, please. So to start off this update, uh, this slide is our kind of how our revenue is trending through mid-year. So on the left column, you have um, our projected revenues as of when we adopted the budget back in June, and then our, our revised projections based off of how we're seeing things through mid-year. Um, I, I know we're kind of late in the night, so I'll keep this really short. The real big takeaway on this slide is that although our revenues are actually, they're trending higher than what we had projected back in June, we are seeing that the growth is a lot smaller than in prior years. And so um, we're projecting revenues to be above um, projections, original projections by about two and a half percent by comparison back in um, back at mid-year last year. Our revenues were trending at about 6% higher than um, what we had originally projected. So still seeing growth, but at a much slower rate. Next slide, please. And this is the expense side. So this is comparing our general fund budget to the expenses at mid-year. Um, on the left side, you have our salaries and benefits. The blue columns are, are the budget. And then the orange columns are the actual. So uh, you have salaries and benefits on the left, services and supplies on the right. And so as far as salaries and benefits go, we're trending at about 48% through mid-year. This is very um, in line with what we've seen in prior years. We're you know, halfway through the year, we're typically around that 48% mark. For services and supplies, uh, we are at 63% committed through mid-year. This might seem alarming um, to be that high committed, um, 
even though you're only 50% through the year. And that, a lot of that has to do with the fact that this committed number also takes into account encumbrances. So those are contracts that um, departments may have entered to in the beginning of the year, but they're for services and goods that are going to be provided later on in the year. So it's not unusual to see that committed number kind of where it's at. Um, for actual expenditures, this is the money that's actually left the door and what we've spent. That's at 46% through mid-year. This number is higher than um, what we've seen in prior years. So last year, by comparison, we were at 37%. If you look at the, the years prior to that, we were typically in the high 30% range. And so this is a, a number that we're definitely going to be monitoring going forward, especially as we get into the Q3 update. Um, it seems like a lot of that increase has to do with the fact that because of COVID, there were shipping delays. Um, a lot of the stuff that maybe was ordered last year didn't get delivered or provided until the current fiscal year. Additionally, you also have um, just inflation and, and costs going up as well, but we'll continue to monitor this. And so I will now uh, pass it on to our financial analyst, John Collette, to talk about uh, trends through mid-year. Thank you, Ken. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Vice Mayor, members of the council. This part of our presentation focuses on revenue trends through the second quarter of the current fiscal year, fiscal year 23, or July uh, 2022 through December of 2022. Trends are based on actual revenues uh, through the first six months of the fiscal year, along with updated sales tax estimates from our consultant, HDL. Property taxes account for approximately 27% of the city's general fund revenues, making it the city's largest source of general fund for second quarter, the city has received approximately 16.6 million in property tax revenue. This is a 9.2% increase. 22. Regular property taxes continue to trend positively year over year, as you can see from the chart on the right, with an average annual growth rate of 6.4% since fiscal year 2000. Property tax category mainly consists of property tax, VLF, uh, vehicle licensing fees, and residual balance and pass-through payments. Sales tax is the second largest revenue source for the city, accounting for approximately 21% of the city's general fund revenue. And Measure M consists of 16% of the city's revenue for a combined total of 37% for general fund revenue. Second quarter, uh, combined sales tax was 26.3 million, represented by the green line on the graph to the right, and that's compared to 25.3 million in fiscal year 22 about 4.4% over last fiscal year. Just below the green line, uh, separated sales tax and Measure M, so we can look at them separately. Sales tax is represented by the blue column and Measure M is represented by the yellow column. Sales tax, the blue column, we received 14.5 million through second quarter compared to 14 million last fiscal year. This is about a 3.6% increase. And for Measure M, the yellow column, we received 11.8 million compared to 11.3 million last fiscal, last fiscal year uh, for a 4.4%. Key categories uh, that HDL are projecting to do well in fiscal year 23 are business and industry, uh, projected 5.1% increase, building and construction, projected 4.3% uh, growth, and general consumer goods, uh, just below a 1% increase for fiscal year 23. These are just a few of the categories being highlighted tonight, but we just want to reiterate that while most categories aren't seeing the increases we saw in fiscal year uh, 21 and 22, we still are seeing minor increases in most sales tax categories. Other taxes besides property sales and Measure M taxes account for approximately 19% of the city's 
through second quarter, revenues are at 11.7 million. Uh, as you can see from the chart on the right, other taxes are flat compared to last fiscal year. Taxes in the category consist of franchise tax, paramedic tax, uh, transient occupancy tax, or TOT, excise tax, business license tax, and real property transfer taxes. Some of the notable impacts um, or categories that are notable, the paramedic tax, which is up 10% year over year. Uh, paramedic taxes are directly related to property taxes. So as we saw on the first slide, property taxes were up 9.2% year over year, and this is a direct correlation to the increase we are seeing with the paramedic tax. Real property transfer taxes, which are related to the buying and selling of real estate, we've seen a decrease of 32% compared to fiscal year 2020. Talked about the decrease in real property transfer taxes in the first quarter budget update with rising interest rates and consumer uh, fears of a recession, uh, also unknowns, unknowns in the economy. And this has translate, translated into a decrease in home sales, not only locally, uh, but statewide and nationwide as well. We also talked about TOT in the first quarter update. Uh, TOT, or the transient occupancy tax, is a tax based on local hotel stays. In fiscal year 21, which was the height of the pandemic and lockdown, uh, with state and local mandates, TOT revenue saw a significant decrease as consumer uh, travel ceased. In fiscal year 22, when the state and city opened back up, we saw consumer revenge travel, as they were calling it. Uh, there was a lot of pent up demand for travel and TOT revenues saw a significant increase as a result. Fast forward to fiscal year 23, there was a lot of uncertainty for consumers with recession fears and rising interest rates. So we've seen a slowdown or deceleration of travel, which has impacted our local hotel stays and TOT. Continue to monitor these categories and provide updates in the third. Last categories, department charges and fees. Uh, the category accounts for approximately 9% of the city's general fund revenues. Through December, revenues were at 6.1 million for the current fiscal year. A 8.6 increase from fiscal approximately 54% from fiscal year. Continue to see improvements for department charges and fees. Revenues in the category as a whole are back to pre-pandemic levels, uh, actually slightly above, as you can see from the chart. This category contains the charges and fees for all departments with parks and recreation and paramedic fees or ambulance bulk of the revenue in the category. Through second quarter, Parks and Recreation continues to see positive impacts in their revenues as their activities and programs were directly impacted by the limitations from state and local mandates. Through mid-year, revenues saw an increase of 43.3% department as compared to last fiscal year. And actual revenues for Parks and Rec through mid-year were 2.2 million versus 1.5 million last fiscal year, approximately a 700,000 increase. Previous updates, we talked about outdoor activities and programs for Parks and Rec showing continued improvement, such as aquatics, cult uh, sports, and youth sports, while at the same time, indoor activities and programs continue to lag behind in the recovery process from the pandemic. Now we're seeing both outdoor and indoor programs and activities show relative strength when comparing to pre-pandemic levels. Revenues for Parks and Rec as a whole are back to pre-pandemic level. We're seeing continued improvement for the department in activities and revenues. 
We also talked about ambulance revenues or paramedic fees in the Q1 budget update. At that point in time, we saw a revenue decrease of approximately 20% compared to fiscal year 22. But after speaking with our provider in billing services, we didn't anticipate revenues to continue to decline for the remainder of the fiscal year. We didn't expect the decline in revenue to become a trend. And now we're seeing, and now what we're seeing is that Q1 revenue, the Q1 revenue decline was an anomaly in uncollectible billing, such as Medicare, Cal write downs, and revenues for ambulance transports are continuing to show strength as they have in, in past previous fiscal years. Currently, ambulance revenues are down 7.9% compared to last fiscal year, but we expect the number to improve throughout the remainder of fiscal year. Overall, we continue to see improvement in revenue to, for department charges and fees, and we expect it to continue. Through. That concludes a presentation on second quarter revenue trends, and from here, I will pass it over to our budget manager, our proposed budget augmentation. Good evening. Tonight, I will be going over our proposed budget augmentations. Budget augmentations are needed when items arise after budget adoption. Tonight, we do have several augmentation requests for both staffing and services and or supplies for Council's consideration. This slide contains proposed staffing augmentations, which, which if approved, would add eight budgeted full-time positions. The first position is a junior engineer conversion from limited term to permanent. This position was originally approved by Council as a two-year limited term position within the Development Engineering Division of Public Works. And it is nearing its term of expiration. Thus, it is now recommended to transition to a permanent position to meet the demands of the development community as the workload is expected to remain elevated over the next several years. The projects being worked on include plan review and entitlements for subdivisions including Lagoon Valley, Roberts Ranch, the farms at Alamo, Green Tree, North Village, Area Plan Number 2, Alamo Mixed Use, Vaca Valley Business Park, along with some others. This position is currently funded by the Development Engineering Fund, and no augmentation is needed in the current fiscal year, as it was included with the fiscal year 23 operating budget. However, the ongoing annual cost is $153,400. The second position is for a public works program manager. Over the past two years, the number of special projects assigned to the Public Works Department has increased tremendously. There are currently over 18 projects that will take many months of dedicated personnel to complete. These projects include private fence replacement program, landscape and lighting assessment districts, citywide alternative funding feasibility, feasibility study, Caltrans, Caltrans interchange landscaping, electric vehicle charger implementation, Alamo Detention Basin Project, and the School Street Bridge Lighting Project. Based on the complexity and responsibility level associated with these projects, the department needs to hire a program manager to see these, pro these projects through to fruition. This position will be funded by the general fund, and the annual ongoing cost is $193,900. However, assuming a March higher date in the current fiscal year, the cost would be $64,600. The third position tonight is an additional assistant city attorney. The city attorney's office is currently comprised of four attorneys and it's continuing to be challenged with increasing workloads due to ongoing evolution 
of tasks related to, for example, significant changes in policing and public records laws, increased demand for transparency in government, including additional needs for Brown Act and conflict of interest analysis, staffing and training of commissions and advisory committees, changes and expansions of state housing laws, increased surplus land act requirements. In addition to the above legal services, there are increasing demands for specific legal services for our public safety departments, primarily in the police department. Not only do the police and fire departments provide high risk services that can create a significant amount of legal exposure, but they are also both highly regulated industries that need expert legal support and direction to adopt policies, procedures, and practices to maintain compliance with the increasingly complicated statutory requirements that are passed each year. Moreover, the recent audit of the police department's operations has resulted in numerous recommendations that require a dedicated attorney resources to implement the recommended expansion to include a public safety Focused attorney will free up existing resources to respond to the significant demands of the remaining nine departments. This position would be funded by the general fund with an ongoing cost of 251,700. Assuming a March higher date, the fiscal impact in the current year is 83,900. The last six positions are for the police department as a follow-up for the department's audit with the OIR group and its numerous recommendations. The department is seeking to move towards an industry best practice staffing model to allow the department to fully address the current demands. Based on research and assessments, the department has identified the need to change the organizational structure, which the chief will discuss in further detail on slide 11. The six recommendations, the six recommended positions tonight are, the first are for the new administrative and personnel division. This would be one lieutenant with an annual cost of 291,300. One PD services manager with an annual cost of 151,300. And one administrative technician with an annual cost of 94,500. The total ongoing cost for this division is approximately 537,000. And the fiscal impact in the current year is 179,000. The final three positions for the police department are for the professional standards division. And this includes two sergeants with a combined annual cost of 532,800. One would be in compliance and one would be in internal affairs. The third position is a community service officer in the compliance section with an annual cost of 108,800. The total annual ongoing cost for this division is approximately 642,000 with a fiscal impact in the current year of 213,900. All six of these positions would be funded by the general fund. In addition, the current fiscal year, the total estimated cost of 392,900 would be funded by the department's one-time salary savings. Next. This slide contains proposed augmentations for services and supplies, and we have seven items for you tonight. The first item is for additional expenses related to COVID-19 that were neither covered by ARPA nor FEMA. As part of the discussion regarding the allocation of ARPA funds, it was recommended a portion of the funds be used to reimburse the city for pandemic-related expenses, such as the cost for on-site testing at City Hall, 
additional janitorial and staff expenses incurred at the Harbison Event Testing Center, miscellaneous items such as paper towels, hand sanitizers, wipes, disinfectants, and soaps. Since none of the ARPA funds were approved to be allocated for these expenses, a budget augmentation is needed from, from the general fund to cover these unanticipated costs. As of the end of December, the total unbudgeted COVID-19 related expenses are 186,100. The second item for you is the OPEB year-end annual contribution. As stated in the OPEB funding policy, when a fiscal year is closed and revenues have exceeded expenditures, the City Council will direct 25% of the excess towards a one-time payment to the OPEB trust. With non-Measure non M general fund revenues exceeding expenditures by $1.2 million in fiscal year 22, the additional contribution to be sent to the trust is $300,000. This amount would be in addition to the actuarial determined contribution for fiscal year 23. The third item is for the police department's dispatch software. As part of the city's P25 inoper inoperable communications upgrade in 2021, the existing consoles in the communication centers were upgraded with six new dispatch consoles, which included the first year of annual support and maintenance services. Since transitioning to the new radio system, the communication center has added an additional dispatch console for a total of seven. The current ongoing funding needed is 50,500. Furthermore, with the various changes related to upgrading the radio system, the communication center needed to upgrade the outdated analog voice recorder with a new digital NICE system so all radio and 911 voice traffic would be recorded. Similar to the dispatch consoles, the first year of support services was included. The current ongoing annual funding needed for this NICE logger is 39100 If approved by council, a total of 89600 for ongoing costs would be added to the communication center's operating budget. The fourth request tonight is for equipment related to the six additional staffing positions in the police department. The requests are for the one time would be five new vehicles, a total of 224,500, office furniture for 65,000, computer equipment for 8,000, and then ongoing costs for cell phones, which is expected to be 24,000 annually. However, the current cost is 800 or $800 in the current year. This is a total of 298300 in the current fiscal year, which would be offset by utilizing police salary savings. The fifth request is for consulting services for a fire fleet review, which will be handled by the Public Works Department. As the city continues to tackle various structural deficiencies citywide, the Public Works Department has identified the need for a third-party consultant to perform a detailed analysis of the fire department's vehicle and equipment fleet to ensure the highest operational readiness and efficiency of the fire department. The project team would be tasked with first assessing and understanding the current fire fleet composition, inventory, and management, followed by a development of a detailed fleet composition, including age, condition, life expectancy, and replacement schedules. The consulting team would analyze budgets, policies, and the use of technology related to fire equipment replacement. The consultant would meet with both fire and public works fleet department representatives to understand their needs and gather any, nece any necessary information. 
Using industry standards for fire fleet equipment replacement, the project team would develop a report that provides a recommendation 10-year replacement schedule and cost impact for budgetary planning purposes along with a suggested implementation plan. The additional one-time budget needed for this analysis is 39,900. The sixth request tonight for, is for replacing playground equipment at Beelard Park. Each year when available, funding is set aside from the lighting and landscape park maintenance districts budget to provide funds for playground structure replacement. The typical service life, service life of a playground structure is 15 to 20 years. The existing Beelard Park playground structure for five to 12 year olds was installed in May of 2001. The structure has thus exceeded its 20 year service life and now needs to be replaced. As a part of the fiscal year 21 capital improvement budget, approximately 119,000 was set aside with funding from the Beelard Park Light and Landscape Fund. In 2022, the playground equipment was purchased for $114,000, but there is not enough funds to replace for the actual re um, removal and replacement of the playground structure along with new surfacing. To complete this project, staff is proposing a one-time augmentation of Measure M funds in the amount of $70,000 to address the shortfall. The seventh and final request is for the fire department's um, fire apprentice pilot program. In the current fiscal operating budget, we included approximately $852,000 for a new fire apprentice pilot program. Now that we are halfway through the year, the department has identified additional one-time materials for the apprentice program. This request is for the department to purchase three cargo containers along with a cover. The containers would be used for storage for the apprentice equipment and supplies and would be placed in a C formation to provide a covered area behind station 73 where the apprentices would be able to train. While this is an additional request of one-time expenses, the department has identified adequate one-time savings from the original non-full-time budget of approximately $292,000 to offset the cost. If approved by the council, the overall budget would remain the same at approximately $852,000, but $30,000 would be moved from um, salary and benefits to services and supplies. The total request for tonight's additional services and supplies is 983,900. And with that, I will now turn the presentation over to the police chief to discuss the department's request in more depth. Thank you, Leslie, Mayor Carley, Vice Mayor Wiley, members of the council. Uh, I'm honored and privileged to be before you tonight. Uh, last month, the City Council was uh, gracious enough to um, approve our request for additional software as it relates to the recommendations from the recently uh, released OIR report back in November of 2022. Uh, one of the questions that was asked uh, at the last uh, meeting when, when that approval took place was about staffing. And so that's what I'm here to, to discuss uh, today. Uh, this actually began uh, back in 2019. Uh, we actually, at one point I was tasked with looking at different structures in terms of how uh, internal affairs and professional standards organizations were, uh, were developed and staffed. 
Um, so I undertook that way back in 2019. Uh, that was due to SB 1421 coming online, which significantly increased the amount of information related to PRAs uh, that was going to be provided via the police department through the city clerk's office. Another uh, assembly bill came along about six months later that involved uh, the video redaction aspect of the transparency movement. Uh, so that also increased uh, significantly the amount of work uh, being done. So as we looked at this uh, and moved through 2020 into 2021, the uh, amount of legislation that came through related to police reform was significant. Um, and as identified in the OIR report via the 40 recommendations, uh, we did not have the staffing nor the technology in order to be able to keep up with the increased demand uh, on our department. Uh, so looking uh, at this staffing model, uh, breaking sort of the professional standards and training division that we have now uh, into two and creating the new administrative and personnel division will allow us to uh, come to uh, a contemporary ability to be able to do the work that's requested of us by the state and the demands from the, the community on transparency. So essentially we would have uh, two divisions. Uh, the professional standards uh, division would have two sections. One would be the internal affairs uh, section and that's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. They would take care of uh, any type of uh, internal affairs investigations, administrative investigations, uh, claims investigations, um, any type of disciplinary uh, action would work with that city attorney that's going to be assisting the, the police department and the fire department. The other side of the public, uh, or I'm sorry, other side of the professional standards division would be the compliance section, which is new for us, but it's not new to the industry. Uh, a number of departments, um, our size and smaller, have these compliance sections uh, based on the significant amount of legislation and the, the number of regulatory requirements that have been placed on uh, law enforcement and specifically um, this department as identified in the OIR report. The new division that we would create would be the administrative and personnel division. Um, as you know, hiring and recruitment is an extremely high priority for the city. And again, thank you to the council for taking the action that you took in order to boost our ability to attract the best of the best to come be lateral and entry level police officers here in the city of Vacaville. That being said, we need dedicated staff to work on hiring and recruitment. We don't have uh, sufficient staff at this time. In fact, currently two of the command staff members are are basically doing the, the lion's share of the work, which um, takes them away from the, the duties that they're actually assigned to do uh, because we don't have the staff to actually complete the interviews and do the sort of initial inboarding process. So the personnel division would essentially take training uh, away from that previous uh, professional standards and training division. So all training would be under this new division uh, as well as the program services uh, manager that we're asking for um, is that that's related strictly to technology as i'm sure some of you on the dais know there's an incredible amount of technology that's uh at play in the police department there's over 50 software systems uh just in dispatch center alone um, that are functioning at any given time including the the nice logger as uh, as leslie explained uh, and and technology continues to um to increase and be a, a bigger, uh, more 
uh, integral part of what we do. The camera system is a, is a big uh, example of that. And the effectiveness of that camera system um, can't be uh, overstated. So the, that uh, position would lie within this new administrative and personnel division. So essentially everything related to HR, including work, workers comp, uh, would would be uh, would fall in this division, and we'd have actual staff um, to to take care of that. That's we originally were thinking of a CSO position for this division. However, in researching it further, we decided that an administrative technician would be a, a better fit based on the program specific job duties that they would be doing. And with that, uh, happy to answer any questions. Vice Mayor Wiley. I just have one question. Um, so based on the job description of the way you're describing these positions, the six new positions, would they primarily be filled with current people after they apply and go through the whole process? You would not bring in someone from out of town to start here, is that correct? So the, the three sworn positions, <laughs> uh, the lieutenant and the two sergeants, yes, would, would come from inside. We like to do internal recruitments for the other positions that we're, we're putting out there, and that's, that's the priority is to do internal promotions based on lists that the HR department already has or can test for. Uh, the only time we'd be going outside of the department if, is if there was um, not a qualified list for that specific assignment, which CSO, administrative tech, we definitely have lists for both of those uh, for internal candidates. The program services manager is a is a brand new um, job description. So that one we're kind of really trying to look at what that that means. That person has to have you know a significant uh, amount of knowledge when it comes to technology, but also be able to manage the the different contracts, uh, the vendor agreements, the um, the maintenance and service agreements. So that's kind of a new hybrid position. Uh, uh, that's a professional staff position that we. We, uh, we're, we're unique in having that. And you have to have just the right person for that, who's yes. the person that is working with the other people and helping them do what they need to be. So that has to be, all of them are important, yes. but it's very important for that. Critical. So if some people move up, is it potentially going to be a higher cost because some people might be <coughs> a different office now and they're moving up to this? So. So this is really not the total cost. Is that That's my question. The uh, Actually, the... So we're having a, a sergeant's test and a lieutenant's test. So those two positions uh, are reflected in the amount that you're seeing now. Uh, there would be no additional cost as it would trickle down to, to the officer positions that have been uh, vacant. So that's- But we're trying to hire people that are lateral, so we yes. might hire lieutenants and sergeants. No, our, our preference is, is in-house for, for those types of promotions. I can't recall going outside for a lieutenant or a sergeant in, in the 23 years I've been here. So those positions would all be internal. I see. I see. Councilmember Silva. Um, just, uh, Chief Conception, uh, appreciate you moving funds around uh, from a lot of funds. So let's make sure that doesn't go unnoticed, uh, if you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> uh, for the for the crates and whatnot. Um, the... Uh, uh, so I guess my comment is, uh, when people say technology is supposed to make life simpler and easier, it doesn't sound like it. Uh, it doesn't kill jobs at all. 
probably cost more in the end. It was kind of interesting. Uh, makes you want to go old school. <laughs> um, uh, so that's my jab, I guess, at technology. Um, I need a neighborhood watch program. Um, are we going to, with all this extra support, can we get that program back in yeah, that's something I'm, I'm working with the city manager. Uh, he's he's working on a neighborhood association project that's going to sort of coincide with a, a neighborhood watch model. So that's definitely um, coming down the pipe. Um, it will be assisted by getting this staff, which will then take again take those those tasks off other staff that are currently having to do five or six of these different tasks that this this uh, group of people would then take from them. So that would assist us in getting that done sooner. Um, and it's not just, uh, so you mentioned, so maybe for city manager and, and chief, uh, I've heard that request from different parts of the town, uh, not just where we're looking at having a neighborhood association. So um, if residents are expressing, hey, I, you know, I wanna form something to help look out for each other and this and that, I'm hoping there's an opportunity. I need an opportunity. Uh, Absolutely. We need an opportunity to address that. And in the meantime, we have a uh, community outreach specialist, Amber McCabe. Uh, she has taken over the office that used to oversee uh, the, the office that did the neighborhood watch programs. So there's still um, something similar. I don't know if it's officially called neighborhood watch, but she would be the one to help organize a neighborhood and being able to create essentially the same thing. But a formal program is 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 on the way. Thank you. And real quick, uh, before I open up for the public comment, there's all kinds of programs and technology is always the challenge and that's part of needing to stay on top of it. Dispatch is highly complex. And so the Comm Center for Vacaville supports uh, both police fire and from a medical response very, very important, very, very modern with high, high demands of technology. Um, and our dispatchers work hard to provide the services to both our police and fire. Uh, is it, can you speak on behalf of a, I know there's been some difficulties in staffing. This obviously is the functions of recommendations, but I hear a lot of uh, desire for the community response unit to be operational. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. Uh, I'm actually, I'm happy to report today that as of yesterday, the community response unit is back. Uh, we staffed it with a, a sergeant who has prior experience uh, in crew as a, a crew officer, not just here in Vacaville, but also in his previous agency, which had a significant homeless issue that they were able to tackle and be very successful in mitigating. So he's the new supervisor of the unit, uh, David Casanovo. And then we have two new officers that are, uh, they've already hit the ground running. I looked yesterday on the CAD screen and they're down at Shelter Solano in Fairfield already getting folks in shelter beds. So we're really excited. They're, they know they're gonna be busy. They're excited to do it. And uh, we're excited to have them back out there. Thank you. I'm gonna open up for public comment. Mayor. Mr. Mayor, if, yes. if I could interrupt, I apologize. We actually still have a key portion of the budget presentation with regards to All right, the forecast. I'll, I'll retract so, that. Thank you. Sometimes we get ahead of ourselves. I'll turn thank it back you. over to you, Leslie. Thank you, Chief. In summary, the augmentations presented tonight for your consideration align with the council's adopted strategic plan, goals, and initiatives. 
By approving these requests, we will continue to secure our foundation and strengthen our service delivery to the council, citizens, and the organization. The fiscal impact in the current fiscal year, as stated in the staff report, is one is one $1,525,300. However, as mentioned earlier, we will be using utilizing a total of 691,200 of anticipated police department salary savings. Thus, tonight's total augmentation request is 834100 with 764100 coming from the general fund and 70000 coming from Measure M. Now I will pass it back to Ken to go over the updated five-year forecast. Thanks, Leslie. So before we talk about the five-year forecast, uh, this slide um, shows some of the assumptions that we use for building the five-year forecast. I'm just going to highlight a couple of the items on here. So on the revenue side for sales tax growth, we're projecting um, 3% growth in the current year, and then for that to be flat in 2003-24, so the next fiscal year because of inflation and interest rate pressures. With property tax, although um, housing prices have definitely fallen from July through current because of the interest rates, um, working with our consultant HDL, they are projecting property tax revenues to still increase next year about 6% and then to slow down after that because of the cooling down in the housing market. On the expense side, the forecast includes all of the fiscal impacts of the recent MOUs that have been agreed upon, the other bu um, budget augmentations that have been um, approved during this fiscal year, as well as tonight's recommendations. And then as discussed earlier in uh, the unfunded liabilities item, this forecast includes the updated actual val valuation numbers, as well as that projection for 2022 as well. Next slide, please. So for the five-year forecast, this is from um, last fiscal year, 2022, on the far left, all the way to 2027. The way to read this, the columns represent expenses, and then the lines represent revenues. And so um, to have a balanced general fund budget, what you want to see is at the very top, that gold line, uh, to be above your columns, which are expenses. Uh, in years where we have a surplus, so where the revenues exceed the expenses, you'll see a green column. So in 2022, as an example, we had a general fund surplus of a little under 15 million. Um, from 23 forward, you do notice that, you know, that surplus has definitely um, shrunk a lot compared to kind of where we were at at quarter one. So to, uh, comparing this forecast to the, 2000, to the, the first quarter um, forecast, we were looking at a surplus of anywhere between four to five million on average a year. Um, that's now kind of closer to a million dollars, and that has a lot to do with the fact that although we're seeing revenue grow, it's not growing as fast as um, you know, what we've seen in prior years. And then on the expense side, because of the different, um, like the MOUs and the position additions and other things that have been approved during the year, like that has increased expenses as well as kind of the unfunded liability numbers going up as well. Um, but overall, um, you do see expenses in line with revenues with about a million dollar surplus projected through 2027. Next slide, please. So a uh, previous slide had the revenues and expenses. This is the actual reserves. And so going from um, working from 2022 through 27, at the very top, you see um, our reserve expressed as a dollar. So 55 million at the end of last fiscal year, projecting that to be at 58 million at the end of 27, expressed as a percentage. Um, at the end of this year, we expect to be at 43% and that going down to 40%. Even though the dollar value is going up, the reason why the percentage goes down is because the percentage is based off of expenses. Since expenses go up over time, that means that even though you have the same amount of a reserve in dollars, that as a percentage, it does lower. Um, in the middle, uh, we have our ADP payments. So these are the additional payments that we're making towards the, the CalPERS pension liability to save on long-term interest costs. We have that programmed in at $2.2 million a year. 
And then the bottom two rows express what our reserve would be after making those ADP payments. So um, if you kind of look and compare 27, so five years out, we're looking at um, a reserve of 34%. Just a reminder on our policy, um, our policy calls for the general fund to be between 16 to 25%, and that represents a two to three month reserve. Next slide, please. So um, the recommendation is by simple motion to receive the general fund mid-year budget report and adopt the subject resolution. Next slide. We'll be happy to take questions. Thank you for the presentation. And uh, seeing no lights, I'm going to open it up to public comment. Carly, Vice um, <laughs> Wiley, Council, and uh, I didn't come prepared to talk about this, but. <clears throat> And I am a fiscal hawk, but I have to say that having a superior and honorable police department, which I think we do and can be made better by supporting them further, is a quality of life. Doesn't matter what your income bracket is, what neighborhood you live in. But I hope that you will give serious consideration to carry package because. Not safe, and you don't have quality people. Quality of life goes away. So I respectfully ask you to support the police department's request on the budget. Thank you. Thank you. Seeing no one else, I'm going to close public comment. Bring it back to the council. Councilmember Ritchie. Uh, thank you so much for the presentation. Um, I've just. Uh, Motion to approve this theme. Before we do that, I also have to see some other lights, but it was a good try. Yeah, I have to. <laughs> I'll give you the credit yeah, on that. Yeah, optimist. <laughs> Councilmember Chapman. Thank you. I'm looking at um, the city manager on this one. I was happy to see that Beeler Park is going to um, has new equipment and needed seventy thousand dollars. <laughs> More, however, uh, with Parks and Rec here, I just want to say it needs more than just um, new equipment. And I was hoping whenever they got around to Beeler Park, they would look at a reconfiguration because all it is is a big piece of property. Uh, there's, yeah, children play and a basketball court, and it 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 is definitely in need of uh, a redesign and benches, uh, possibly a covered area for parents to sit out there. They do um, have some teams practicing on the field, but new equipment is not enough for Beeler Park. It's, so I just want to put that out there. And, and I know we're going to talk about it in March. Okay. <laughs> uh, I appreciate the comments, Councilmember Chapman. And this is something that uh, we can certainly discuss further. Um, we have council support in Measure M for an annual commitment to um, park enhancements for existing parks. Um, but you know, this will be an important conversation for the council to have because you know the. Parks are, are, you know, have their funding issues. 
And then as far as programming for uh, remodeling the existing parks, you know, that's something that, um, you know, again, we put money in measure M, but I don't know how far that that's gone off the top right now. So we can certainly be prepared to um, have more detail at that, you know, um, um, so that the council can give us, you know, your sense of priorities for, you know, how we do that. We'll be ready for that conversation. I understand, but I needed to put that out there that it's in dire need. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right, Councilmember Stockton. I'll keep it quick. Um, I wanted to thank uh, the you all for coming back to us with these adjustments. Um, Chief, I, I appreciate you taking the advice um, to uh, better the department, and and I'm all for um, what your proposal is. I think using the salary savings to do something that is going to have an overall um, benefit toward our quality of life here in Vacaville by adding these positions and increasing transparency, it's just good all the way around. So I appreciate you utilizing those funds. I know that we have those funds because of the hard work that the men and women of your police department do. And um, I appreciate that we're rolling that into something else that's really positive for the community in our police department. So thank you. Uh, the other positions seem well justified as well. When uh, the, the mayor is ready, I, I would be happy to second um, uh, Council Member Ritchie's motion. Well, thank you. We, we have a motion. Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. And we have a second. We do. All right. So with a motion and a second, all in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Hearing none, it passes. Thank you for the presentation. With that, we will move on to item 10, reports of the city manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, at, given the hour at this time, I have no reports. Thank you for your assistance on that. <laughs> we'll move on to item 11, reports of the city council. Councilmember Silva. Uh, just a cool congratulations for the promotion. Um, now you get to stay here to midnight <laughs> with the rest with the rest of us. Uh, no, um, you know, uh, just I no I, I make no decisions in personnel. None of us do. I don't know. Maybe we lose that bargaining chip. But um, he has. Uh, I know. Uh, have the privilege of knowing some of some of his family members and uh, uh, great. Great, uh, great kid, and um, anyway, so I know that's because he got a great, great person, great, great parents, and so, anyways, um, just congratulations. I'm glad, glad uh, you're sticking around and and leading our um, wastewater efforts, and look forward to touring the place with my students in April. So, looking forward to that. Um, uh, Sarah Chapman, uh, Dr. Chapman, uh, wanted to thank you for coming out to the community leadership club. Um, she uh, presented just for everybody else to know that uh, she presented and kind of shared um, uh, some things that I had not known about her and and uh, share that with the youth that's out there. Um, the Community Leadership Club is something uh, uh, myself and uh, but more so uh, Mrs. Bocanegra started at at uh, elementary school. Uh, so we're piloting it out there uh, to help educate the kids on what it takes to run a society and uh, what it takes to uh, what it, not just what it takes to be a leader, but what to actually do about it. And so um, I really look forward to seeing you come back out and continuing to yeah, So I just want to extend my gratitude and always love hearing your your perspective here on council. So 
if you want to take up the airwaves, go ahead. Um, I also want to congratulate Vacaville's first uh, young lady uh, who earned her Eagle Scout. Um, so uh, girls, so Boy Scouts uh, switched to being Scouts to be much more inclusive. Um, and so they still have separate groups for quote unquote boys and quote unquote girls. Uh, but Lacey, she's Vacaville's first um, Eagle Scout. And so I'm really proud of her. I uh, got the chance to know her in um, you know, the past couple of years. And so I'm, I'm really proud of, of, of her dedication and, and leadership. Um, she's actually looking at starting a, an additional club for 14 to 21 year olds. It's called a Venture Club. So it's still through the Scouts program. It's focused on higher venture programs, leadership development, and getting out to nature and doing some crazy stuff. So um, I was really excited to see her continue to expand and uh, apply her leadership skills to benefit our community and those who come after. Um, I extend my gratitude to the Opportunity House. Uh, yesterday, I, I held a listening session. Um, man, a lot of, lot of great uh, feedback of uh, different issues that, are, that they're facing. Um, and you know, some are couple are easy fixes. Other ones are much more difficult and systemic. You know, going from federal government to the state on down. Uh, uh, Trevor, uh, which is one of uh, assembly member assembly member Lori Wilson's um, uh, staff members reps. Uh, he actually, I didn't, I wasn't totally wasn't expecting anybody to come, but uh, he found out and actually came out. So it was really nice to have him uh, represent the assembly members. Um, you know, perspective and office and making sure that that uh, our locals uh, voices are heard um, and uh, represent at the state level. So that, that was awesome. Uh, last item, or well, sorry, two more things. Um, Stem my gratitude to the youth at PAL, Police Activities League. Um, so they uh, met with them uh, real briefly earlier today and they asked questions about zoning, <laughs> um, how we go about developing whatnot. So that was interesting uh, and also trying to understand districts and whatnot. And so a uh, great group that, that they have out there, um, you know, at our uh, school resource officers on site, uh, Judith Franco, her team out there running it. Uh, it's it a great turnout. So uh, the only problem is they typically meet just before our city council meetings. So it's, you know, to be able to connect with them for us, from our perspective, a little difficult. Um, the other request I have is just to get, I had a call from a community member, just let me know that the scholarships for, that we fund through Measure M for Parks and Rec are, um, they're been given out, they're on the wait list. So I'm curious to see what the wait list is. And, um, you know, I know we just approved a, a bunch of funds, um, but, um, you know, I, uh, I'm curious to see uh, what, if, uh, if we need to discuss that further. Um, you know, I'm of the, I know we put out a bunch of money for ARPA funds for nonprofits and programming and whatnot, um, but again, uh, you know, I, I don't want if there's a if there's a big wait list that tells me that there's a demand, uh, particularly as summertime comes up. I want to make sure that the kids got somewhere safe to go and um, I'd like that to be considered. So that's it. Thank you. Councilmember Stockton. Yes, um, thanks for sticking with us. I wanted to thank um, the Public Works Department and the Parks and Rec Department a while back. Um, I got the had the pleasure to work with uh, our assistant city manager, uh, Ms. Greg, uh, Georgian, and uh, with uh, her uh, with Rika on the district dollar program, and we purchased some soccer goals. And after speaking with uh, Director uh, Hubbard, we figured that was uh, something that was needed in some of the parks. And so um, Public Works went out, put them up. Uh, I've been watching kids 
kicking soccer balls into them and having a good time um, over at Corderos Park as well as over at uh, Ridgeview Park. So I just wanted to extend my thanks um, for the suggestion, um, for the ideas, for sticking with us uh, with the district dollar program and for uh, the public works folks going out there and and putting them together. It was, uh, it, was, it was a fun experience going out there while they were putting them up and people were excited. And so I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, lastly, it was, it was really exciting to talk about Parks and Rec and Measure M. So um, I know that we have a lot coming up to talk about at our next meeting. And I'm just excited that we kind of got to talk about some of that today. And I've asked, you know, like dreams of seeing something built, something amazing for our kids to enjoy. So hopefully we can get one step closer to that. Councilmember Richie. Okay. So I planned ahead for this to be a late meeting. So I'll waste your time here. I did about a five minute write up on my two things I want to talk about. Go to my web, go to my social media, GregRichieRevacable.com. So it takes 10 minutes to say it or you read it your own time, please. I, I did a big write up about Black, Black History Month, what it means to me and Travis, Air Force Base. We went to the, the event together. <clears throat> Here's going to my voice. Um, even though all the council wasn't there, I know everyone here passionately. If they could, would have been there. So it's it was it was great to see our mayor and council members there. <clears throat> Sorry, but please go read my passion. I, I really wanted to give people the last day of Black History Month a really amazing um, personal story and what what it technically means, what it means to me, and, and what Travis Air Force Base means this community. They really tied it in with the Wright brothers. So it's Go read there. So I'm going to take 10 minutes to talk about it now. Thank you. Councilmember Roberts. Yeah, I just wanted to thank Parks and Rec. We, this last weekend, we put on the winter movie night at Three Oaks. Uh, pretty successful turnout. Just wanted to do something for kids that are stuck inside in the rain and the cold. I'm sure the parents wanted to get them out of the house too. Uh, but while I was there, I was talking to some of the Parks and Rec staff and some community members, and it's kind of starting to learn that they've had to cancel a few events in the past because of low registration or low turnout. Um, and to me, like, yeah, people just didn't necessarily know about it. So it was like Parks and Rec, out of all the departments, should probably have one of the largest advertising budgets because you're trying to get people to go do stuff. I see posts from the PD and Public Works pretty regularly about stuff that's going on. But the only time I ever see Parks and Rec stuff is if I go to that Facebook page. Um, for some reason, I don't know if it's just excluding me from the algorithm for some reason. But um, but yeah, it's like Facebook's relatively cheap to advertise on. I just like to see more of the events that advertise the community because you guys put time and effort into programming these, developing them and getting ideas out there, I'd like to see your ideas actually be utilized. And so, like I said before, if you need something, bug us and we can, I'm definitely there to help support you, especially because how much, I know this council likes to help out the youth programs. Um, and yeah, if you guys need support with that, let us know. Uh, Cause I'd really like to see your programs like packed, like all of them. Um, so that's all I have. Yeah, thanks again for this weekend. Vice Mayor Wiley. Uh, I'll just piggyback on what Council Member um, <laughs> Richie said just a few minutes ago about how important it was to have the state of the base, uh, pro 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 the state of the base 
<clears throat> presentation a couple of weeks ago and how important the base is to all of us and how important we are to the base. And so there's a lot of activities coming up in the month of May and April that are celebrating some of the milestones for the base. So if you see anything that maybe you say, well, I haven't done that or I haven't been there, they really encourage everyone from Vacaville to be involved or to see what's going on because it really helps the airmen. <clears throat> so that was the one comment. And the other thing, just to the public comment at the beginning of the meeting talking about the homeless, with weather like this, I really appreciate the crew is back up and they are trying to get help for the people for the services that we have and just to make sure that we can do as much as we can. And again, Vacaville is a very caring community and I know that we don't want to have people out in bad situations. So thanks for hanging in there. Councilmember Chapman. Thank you. Um, I would like to share on Saturday, um, there was an event held at the Roland Freedom Center where they honored all black soldiers from years back to the present, um, male and female, and they had about five speakers. And I, I have to say, even as a black person, I learned quite a bit being in attendance. Um, there was a professor from UC Davis that came in, a true historian, uh, have written many books, um, and a very impressive, very knowledgeable individual. And then, of course, they had um, one of the Tuskegee Airmen. They had the um, Buffalo Soldiers. They had a representative from each. And then uh, Jesse Branch. Uh, many of you may know him. He lives in Fairfield, um, a retired Marine, the first sergeant uh, Marine soldier. However, there were quite a few youth in attendance, but uh, I was speaking with the reporter uh, representative, and um, I, I just shared with her that there is a generation that I felt would have really benefited from everything that was shared at that event. And the young generation I'm speaking of is not necessarily high school students. I'm speaking of the young adults, 18 to 23, 24 to have to understand and to hear uh, the history of the United States and the role that blacks had, especially in the in the army, in the armed forces, that's speaking of all of them. And so it was a wonderful event. Um, I, I'm not sure who the sponsor or who put it on, but it was cold in the building, but it was worth being there. And so, and it was well attended, well attended want to share that. Thank you. Um, and thank you all who can stick this out. Um, somehow Valentine's was a short meeting and this is what happens <laughs> when you're here versus when you're gone. I don't know who set the schedule, hey. but I just had to say that. But anyway, um, listen, when, when we're doing business and we have the opportunity to really um, share and give direction, they're going to go along. It's important, and I think that there's a lot of good discussion tonight, a lot of things that are coming to Vacaville and a lot of movement, and thanks to staff for having to stick it out. I know what it feels like to be on that side, and so just imagine what it feels like to be on this side. Um, with that, there's one item that I want to bring up. After careful consideration and extensive negotiations, the city has reached a settlement uh, of the TA Leisure Town LLC 
uh, versus the city of Vacaville litigation related to the Southtown apartment project. In doing so, the city council has con uh, conserved city resources by avoiding the further expenditure of very substantial attorney's fees in this and potentially related lit uh, litigation. Briefly, the settlement calls for reconsideration of the Southtown apartment project, which has been revised to address some specific concerns of neighbors and provide police and fire funding. The city will be releasing a public statement about the settlement shortly. I unfortunately move that the city council agendized for the March 14, 2023 city council meeting an item to reconsider the Southtown Apartments project, including any proposed modifications to the project, as well as any other actions the city is required to take in connection with the reconsideration of the Southtown project. I have a motion. Do I have a second? second. Councilmember Chapman has a second. And uh, with that, all in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? This. Opposed. Okay, with that, the, uh, we ask that this comes back to the council. And then uh, with that, um, we have closed session tonight, and it's a conference with labor negotiators, and uh, there will be nothing to report out on that item. And with that, we will adjourn. Good night, back of them.